Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be back to welcome you to Taran Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nasara. Thank you for your continued prayers and just a reminder that there is no ascension call tomorrow night, so I'll mention that at the end of our program here, at the end of our opening. But let's begin our work of bringing heaven to earth. Please enter into your heart center as we call upon all of the energies of this sacred time. The previous new moon in Virgo, the autumn equinox here, in the Northern Hemisphere, the Spring Equinox in the Southern Hemisphere. All of the energies coming up, building up toward our full moon on September 29th. We're calling in all of those energies to overlight us and to assist us in our service here today. And as we enter into our heart center, we call forth for the full emergence and integration with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence, with all of our multidimensional being through to our God presence and goddess presence. And we call forth everyone across the planet to join us in unity consciousness to do this divine service work. We do this through the following prayer. Please join me in saying, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with every family member and loved one. I am one with all that is. Take a nice deep breath. So we invite in for one and all, all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pods. We welcome for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the Diva Kingdom, the Elemental Kingdom, the Fairy Kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim, and all angelic healers and healing teams. We welcome all of the Ascended Master Romes, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters. 
all Divine Mother emissaries, Divine Father emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, and all Ascended Master healers and healing teams. We welcome our friends from the Galactic Federation of Light and their healing teams, especially those that we work so closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus, from Lyra, and from all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service. We call you all in now. Asking for the assistance of the entire company of heaven and asking our Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do to magnify, magnify, magnify it 999 billion times, 999 billion times in alignment with divine will and divine law. The maximum that we can receive individually and collectively, ever expanding to perfection. We call in all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws, all of the ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our work field, multidimensionally, on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well. All in divine order. And we ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all that we receive with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without fear on any level, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, in love and light and laughter. We call in everyone and everything from our circle of support, from the very first name that created it, to every man, woman, and child, to everyone here, everyone across the planet, every pet, every animal, every group, every organization, every institution, every nation, every military, every government, the executive aspect of each government, the legislative aspect of each government, the judicial aspect of each government, as we call for as divine governance, divine government in each and every nation, and all of the weather patterns, all of the dramatic activities of, of Mother Earth, and her weather and her climate patterns and all situations that are any, in any way unlike heaven as we call forth peace and love and harmony and bliss and ecstasy, abundance, goodwill, and all that is required to create heaven on earth. Can we call in all of the energies that we are invoking from September and those moving into October? Calling in all of the energies of this time, including all of the solar energies and the astrological configurations, 
so that we can utilize that in our collective cup of consciousness and all the things that people are paying attention to, whether it's pro football or college football, whether it's um, school or any other activities that people are focused on at this time. We call in all of that energy into our collective cup of consciousness to transform the planet, to bring everybody's attention to their divinity and who they truly are and what they truly came here to be. And we ask the guy receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of auric fields multidimensionally, through every ley line and song line, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system, through every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, molecule of fire, and through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power, every stargate, every city of light. It's a planet truly contains only cities of light. And everyone recognizes who they are as a divine being and finds their peace to contribute to creating heaven on earth. As we continue about this amazing spiral of evolution along with Gaia, as she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. So we call in first the energy of purity. We do any final cleansing and purification and call in the white flame of purity being thrown around us and thrown around the planet and then thrown around every man, woman, and child. In the name I am that I am, my beloved Holy Christ Buddha self and Holy Christ Buddha selves of all light bearers throughout the cosmos, beloved purity and Astraea, Gabriel and Hope, Serapis Bay and Justinius, the Seraphim and Cherubim of God, Mother Mary, Igor, Goddess of Purity, Goddess of Light, Queen of Light, Amen Bay, Lady Christine, St. Germain, Lady Portia, Padre Pio, Rose of Light, Charity, Surya, and Cusco, Lanello, Claire de Lise, K-17, Kali, and Ultra Messengers of God Goddess, all ascended and cosmic beings, legions of angels and archangels, Elohim, Buddhas, and Bodhisattvas of Heaven, the gnomes, unsigned sylphs, and salamanders, I pray. O purity, See, sense, and feel that white flame of purity. O purity, O purity, O purity sublime. O purge me now, O purge me now. I am now divine. Intensify the action of the circle and blue sword. O raise me now, O raise me now. O speak thy sacred word. Envelop me in purity. Your blazing aura bright. Now all that's lust and purity consumed in thy great light. Intensify the action of the circle and the blue sword. O seal me now in purity. O speak thy sacred word. In the fullness of your 
cosmic joy. We accept this prayer manifest here and now with full love, wisdom, power, anchored in the earth, air, fire, water, and ether, intangibly manifest in our lives and in the lives of all evolutions of light throughout the cosmos. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We call forth for the balance of the threefold flame, or as this prayer refers to it, the fleur de luz, the fleur de lis. Again, that's the threefold flame, the flower of light within our hearts. So focus on that now as we create the balance of this sacred equinox time. In the name I am that I am, my beloved Holy Christ, Buddhist self, and Holy Christ, Buddhist self, of all light bearers throughout the cosmos, beloved Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, faith, hope, and, and charity, St. Germain, Lady Portia, El Moria, Lanto, Paul the Venetian, Lady Nada, Lady Christine, Hilarion, Charity, Surian Cusco, Lanello, K-17, Kali, and the Buddha Mother, and all true messengers of God, Goddess, all ascended and cosmic beings, legions of angels and archangels, Elohim, Buddhas, and Bodhisattvas of heaven, gnomes, undying souls, and salamanders, I pray. Balance the flirt loose in me. 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 Blaze the sacred fire within. 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 Expand the light throughout my form. 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 Intensify my aura now. Intensify my aura now. Intensify my aura now. Intensify my aura now. Five crystal rays through me now flow. 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 Ascension light now rise and glow. Ascension light now rise and grow. Ascension light now rise and glow. Ascension light now rise and glow. Now seal my being in purity. Now seal my being in holy love. Now seal my being in wisdom's fire. Now seal my being in God's own will. In the fullness of your cosmic joy, we accept this prayer manifest here and now with full love, wisdom, and power anchored in the earth, air, fire, water, and ether, intangibly manifest in our lives and in the lives of all evolutions of light throughout the cosmos. So be it, and so it is, and we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this.
We're going to call on Archangel Michael. We celebrate his um, holy day on the 29th of September, which is the full moon. So we're going to call in that first ray energy, that sapphire blue, to fill us and surround us, asking for his protection and his perfection. As we say, beloved presence of God, goddess, I am in me. And in every son and daughter of God, goddess, beloved Archangel Michael, and your legions of power and protection come forth now. Blessed ones encapsulate every person evolving on earth in your invincible circle of white lightning, the ring path not of God's first cause of perfection. Prevent anything that is not of the light from interfering with our service to the light into our divine mission to love all life free. Beloved Archangel Michael, permanently stationed, one of your mighty angels of power and protection within the aura of every person on earth. Direct these angels to use their swords of blue flame instantly. Cut us free, cut us free, cut us free. Cut us free, cut us free, cut us free. Cut us free, cut us free, cut us free from every line of force that would strive to prevent the immaculate concept of our divine plan from being fulfilled. Free us instantly from any blocks or resistance from our own lower consciousness that might try to impede the God-victorious accomplishment of our heartfelt service to humanity and the light. Cut us free, cut us free, cut us free. Cut us free, cut us free, cut us free. Cut us free, cut us free, cut us free. From every line of force that connects us with imperfection of any kind. And send your powerful blue flame to dissolve each line of force to its end. Place your cross of blue flame in front of us and back of us, on either side of us, above us and below us. And seal, seal, seal every person in your cross of blue flame and your ring path not of God's first cause of perfection now and forever. We so decree it and accept it done through the power of God, goddess I am, so be it and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. So we're going to also call in. We have the International Day of Peace. And we're calling for the abundance. We're going to call in that golden flame and ray of eternal peace and infinite abundance to flood in through and around us and every man, woman, and child and every place on the planet as we call forth for eternal peace within and without amongst all people, amongst all nations. And we call forth our abundance and financial freedom that goes with us. And we affirm, I am eternally financially free. I am invoking the golden light of God's abundance and eternal peace on behalf of myself and every man, woman, and child who is involved with establishing the patterns of perfection for the new earth in the physical plane. I know through every fiber of my being that my mother, father, God, 
and the company of heaven are accepting my money as a gift of love being given to God, goddess, and appreciation for my gift of life. I ex- expect and accept that all my money is a blessing, is blessing all life, and increasing a thousand times, a thousand fold upon its return to me. And to those who are selflessly assisting beloved Mother Earth, I know this is transpiring with the highest good of all concerned right here and right now. Moment by moment and day by day, everything I need to fulfill my divine plan is available to me through God's infinite abundance and eternal peace. The universal laws asking you shall receive and knock on the door will be opened are manifesting in my life now and forever. I revel in the buoyancy and elation of my newfound freedom and God's abundance. The company of heaven rejoices with me as I reclaim my divine birthright and accept my eternal peace in the God's supply of all good things. Through all levels of divine consciousness, I now decree I am, I am, I am the eternally sustained manifestation of God's infinite supply of money and every good thing I require to assist me in my service to the light, now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. I am, I am, I am the eternally sustained manifestation of God's infinite supply of money and every good thing I require to assist me in my service to the light now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. I am, I am, I am the eternally sustained manifestation of God's infinite supply of money and every good thing I require to assist me in my service to the light, now made manifest and sustained by holy grace. In deep love and appreciation for my glorious gift of life, I consecrate my heart and soul to be open to be the open door for the patterns of perfection from the causal body of God until the new earth is fully manifest and all life evolving here is holy, ascended, and free. It is done, and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. And we give thanks for this. We call in the emerald, the emerald flame, and to bring in, again, to support this energy of abundance, as well as the energy of truth, wholeness, balance, harmony, all of the qualities that are associated with the emerald green ray, as we call forth to expose the truth. In the name I am that I am, my beloved Holy Christ, Buddha Self, and Holy Christ, Buddha Selves of all the light bearers throughout the cosmos. Beloved Psychopia and Virginia, Archangel Michael, the great divine director, St. Germain, Lady Portia, Lord Lanto, Hilarion, 
Lady Christine, Gautama Buddha, Padre Pio, Rose of Light, Chamuel and Charity, Sirian Cusco, Lanello, Claire de Lis, K-17, Kali and all true messengers of God, Goddess, all ascended and cosmic beings, legions of angels and archangels, Elohim, Buddhists, and Bodhisattvas of heaven, gnomes, undines, sylphs, and salamanders, I pray. Virginia, Psychopia, blessed Elohim divine, all-seeing eye of emerald light upon our planet shine. Expose the truth, expose the lie now with your laser ray, so all may know the hidden plans of mortal men this day. Virginia, Psychopia, silent watchers for the earth, infuse us with God vision. Now reveal our holy worth. Expose the truth, expose the lie now with your laser ray. Transforming darkness into light, the Elohimic way. Virginia, Psychopia, fifth ray, Elohim, so bright. Arrest the spirals of darkness and infuse us with your light. Let cosmic secret service angels take command again to guarantee that truth prevails within the world of men. Virginia, Psychopia, your God vision flowing forth, piercing through the veils of mist surrounding planet Earth. I am the truth. I am God vision by your laser ray. And life shall see renewed once more a blazing bright new day. Please join me in saying, expose the truth. Expose the truth. Expose the truth. Expose the truth. Expose the lie. Expose the lie. Expose the lie. Expose the lie. Working with that emerald flame. We call in beloved Hilarion. The again it's the ray of truth. It is the ray thus it is the ray of healing and harmony and wholeness and balance because that is our true nature and we're calling that forth now. O God of truth, I am in all. For understanding now I call to see thee in thy fullness, Lord. Beloved, behold, is living truth adored. I am aware by reason pure that only God can make secure the lifetime search for heaven's law that enters, filling hearts with awe. Come now and help help me, truth enshrine. All understanding now is mine. Whene'er I open wide the door, no man can shut forevermore. O blazing light of living truth, thou fountainhead of lasting youth, come pour thy radiance through my mind until in peace at last I find that God's own spirit manifest is ever and alone the best and hold each one in right secure to understand the law is pure. That God's own law is truth alone, for every error does atone, and lifts all to the purest state, where silent watchers watch and wait. To vast ascended master youth, with blessed hilarion's ray of truth. 
palace Athena, thy truth be our scepter of authority. So we ask for special dispensations for all of the youth of this planet to be blazed through, and every man, woman, and child, to be blazed through with this ray of truth to know who they truly are and to receive the healing and to bring forth divine dispensations for all healers and bring forth now new healing and scientific discoveries as we ask for the sacred dispensation of beloved Hilarion. I call forward to beloved Hilarion for an activation and illumination of the new healing modalities in my entire energy matrix now. So be it. I call forward to beloved Hilarion for an activation and illumination of the new healing modalities in my entire energy matrix now. So be it. I call forward to beloved Hilarion for an activation and illumination of the new healing modalities in my entire energy matrix now. So be it. So, beloved Hilarion, we ask you to assist us to embody all the qualities of the fifth ray. As we say, in the name of God, Goddess, I am that I am, and in the name of the Christ within me, I call on beloved Hilarion. Beloved Hilarion, I ask you to tutor me on the fifth ray and to help me to embody the qualities of truth, healing, vision, abundance, wholeness, constancy, gratitude, and harmony. Help me balance the energy of my third eye chakra and to pursue the appropriate avenues from my mental and physical well-being and healing. Help me to rise above all tendency to judge others to judge by the outer appearance and instead to hold the vision for the wholeness and perfection of all. So be it and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath as we ask for the transformation of the physical body calling in the emerald ray with the violet ray of limitless healing and transmutation as we affirm the perfection of our physical form now. Transform and perfect our physical bodies now by the power of Christ and the purifying flame. Transform and perfect our physical brain now by the power of Christ and the purifying flames. Transform and perfect our physical sight now by the power of Christ and the purifying flames. Transform and perfect our physical hearing now by the power of Christ and the purifying flames. Transform and perfect our cardiovascular health now by the power of Christ and the purifying flames. Transform and perfect our physical heart now by the power of Christ and the purifying flames. Transform and perfect our inner organs now by the power of Christ and the purifying flames. Transform and perfect our bone structure now 
by the power of Christ and the purifying flames. Transform and perfect our skin and hair now by the power of Christ and the purifying flames. Transform and perfect our physical limbs now by the power of Christ and the purifying flames. Transform and perfect our central nervous system now by the power of Christ and the purifying flames. Transform and perfect our body metabolism now by the power of Christ and the purifying flames. Transform and perfect our endocrine system now by the power of Christ and the purifying flames. Transform and perfect our immune system now by the power of Christ and the purifying flames. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. And finally, we invoke for this nation and for all nations, divine government, as we decree. As I breathe in and out deeply and rhythmically, I absorb every holy breath into the divinity of my heart flame. With every in-breath, I am cleansing the cells, molecules, atoms, and electrons of my physical, etheric, mental, and emotional body. With every out-breath, I am expanding my holy breath into the physical plane of Earth to bless all life. As I continue focusing my attention on my in-breath and out-breath, I am lifted into the full embrace of my mighty I Am Presence and every aspect of my God, Goddess Presence. Within the radiance of this resplendent light, I surrender my lower human consciousness to the perfection of my mighty I Am. In this higher level of divine consciousness, I know I am one with the divine heart and mind of God, Goddess. I am also one with every man, woman, and child on earth. Now, within the embrace of humanity's unified heart flames, I affirm as one voice, one breath, and one consciousness of pure divine love. I am a beloved child of God, Goddess. And all that my mother, father, God, have is mine. As a surrogate serving on behalf of all humanity, I invoke the I am presence of every person to expand the threefold flame once again within their heart. I kneel in recognition of the light of the cosmos and I draw forth the flames representing the threefold activity of life as exemplified in the by the Holy Trinity in the threefold flame pulsating in every person's heart. I invoke the blue flame which represents the divine power of my Father God. I invoke the pink flame, which represents the comprehensive divine love of my mother God, the Holy Spirit. I invoke the yellow-gold flame, which represents the divine enlightenment and unity consciousness of the sons and daughters of God. Beloved Mother, Father, God, come now and assert your rightful authority within me and within all of humanity. Show us how to reverently and humbly express this perfectly balanced activity of power, love, and unity consciousness daily and hourly in our lives. Now within the divine balance of my heart flame, I decree, O Supreme Light, I acknowledge you in all life. I give gratitude to the glorious cosmic galactic and ascended beings as I invoke them 
and the great angelic host to amplify the energy which I am now releasing to assist with the fulfillment of the divine plan for manifesting divine government. May that light expand and expand as it travels throughout the universe, ever widening the borders of the kingdom of heaven on earth in fulfillment of God's will. Beloved presence of God, the source of all that is, I love and adore you. I acknowledge you as the owner and giver of my life, my intelligence, my substance, my all. Seal me in the power, love, and unity consciousness of my threefold thing. Blaze your light and love before me so I may always walk the path of light. Guard and protect me. Guide and direct me. Give me the illumination of the truth that will set me free. Help me to be your divine love in action at all times. Sustain your love through me to bless all life I contact. I dedicate this activity of light to the manifestation of divine government, a government of the I am presence, by the I am presence, for the I am presence of every person on earth. I now specifically invoke the I am presence of every person who is now or ever will be associated with the governments of the earth. Dear ones, I ask that you record in their consciousness, in their conscious mind and through their heart flame, the portion of the divine plan for which they are or will be responsible. Reveal through the flame of illumined truth the divine purpose and plan for each of the positions they will hold and give each person the spiritual courage and desire to fulfill that plan perfectly. Now, beloved legions of light, blaze the cosmic flame of God's will through each of these souls and clear away any destructive activity of their own free will, which might rush in to try and impede their conscious desire to do God's will. Help them to remain obedient to the laws of harmony and to be God, goddess, in action at all times. Seal all governmental positions individually and collectively in the radiance of God's will. I now invoke the legions of light throughout infinity to direct the full gathered momentum of loving and illumined obedience to God's will into the thoughts, words, actions, and feelings of all people who are or will be associated with the governments of the world at national, state, and local levels. And with that, we include all voters. Through the power and presence of my mother, father, God, I decree the divine government shall manifest now and that all humanity shall follow the will of God in fulfilling the divine plan for this blessed planet and all of her life. So be it and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. And we are asked to decree victory is ours in love governing this planet. Victory is ours in love governing this planet. Victory is ours in love governing this planet, and so it is. We ask for all of this work to be sealed, maintained, and sustained through this Equinox weekend and beyond, through this year and through the glorious years of our new golden age. Thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone, for participating in these activities of light.
I invite you to join us on Sundays and Mondays, although tomorrow is the exception. (laughs) Tomorrow there is no Ascension call on the 24th. But we will be there this Monday, the 25th. So please join us Monday and every Sunday and Monday after that for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls to do our divine service work, to truly take our time to bring heaven on earth. We um, begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have about 25 minutes of greetings. We have um, about a 20-minute update from Taran Rama at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time. We start our work in earnest doing our meditations, our invocations, our activations, our decrees to really anchor heaven on earth. And we know that with every person that joins us, the power expands exponentially. We'd love to know that you've called in and where you're calling from and that you've heard about us from the Saturday program. So let me give you that teleconference line number. The main number that we're using is 480-660-2224. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. We have some wonderful um, updates for the full moon coming up on Monday's call. And again, we'll be doing lots of uh, decree work for um, our balance and harmony and peace and everything that heaven constitutes. So please join us if you need. We, there's all kinds of phone numbers. We have local numbers. We have international numbers. You can get on through the Internet. There is an app, so please contact me for that additional information. Email me at Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. And have a glorious, glorious week, a glorious autumn, or if you're calling from the other hemisphere, a magnificent spring. But may magic and miracles fill every moment. Uh, I love you, I bless you, and... Um, we'll see you on Monday night. Thank you for, for joining us here. And we're going to thank Taran Rama for their divine service as well. And thank Rainbow for her divine service. She's been a, a great help to me as well as to Taran Rama over these all these years. So with love and gratitude, I pass the talking stick filled with all of the amazing frequencies frequencies that we've worked with and all of the elemental energies that are available to us at this transformational time and this equinox time and um, just lots and lots of love goes with us. I pass the talking stick, Greenberg. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl, and thank you for your divine service as well. So nice to have you back. (laughs) So thank you. And I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program, and we also support Tara and Rama with their needs. So 
that's what keeps us together each week, and this is how we do it. Um, well, first, what we need for BBS Radio this week is uh, $868.50, which is down from last night. So somebody contributed. Thank you very much for that contribution. And it might, might have been more than one. So <laughs> not to leave anybody out. So that, but that's what it takes. It takes each, each one of us to contribute a little bit to get that bill down to a, where it should be at $355 a week. So, um, let's get caught up. We're working with September now and, and that's all this bill is a September bill. So we are catching up. Well, we're also including $50 extra to cover February that needs to be paid by the end of December. So we just have a few months to catch up, and this is how we're doing it. Uh, each week, as we can pay a little bit more, then we can get caught up. But we need to catch up to where we are. So um, let's go into our heart space, see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. And there on the homepage, you see the schedule for Radio Station 1 and Radio Station 2. Click on Radio Station 2 for this program, and you'll see it listed at the 3.30 hour on Saturday. And that is Central Time that we're working with. So uh, you'll find it at the 3.30 hour as the true history, history, and the Sarah and our galactic origins with Tara and Rama. As you click on that icon there, that'll take you directly to our account. We have two other places where you can contribute for the Friday and Thursday shows. The Thursday show is a night at the round table with the panel. It's on BBS Radio Station 1 at the 8 o'clock hour. And on, you just click on the icon there, and that'll take you to our account. And then on Friday, the hard news with Tara and Rama on Friday night. And that's also on Radio Station 1 at the 8 o'clock hour. So you'll find that icon there listing. And as you click on the icon, it will take you to our account. We can make that donation. So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. We certainly enjoy what every, everything that um, Tara and Rama have to offer. And we also enjoy the services of VBS Radio. And we're grateful for their patience as we gather the funds to make it happen. And so let's get caught up. That's our goal right now. And um, thank you for taking that action again. So much gratitude. And as you pay it forward, you know you receive blessings many-fold in return. So, um, yeah, it's a good thing to do. And it always works. So lots of blessings coming all around. It's a win-win. And uh, so much gratitude for all of you in all the ways you show up in your lives. And this is a good way to do it. So thank you for taking that action. We're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And they need $200 each week for their living expenses. And they have a special urgency for needing gas money and cat food and needing to buy cat food at this point. So as we can uh, be prompt about making those contributions to Tara and Rama, that will assist them in a good way. Uh, let's see, here's how we do it. We, we want to access the PayPal account for Rainbow Roundtable. And the rainbowroundtable.net is the 
website. So you can just go there, rainbowrackstable.net, and you'll see a menu grid on the home page. Click on that menu grid, and you'll see the donate link near the bottom of that list. And there's a lot on that menu, and there's a lot of uh, explanation of what NASAR is and the history of it and um, all the other activities that happen through that. So um, it's a good way to get information. Anyway, as you click on that menu grid <laughs> and you click on the donate link, it'll take you directly to the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account where you can make a donation in any amount on PayPal, and as you want to access the funds option, you want to put in the email for the Rainbow Roundtable on that site. That email address, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999949, at hotmail.com. And I'll say it again, Koran, 9999, at hotmail.com. And as you put that into the, um, the donation place for gifting the money, uh, it will automatically just eliminate the commercial charges. And either way, it's perfect. We're grateful for all your contributions. So much gratitude for um, taking care of Tara and Rama in a good way and re respecting what they bring forward and respecting ourselves uh, as we do so. So lots of gratitude for all of you. Uh, as we're sending something to Tara and Rama, it's good to send Rama an email and let him know what you sent and when you sent it. In that email address for Rama, Koran999 at Comcast.net. So there you go. It's K-O-R-A-N 999-39 at Comcast.net. And so thank you for communicating that way with Rama. And then also, if you need it, the mailing address is as follows. Ram, R-A-M-D, Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280. And that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, and the zip code is 87567. And I'll say it again, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, all the information. And so much gratitude for paying it forward and assisting Tara and Rama. They are not able to get jobs and get benefits and do things in the normal way so that they stay protected from the system. And um, thank you for understanding that and making that extra effort to make sure that they they have what they need. And again, they need gas money and cat food money ASAP. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking that action. We're so grateful for each and every one of you. So much gratitude. So with that, I'm going to pass this talking stick. And it's beautiful talking stick with all of those uh, rays that we, we brought up in the prayer. And all of the healing gems are there, and all the healing rays, and all of the 
all the angels and and uh, masters and lots of uh, and it's, it's an equinox talking stick, and so it's equally dark and light. <laughs> so, and it has all kinds of harvest going on. This is a harvest festival, the middle harvest festival. We had the first one on August, beginning of August. This is the second one, the beginning of fall. Uh, as we we know it in this culture, and then the last one will be at the uh, the one the Halloween ceremony that we practice at the end of the month of October and beginning of November. So this harvest festival is coming with a whole lot of harvest with it. So oh, I'm, <laughs> and I've seen you know cornucopia of baskets with. Lots of harvest vegetables. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. And we got that Excalibur sort of truth, and we got dragon energy and that dragon fire, and we got unicorn magic going on and all kinds of fairies and feathers and little people. So it's loaded. Greetings, Tara and Rama. Here it comes. Greetings. Thank you. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, Cheryl. Happy Mabon. Tell everybody what that means. It's the Autumn Equinox Festival. And the third one is Samhain, Halloween. So, um, so they don't do it on every, like, Equinox, like there's a Only. spring equinox too. Yes, they do. Every and they call that Mabon too? No, that's um different one. Oh, I forget the name. So are those Belting. coming from the Middle East or where? No, Western Hemisphere. Oh, there's another name for it. Okay, there's, there's all things... I mean, I'm just thinking about the southern hemisphere now. It's spring. Spring, yeah. And it looks like it's going to rain here. <laughs> it's gotten in the 70s now. It's just that Texas is still up there. 96, 94. I think there's a 90. Nine in there. Yeah, Dallas is 99. It'll settle down. <sighs> I am enjoying this cooler weather, huh, Rama? Yeah. You're a cooler weather person. Yes. He even likes it when it's ice cold and I ice like snow. Well, it can be a halfway decent temperature and snow. Yes. Okay, everybody, we're going to jump in real quick. All the shenanigans going on in politics, I'm not going to start. Well, just It's a week and they, that the Republicans have to decide whether they're going to shut the government down. And we'll, Place of violent fire. 
McCarthy swears at a stack of bubbles, vitals, this ain't going to happen, but we'll see, won't we? The thing that could change that is let's uh, have a declaration of world peace. Something could happen that way. Yeah, this equinox, this full moon in Aries. I mean, there's a lot of fighting going on still. I'm just hoping that as we could have a flash, people could change their darn minds. I mean, I don't think the people like this at all. You know, say, I got it. Yeah. People don't want to go around shooting each other. It's not normal. Hmm. Okay, so we're going to start with a little piece by, it's a 30-second little blurb, and Teresa Ballard is, is going to say something about creative, coherent energy centers. So let's do this. Here we go. These energy centers are the key areas of focus for bringing coherence within the body. And so these middle pillar, these energy centers are really vital when it comes to harnessing, focusing, directing our will, which affects things in the quantum field. Um, so we can relate these states on the middle pillar, these three energy centers to different levels of consciousness. You have within your mind your ability to focus intent, intention. You have within your heart, you have love, compassion, empathy, altruism, right? And those states of consciousness. And you have within your gut, you have that gut instinct. And these energy centers are the key areas of focus for bringing coherence within the body. And so these... That's it. Oh, it started over. If you keep starting it over. Yeah, I just, uh, yes. Okay, so now we're going to play because it's the equinox. It's really the equinox today, everybody, on the 23rd. That's unusual that it's later, we would say. Okay, so just a moment, Chito, here. Um,. So, just wanted to give the exact timing. All right. The exact moment, Tito, I think it's early in the morning. Sun enters Libra. At 2.50 a.m., that's right, 2.50 a.m. in the morning, that's Eastern Time. Okay, so Central Time would be 1.50 and Mountain Time would be, okay, then it would be uh, yesterday, it would be 12.50, no, 12.50. And then the Pacific Time would be the night before, 11.50. So here we go, let's do this. This is how long, Rama? Hour and 34 minutes. Tell everybody a little louder what's the call. We are receiving new sacred knowledge through the portal of the equinox. Okay, let's listen carefully. Here it goes. How many minutes? Hour and 34. All right, here we go.
everyone. Welcome, 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 and happy Equinox. The portal has been opened, and we are feeling the incredible, beautiful energies coming through. My guest today is Patricia Diane Cotal-Robos, who is with the World Congress on Illumination and ERAofPeace.org. So many of us know her as a true beacon of light on our ascension journey, and we're so pleased to have Patricia with us today. Welcome, Patricia. Hello. Well, thank you, Loren. Welcome, everybody. It's wonderful to be able to share with you on this really special and powerful day. Yes, yes, yes. It is incredible. There are solar flares. There are raises in the Schumann frequency. We as humans share that same Schumann resonance, 7.8 hertz with the planet. And the Schumann resonance has been pretty steady at about 14 hertz, but then also spiking even well over 100. And that's pretty amazing for us as humans that are also like tuning forks with that resonance. As we begin our conversation today, do you want to share anything about the wisdom you know about these frequencies and how they may be affecting us? Well, as we know, and everybody knows at some level, we're moving through this unprecedented shift of energy, vibration, and consciousness. And now we have reached a place vibrating at a physical level through our earthly bodies and our consciousness is rising and awakening as well. But this sacred knowledge that's going to be shared during this summit with this beautiful information on the light body and our DNA that's coming through is literally coming through every open door. And the important thing to know is we don't have to accept and understand and know every facet of what everybody is saying. What we need to do is listen to all of it as food for thought and see how it resonates in our heart. And the beings of lights have been number of people awakening and focusing on the light and working with bringing the sacred knowledge of this transfiguration that we're going through, that we are legion and If one person isn't saying it in a way that you can relate to, there's many others out there with different slight interpretations and different variations, different tools and techniques to assist us with this process. And so if something doesn't resonate with anything that I'm saying or that any of us are saying, we need to just kind of put it on the back burner and let it resonate and see how we feel about it. And the company of heaven has assured us that if it is something that we need to know that will accelerate our ascension process, even if it doesn't resonate at this moment, the universe will keep presenting that to us over and over again until we finally grasp the concept of it and let it in. So these energies are not happening by chance. They're happening because there are legions of us for decades that have been working incrementally to raise the frequency of vibration till we could get to this particular point. And so this is where we are now. And even at the World Congress on Illumination last year, the major call coming forth from the company of heaven was a generational shifting changing of the guard so that the young people, the millennials, Gen Z, the people that are coming in that have been holding these 
uh, patterns in their genetic codes in inner levels and are now bringing them in are awakening as well. So this is a wondrous time. And I know sometimes that seems confusing when we see all of the chaos, but we must remember that the light of God is increasing on earth. And when that occurs, it enters the core of purity and everything that exists in the physical plane and anything that doesn't resonate with the light is being pushed to the surface. So we easily see the garbage coming up. What we don't see as easily is the incredible light pushing it up. So this is really a powerful opportunity. And I'm delighted that you've chosen to join with us. And I just want to mention, as Lorraine has already shared in her uh, information about this, is that this entire conference is recorded in the eternal moment of now. So no matter when you have an opportunity, whether you're uh, able to watch it live or whether you're tuning in later, that you will receive the same connection with the heavenly realms and the infinite light that's flowing through the equinox portal with each presentation. Beautiful. That is where we go quantum and timeless because this wisdom is evergreen. It is always the truth and it is always present and we just tune in and tap into it and it feels so wonderful. I love what you shared about um, so much information out there right now, so much information that we could be overwhelmed by it. And it seems that this is really a lesson for all of us to tune inward so deeply that we know we can discern through our heart resonance what feels right, what feels like the truth. So how can we as light workers raise ourselves above the fray of duality to have a perspective where we can see, where we can let all the various thought forms out there have their place, but tune inward so deeply that we understand what is real. Because love is real. Love is all there is. So really, discerning how to tune into that is is really the key. And our heart's wisdom. Your thoughts on this? Yes. They, you know, the statement we're so familiar with we usually unfortunately shorten it to know that i mean the truth will set you free but the statement is truly know the truth and the truth will set you free so the sacred knowledge pouring forth from the heavenly realms which is available through the divinity in each and every one of our heart flames by just invoking God's flame of illumined truth and clarity and understanding. We can start understanding. And I think when we know that truth, it makes it so much easier for us to grasp the magnitude of what is happening. I mean, we hear the words like we're transfiguring our earthly bodies from carbon-based planetary cells into fifth-dimensional crystalline-based solar light cells. Well, What in the world does that mean? We can learn about carbon and we can learn about crystals and we can learn about those kind of shifts. But but what does it really mean on a tangible level? And one of the things it means is that 
all of the maladies existing in our earthly bodies, the human miscreations such as aging and disease and all of the dysfunction and chemical imbalance and all of everything that's less than God's infinite perfection is a human miscreation. And none of those karmic patterns can exist in the fifth dimensional crystalline light bodies. Those bodies transcend that. So what the beings of light have asked me to do today is just to, as we prepare for this magnificent summit, to prepare and to have the basic knowledge of our earthly bodies and what this means and the shift, because then as we hear about the light bodies and about the activations within our DNA, we'll comprehend what that means. First and foremost, what they want us to understand is that all of the maladies and human miscreations, every form of pain or suffering that's taking place in our earthly bodies is a human miscreation that was never part of God's divine plan. And God's original divine plan, which uh, occurred prior to our fall from grace, which took place eons ago, the original divine plan was that we would come into a third dimensional reality and we would be given by the elemental kingdom earthly bodies that would serve as our vehicle, our car, to navigate around in the physical plane. And we would learn through these vehicles and using our creative faculties of thought and feeling and our free will, we would learn how to become co-creators with our Father Mother God. Well, our Father Mother God invoked the directors of the elements. There are really three life waves that are evolving on Earth. There's the human kingdom, the sons and daughters of God with our I am presence. There's the angelic kingdom, which we're very aware of. And there's also the elemental kingdom, which is the uh, unformed primal light substance, the earth, the air, the water, the fire, and the ethers that are created by the builders of form who are the mighty Elohim and the directors of the elements and all of the divine intelligent beings that manifest and sustain these elements that are creating our earthly bodies. And they were asked to create vehicles for us. So I think most of us have heard the terminology of physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies. Well, these bodies are all related to the various elements And they were given to us initially to serve in different ways. Our physical body is this vehicle that we're very aware of and we navigate around in the physical plane. We also have our etheric body. And our etheric body is twofold. Our physical body is associated with the earth element. Our etheric body is associated with both the air element and the ether element. And the air element is that part of us that works with the sacred breath and the holy breath and all of the uh, oxygen that we need in our body, the physical manifestation of our earthly body. And the ether part of our etheric body is known as the seat of all memory. 
and every thought, word, action, or feeling we express passes through the divinity of our heart on electromagnetic currents of light into the world. And those energies, the consciousness and the uh, frame of mind and feelings and everything associated with those thoughts and feelings is recorded in this etheric body. And those ethers are taken with us lifetime after lifetime. We probably all heard in one way or another about the Akashic records of the earth. And we know that that's where everything that's ever occurred since Mother Earth was breathed forth from the solar logos in our system as a manifest planet. Everything that occurs there is recorded in our etheric, in the Akashic records. Well, these ethers in our etheric body is like our personal Akashic records. And that comes with us lifetime after lifetime. So those etheric records and memories are normally at a subconscious level, but they're contained in our etheric records and they come up when we need to learn about them. Then we also have the mental body and the mental body is our mind and our link with the divine mind of God. And there's always this discussion at a scientific level, whether the mental body and the brain are one in the same or if they're two different things. And the beings of light want us to understand the brain and the mind, our mental body, are two different things. Our mental body is always connected with the divine mind of God. It's always whole and complete. Our physical brain structure is the instrument our mental body uses to transmit thoughts into the physical plane. And our physical brain structure can be damaged, it can be blocked, we can have plaque and experience Alzheimer's, we can have chemical imbalances and experience all kind of um, mental illness and those kinds of things, or brain damage, or even be in vegetative comas where it looks as though we're not awake or conscious at all because the physical brain isn't capable of transmitting that thought. But what the beings of light want us to understand is the mental body is always whole and complete, observing and knowing everything that's going on in the outer world. All of that is being recorded in the etheric body. So even if it looks like that person isn't really able to grow or learn or whatever in the physical plane, It's just not true. They are learning, they're growing, and they take that learning experience with them into the inner realms after they leave the physical plane, and it's available in their etheric records for future learning. Then in addition to that, the mental body is associated with the fire element. Then in addition to that is our emotional body. And our emotional body is the largest vehicle that we have. It extends several feet in every direction. 80% of all of our life force energies are released through our emotions and our feelings. It is associated with the water element. And that's why the water is so important. 80% of the earth is water. 80% of our physical bodies, 80% of our emotional bodies are all associated with the water element in addition to the ether and the fire elements as well. 
So those four vehicles were always perfect. And in our DNA, we had originally 12 strands of DNA. And those 12 strands of DNA functioned as a very elaborate fiber optic communication system. We were able to openly communicate and be consciously aware of our I am presence of the company of heaven, working, walking and talking with the angels and the elemental beings. That was always supposed to be part of our guidance and our teachers and our learning experience. And our DNA was not a stagnant, uh, pre-planned frequency as many scientists have thought. It is a shimmering waveform of light that is affected by um, vibrations, electromagnetic fields, all of these solar flares and things that we've been experiencing the last few days, all of the shifts of energy, vibration, and consciousness, as well as our thoughts and feelings, our creative faculties, and our emotions. And there was a time... uh prior to our choice to fall from grace, when our father, mother, God worked with the elemental kingdom and the elemental kingdom agreed to create vortices of light within these four earthly bodies that specifically would replenish, rejuvenate, sustain, replace, and energize these four earthly bodies. So we would never be depleted or tired or or worn out or ill or anything like that. But those vehicles would be vibrantly healthy, eternally youthful, perfect form and function, radiant beauty. And the reason was our Father, Mother, God wanted us to navigate around in this physical plane and be able to use our creative faculties of thought and feeling to be co-creators without being distracted with having to focus and take care of our earthly bodies. Well, after our fall from grace, which occurred when we made the conscious decision to begin using these creative faculties in ways that were not based in love, we began falling into denser and denser frequencies of vibration. And these elemental vortices that we had One of them was above our head, and that was the ether vortex. The one in the area of our throat was the air vortex. The one near our sternum was the fire vortex. The one near the base of our spine was the water vortex. And the one between our feet was the earth vortex. And these were spinning force fields of light that consistently, with every breath, to win more electronic light substance and sustained these bodies. When we began misqualifying our thoughts, words, actions, and feelings, we began sinking into denser and denser frequencies of vibration to the point where actually these elemental vortices became almost dormant because to prevent us from misqualifying into these gross mutations, huge amounts of our Father, Mother, God's light and our life force. Our 12 strands of DNA short-circuited 
into the double helix DNA that our scientists are able to study now. This caused our crown chakra of enlightenment and these fiber optic strands of our DNA that we communicated with our I am presence in the company of heaven to short circuit so that we lost contact and awareness with that energy. So now what's been happening for several decades is that light workers around the world have been given guidance from the company of heaven that have incrementally raised the frequency of vibration of our earthly bodies so that we could withstand more light. And Era of Peace and our archives and our newsletters and our books and all of the information we've shared over all of these years has the step-by-step events that took place. But what's important for us to understand now is, is that miracles have happened. We have ascended off the wheel of karma onto the back onto the spiral of evolution. We have moved through the fourth dimension into the initial impulses of the fifth dimension. We've now even aligned with our solar spine and our solar reality as we move into these higher crystalline energies, which are solar light energies. You know, when you take a beautiful ray of sunlight and put it through a prism, a crystalline prism, it divides into the pigment octave of color, which is the colors of the rainbow. And in our third dimensional vehicle, our 12 solar spine, our 12-fold solar spine and chakras, that light from the 12 solar rays projected through the prism was transferred from solar crystalline light into the pigment octave of color. That's why we had seven chakras in the spectrum of the rainbow at that time. But now we've moved into our fifth dimensional solar spine and our 12 solar chakras are being activated. And what the beings of light are really encouraging us to understand is the magnitude of what has happened with these shifts that are taking place in our bodies. And one of them, and there's there's so much misinformation, so much disinformation, so much confusion about what happened with the pandemic and during covid I just want to share with you and the beings of light want you to focus on this because anything that's taking place is multidimensional and multifaceted. In January of 2020, the beings of light told us that we have moved into a new quantum shift in this decade. And the next 10 years, 2020 to 2030, we would change the course of history for this planet. We would reverse the adverse effects of our fall. We would activate the latent abilities that have been dormant within our DNA. And the beings of light would be able to intervene to assist us in ways that have never before been attempted in any system of worlds. Well, we had no idea what that meant in January when we were being told that, but we shared that information at the time. Within a matter of weeks, we started experiencing 
the pandemic. And what took place in addition to no matter what you think about it, no matter what your information is, no matter what you understand, what the beings of light want us to know, that never in all creation has anything happening in the outer world caused a planetary pause that just forced the entire globe, great majorities of people all over the world, to just stop doing what they were doing. Because this was a pandemic, it also inspired billions of souls to begin invoking healing, invoking love and light, opening their hearts, feeling compassion for the loved ones and what was people were going through with the pandemic, focusing on the breath because this was a, a respiratory thing that was taking place, focusing on the oneness and how we need each other and what took place with all the essential workers and the sacrifices that they made to sustain us and to help us move collectively. This created a shift of consciousness that raised our vibration, that allowed the I am presence of every man, woman, and child to work with the company of heaven in ways that allowed us to clear what the beings of light have referred to as we started misqualifying this energy and fell into these dense frequencies and started manifesting diseases and aging and all of these things. We also started encoding that fragmented double strand of DNA with what the beings of light referred to as enslavement codes so that lifetime after lifetime, we were bringing these codes into our earthly bodies that programmed us into believing that aging was a natural process of life, that life is hard in the outer world, that we have to struggle, that the body's going to fall apart, that disease is normal, and all of these uh, erroneous things. So during those stages of the pandemic, we were given the opportunity to transmute the enslavement codes in our DNA and at that time, our new 12 solar strands of DNA had been activated and we were able to activate the divinity codes in our DNA, which now are beginning to awaken. And all of this summit is talking about activating and connecting with this DNA within us, the latent abilities, the sacred knowledge. It also, with the fall, what we did through this distorted DNA and belief systems and having lost the guidance from the heavenly realms, is we created a karmic body template. This sustained and supported this idea that the aging and degeneration and failure of our earthly bodies is a natural part of what happens. We also started believing that our physical body is all that we are and we've only been here one time and that that physical, uh, this physical lifetime is 
all we know so that we have no consciousness of the magnitude of who we are and why we are here. This shift allowed our I am presence to, after this shift took place, and when I say it took place within us, what that means is that we, through this collective consciousness, this planetary pause where we had to just stop and we had to start focusing on healing, compassion, love, and oneness, we reached a critical mass that allowed the enslavement codes to be transmuted into light. These are the wounds within our DNA and replaced with divinity codes, which are vibrating with fifth dimensional crystalline solar light divine potential. And we transmuted our karmic body template into the divine body template, the fifth dimensional crystalline solar body template that will sustain our light bodies and these new vehicles. So what we are being asked to do today, we have recently, within this past year, ascended through the portal of our solar frequencies. This is why we're having so many solar flares and so much wonderful solar energies. What's actually happening, and we don't have to try to comprehend this as the moment, but with the shift of the ages, everything moves forward into the next stage of its evolutionary process. So this means that the earth is becoming a sun. So when we talk about the solar realities, and there are beings living on the sun and existing on the sun, but they're vibrating at frequencies of light that aren't this third-dimensional carbon-based body that would be transfigured into a crispy critter who tried to, to live on the sun. We are vibrating at a higher frequency of light that we will co-create. That's what our crystalline light bodies are. You know, when people went through the near-death experience and they experienced or when our loved ones go through the process that we call death, whenever people have experience with the loved ones on the other side or their own experience of being there through the near-death process, they come back with the awareness that in that frequency that we think of as the heavenly realms, our loved ones, no matter what their physical body condition was when they left the physical plane, they are vibrating in their prime. They are vibrantly healthy. They are beautiful. They are living in peace, beautiful environments. Whatever they need, they manifest by invoking the light of God and the elemental kingdom, working with the unformed light to manifest whatever they want in their physical planes. All of the prophecies have told us that. Even in the new heaven and the new earth, there'll be no aging and disease, no poverty, no war, all those things. What we thought of that also is the heavenly realms. Well, prior to the initial impulse of the shift of the ages, which took place December 21st and 22nd during that solstice in 2012, that fifth dimension, that experience where our loved ones were was the fifth dimension with the shift they have now ascended into the sixth dimension 
and we are moving into that fifth dimension. And we are taking the earth and all life with us. And in order to do that, we have to, in increments, assimilate the cells and the energy and the light in our earthly bodies so that we can withstand these higher frequencies of energy. And that's what all of this summit is about, various ways to become our solar light body. And we do this by invoking the light. So today we are going to be given an activity of light by the beings of light. And they've given us this, the elemental vortices within us are no longer dormant because they've been giving us incremental awakenings, recalibrations. Today, this recalibration is going to be moving us in so that these elemental vortices are receiving pure fifth dimensional crystalline solar light. Now, just this is information, just as food for thought. You don't have to remember all of this, but it's so important to understand this is part of transcending the chaos in the outer world that Loen it was asking about, is to understand our bodies. I mean, we hear from science that we have approximately 50 trillion cells, and every one of those cells has approximately, every one of those 50 trillion cells has approximately 100 trillion atoms and subatomic particles and waves. And, you know, we hear the word trillion. We mostly focus on it when we're hearing about the money that government is spending and that kind of thing. But just to have us grasp this, and the reason I want us to grasp this is because at the core of every single cell, every single atomic and subatomic particle, is what is known as the core of purity. And it's a frequency of vibration that is the immaculate concept of the full divine potential of that facet of life that was breathed forth from the heart of God. The immaculate concept of the divine potential, whether we're talking about a subatomic particle or whether we're talking about cells in our earthly bodies or the divinity within our heart flame, that level of perfection from God cannot be contaminated. So what has happened is that that purity, that perfection has been cloaked with these frequencies of discord that vibrate with degeneration and aging or hate and distortion or war, or all of those human miscreations, and it has blocked the light. So what is happening now with these activations is as this light comes in, it's entering the core of purity and everything, and it's casting off into the violet flame and the flames of healing and the flames of immaculate concept, the discordant frequencies that are being transmuted back into light. Now, when we talk about a trillion, you know, the thing that registers in me because it helps me comprehend the magnitude of what this is, a trillion dollars 
is a million dollars a day for 3,000 years. Isn't that shocking? <laughs> and every subatomic particle, are, there's 50 trillion cells in our bodies that have a core of purity in them that is being activated by the elemental vortices that we are now today going to move these elemental vortices into solar frequencies, which is going to greatly assist in the transfiguration and the divine alchemy taking place at a cellular level within our bodies. Every one of those 50 trillion cells has a hundred trillion atoms and atomic and subatomic particles of life. So I want you to think of that when you work with the elemental kingdom and think of that when you are working with this understanding of the elemental vortices, that when you breathe this crystalline solar light through the elemental vortices, the gift that is happening today, not by chance, but because light workers around the world have co-created the critical mass that is allowing this to happen. The gift that is happening today is that these elemental vortices within us are being accelerated, recalibrated to a frequency that can now withstand the highest frequency of fifth dimensional crystalline solar light that cosmic law will allow. And that'll be unique and individual for each of us, depending on where we are and, and our divine alchemy and what our process is. But it is the maximum that each of us can withstand at this moment. And that is the gift that is going to help assist us. Part of what has happened is that the earth has ascended into her frequencies and Mother Earth and all humanity are pulsating through the different portals of suns beyond suns beyond suns. All this energy is coming through that directly from the very heart of God. And these frequencies are allowing the divine alchemy to be accelerated. So I have this activation and I think that we'll go ahead while we're all focusing in this moment and do the activation and then we'll have time for discussion, I think, and some some questions afterwards, if that's all right with you, Loretta. Yes, and I just want to say I am not the only one in tears. You have moved us to a frequency of great divine light. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you so much. We're ready. You're welcome. Thank you. So just breathe in deeply and go within to the divinity of your heart flame. Listen to these words, knowing your I am presence is taking full dominion of your thoughts, words, actions, and feelings, and your physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies. The divine intelligence within your earthly bodies is your body elemental 
and the being associated with the elemental kingdom that is holding the immaculate concept for this transfiguration and the transfiguration from carbon-based to your crystalline solar light bodies is your silent watcher. We have entered the gateway of the September equinox for 2023. The equinox reflects the still point between day and night, light and dark, and the in-breath and out-breath of our Father, Mother, God. We are being assured by the company of heaven that this equinox is initiating a new day on planet Earth. Through the unified efforts of heaven and Earth, we will help every person's I am presence to utilize the light flowing through the equinox gateway in new ways that will recalibrate our emotional vortices, our etheric vortices, the fire vortices, the water vortices, and the earth vortices to the highest fifth dimensional crystalline frequencies of light that cosmic law will allow. This activity of light will be stated in the first person so that we will each experience it personally, but know that we are invoking this light through the I am presence of every person on earth in perfect alignment with his or her divine plan and the highest good for all concerned. If you have the heart call to participate in this powerful opportunity, please join with me and lightworkers around the world now. And we begin. I am empowering and recalibrating within my elemental vortices the brand new fifth dimensional crystalline solar frequencies of light that are now flowing through the portal of the equinox gateway. I am my I am presence and I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child on earth. Collectively, humanity's I am presences now merge into one luminous, multidimensional being of light that is cradling Mother Earth and all life evolving upon her within the divinity of our unified heart flame. Humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth are now breathing in unison with me as one elevated holy breath. I am one with my Father, Mother God. I am one with the solar logos from suns beyond suns. I am one with the legions of light throughout infinity. 
I am one with the mighty Elohim, the silent watchers, the directors of the elements, and all of the beings associated with the elemental kingdom, including my own body elemental. With every breath I take, I accept and know that the light of God is exponentially expanding within the hearts and minds of all humanity. Mother Earth and all life evolving upon her are now ascending into new celestial and cosmic coordinates. Earth's adjusted position in the universe is now allowing humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth to receive higher and higher solar light codes through the portal of the Equinox Gateway. With the divine intervention of the entire company of heaven, now gathered in the atmosphere of earth, I now invoke from the very core of creation the most intensified frequencies of fifth-dimensional crystalline solar light that humanity and the earth are capable of receiving into our elemental vortices at this time. I realize that my holy breath is a key factor in unifying the spectrums of living light throughout the whole of creation. As I breathe in and out deeply, I attune myself to the rhythm of the universe. I am one with the heartbeat of my Father, Mother, God. I am one with the breath of the Holy Spirit. I am one with every particle and wave of life in the body of God, which is the all-encompassing divine matrix. Now, as I continue breathing deeply and rhythmically, I begin to clearly see the elemental vortices pulsating within my earthly bodies. These centers are swirling vortices of divine light. They are shining like the sun. There are five vortices. Each one is specifically designed to nourish, refresh, and rejuvenate one of the five elements within my earthly bodies. First, I focus my attention on my ether vortex, which is pulsating above my head. 
I put the full power of my concentration on this spinning vortex of light. I breathe the breath of the Holy Spirit into the center of my ether vortex. It is now expanding and blazing like the sun. I affirm with deep feeling, I am that I am. I am that I am. I am that I am. My ether vortex is now recalibrated to the highest fifth dimensional crystalline frequencies of solar light that cosmic law will allow. I now focus the full power of my attention on my air vortex, which is pulsating in the area of my throat. I breathe the breath of the Holy Spirit into the center of my air vortex. It is now expanding and blazing like the sun. I affirm with deep feeling. I am the breath of the Holy Spirit. I am the breath of the Holy Spirit. I am the breath of the Holy Spirit. My air vortex is now recalibrated to the highest fifth dimensional crystalline frequencies of solar light that cosmic law will allow. I now focus the full power of my attention on my fire vortex, which is pulsating within the location of my sternum in the center of my chest. I breathe the breath of the Holy Spirit into the center of my fire vortex. It is now expanding and blazing like the sun. I affirm with deep feeling, I am the sacred fire breath of the Almighty. I am the sacred fire breath of the Almighty. I am the sacred fire breath of the Almighty. My fire vortex is now recalibrated to the highest fifth dimensional crystalline frequencies of solar light that cosmic law will allow. I now focus the full power of my attention on my water vortex which is pulsating at the base of my spine. I breathe the breath of the Holy Spirit into the center of my water vortex. 
it is now expanding and blazing like the sun. I affirm with deep feeling. I am the harmony of my true being. I am the harmony of my true being. I am the harmony of my true being. My water vortex is now recalibrated to the highest fifth dimensional crystalline frequencies of solar light that cosmic law will allow. Now, I focus the full power of my attention on my earth vortex, which is pulsating between my feet. I breathe the breath of the Holy Spirit into the center of my earth vortex. It is now expanding and blazing like the sun. I affirm with deep feeling. I am the master of my physical reality. I am the master of my physical reality. I am the master of my physical reality. My earth vortex is now recalibrated to the highest fifth dimensional crystalline frequencies of solar light that cosmic law will allow. The mighty Elohim, the silent watchers, the directors of the elements, my silent watchers, my body elemental, and my I am presence have now recalibrated my five elemental vortices to the next level. This has created a tremendous pathway of light through my four earthly bodies from head to toe. This dynamic force is quickening the divine alchemy taking place within my physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies as they are transfigured from carbon-based earthly bodies into fifth-dimensional, crystalline-based, solar light bodies. Every time I focus on my elemental vortices, God's fifth-dimensional crystalline solar light will expand through my four earthly bodies, raising my energy, vibration, and consciousness to new heights. I accept and know that this activity of light has been God-victoriously accomplished. And so it is. Beloved I am, beloved I am, 
beloved, I am that I am. Dear one, be gentle with yourself and allow your I am presence in your body elemental to assimilate the full magnitude of this activation into your earthly bodies at an atomic and subatomic cellular level. Feeling this activity of life God victoriously accomplished in perfect alignment with your divine plan and your highest good, breathe in deeply now and gently return your consciousness to the room be quick, care, be aware of your earthly bodies. Inhale, exhale, and when you're ready, you may open your eyes. Incredibly beautiful, eternally grateful we are. We are feeling that in whole great new ways, and it is exquisite. Oh, my goodness. Wow, so powerful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now we know we have been given the directive here on what it truly means to invoke the light, to invoke the light in our bodies, and to master that light and to know the power that it holds when we do that. Really exquisite. Thank you, Patricia. You're very welcome. Thank you, Lauren, for making this venue possible to the world. Well, you've explained a lot of what we're going to hear about in the summit for the light body and DNA upgrades. And it just is remarkable how we've made it. We are safe to say we've made it. Yes, there's still work of holding this vibration, correct? That, but we've made it. Things of light have reiterated that many, many times. And they've even said we have succeeded beyond the greatest expectations of heaven. And we are moving forward in the light and there is no turning back, regardless of what may be surfacing to be transmuted in the outer world. No turning back. And we can use this, this frequency, this vibration that we have within these vortices, with every breath, we can amplify and accelerate and we can use that to assist the planet. Can you share on how important this vibration is on an influential level for the collective? Yes, absolutely. You know, in the beginning, we said, I am my I am presence and I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. And all of our I am presence is merged into this enormous, luminous, multidimensional being of light that is cradling Mother Earth and all her life in our heart flame. So every bit of the invocation that we're invoking flows through also the elemental vortices in the body of Mother Earth in the elemental kingdom along the solar axis of the planet 
the solar axis, which is our individual spines within each of us. So it automatically is occurring when we just take that brief moment to include all of that as we begin the invocation. Beautiful. We have time for some questions. We're going to respond to questions in our chat, please. Not in the chat, excuse me. In the Q&A box on our Zoom event panel is the best place for you to ask your question. So here is a question from Linda. May I ask you if the 12 strands of DNA are connected to the 12 dimensions and hold the wisdom of those dimensions? Well, there probably are in many ways, but also our solar system is a system of the, of 12. That's the sacred geometry. Our central sun is known as Alpha and Omega. And the beings of light from our central sun breathe forth 12 planets. The earth is the fourth planet out. And each of those, I mean, breathe forth 12 physical suns. And each of those physical suns breathe forth 12 planets. So this is where the whole power of the 12 times 12, the sacred geometry of 144 we hear of at the time. And our particular solar system, which is what we're really focusing on, this shift of the ages is taking place through all time frames and dimensions of creation. But what we need to worry about is getting the earth in the place that we can make it with the rest of our solar system. There are 12 solar aspects of deity and each one of those 12 solar aspects of deity. And you can go to our website and put that in our search engine and you'll get information about those 12 solar aspects of deity. But they are aligned with all 12 of our uh, fifth dimensional crystalline solar chakras and they're part of the crystalline light that we are co-creating the new earth with. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. A question from Sana. What about the children? Will they upgrade automatically? The children are coming in so incredibly more advanced than all of us are (laughs) in most instances, 99.9% of the time, uh, because after the fall, there was a pause put on new incoming souls because the new souls coming in with the various root races and the normal cycle of the evolution of a planet were getting trapped on the wheel of karma that we had miscreated and stuck here like the rest of us were. We weren't completing our evolutionary process. So the souls actually that have come in since harmonic convergence, and this doesn't mean every one of them, and it doesn't mean uh, that they're more evolved or anything than uh, more important than the rest of us. But since Harmonic Convergence was in August 1987, those are the souls that have been, the floodgates were opened and those souls began embodying. And all of those eons of time since our fall, they have been held in the electronic belt around our central sun, Alpha and Omega, going through temples and learning and things. So they're bringing in newer levels of higher consciousness codes that are going to help them activate. Now, 
uh, and build and co-create the new earth. But they've come into all the contamination and pollution and difficult things. So even though those are awakening within them, there has been a lot of interference from that those outer world uh, contaminants and things. But absolutely, yes. And as I said, we had a part of the World Congress last year was bringing in a generational changing of the guard, which is awakening the consciousness codes within the millennials and Gen Z and the babies and the new souls that are coming in now. And they're beginning to awaken and they're going to be making monumental shifts of energy. And they already are because they're experiencing what's happening with climate change. They're experiencing what's happening with gun violence, what's happening with discrimination and hatred and the abuse of power in politics and how awful war is and all of those things. And they're wanting to change it and making strides and you know, we don't see nearly enough of it through the news, but they're doing incredibly wonderful things. And we'll we'll witness this as we move forward. But the rest of us still have work to do and clearing and transmuting the surfacing negativity. The more we do that, the easier it's going to be for them to get their heads above the chaos so that they can start manifesting the reality of who they are. So, yes, absolutely, they're an important part, but they have their work to do, too, but they have everything they need within them to do it. And that's what we mean by all hands on deck here in this ascension process for continued clearing and transmutation and the invoking of light. And, Patricia, what you've given us today, what you've assisted us with today is so powerful. Nearly a 1,000 people watching this zoom and on youtube and even more will watch the replay that is so powerful i have shills my whole body is lit up from this and it gives such deep hope it gives eternal hope in this whole process your weekly vlogs are so inspirational and refreshing it is what helps all of us keep our head above water in this time and it's really beautiful Take a moment and share on your next Congress on World Illumination that's coming up. The World Congress on Illumination uh, is an annual event that we've had every year since uh, Harmonic Convergence in 1987. And the Beings of Light asked if we would make this um, an annual global event of people focusing from consciousness and also coming physically to form the the transformer. And what this is, is the beings of light evaluate all of the light that's been added to the world. Every bit of light, you know, a mother loving her child, us admiring a beautiful sunset, you know, every bit of light in addition to all the powerful light work that people are doing. And our Father, Mother, God, and the company of heaven evaluate that enormous bouquet of light and evaluate what can be accomplished with that light that will serve the greatest need of the hour to move humanity and the elemental kingdom and the angelic kingdom forward in this ascension process. And they give us a divine mission, and that's the goal and the mission for the World Congress. We have now been guided and directed. Sometimes we would would have it 
in Tucson, Arizona, and this powerful force field that's been building here uh, every other year. But now we're being guided that it is to be in Tucson every year. So it's in August during the anniversary of the Harmonic Convergence. And uh, I don't have in my mind right this minute the, the dates on it, but it's always in the middle uh, of August. And it's a six-day event. And people can tune in uh, from around the world. Since COVID, we had to have it virtually for those two years during COVID. So now we did it, once we did it virtually, we now have a virtual aspect to it that people can tune in for the first hour of the activation and the activity of life and realize what is going to be prepared and taught and uh, the activities of life that will take place during the rest of the day so they can weave their energies into it. So before, normally we have the information by uh, February is when we really start getting the total understanding of, of what the mission will be and all of it prepared and you can start registering either to tune into the virtual or to come to the physical uh, at that time. So we would love to see you there. It's wonderful meeting light workers and connecting with people from all over the world. And they are, even though you're meeting somebody from uh, Namibia, who you <laughs> on the other side of the world that you didn't think you'd ever meet, when you connect with the heart flames of these powerful souls, you'll know you've knew, known them forever and have worked with them forever. And it's a glorious opportunity to get to come together. And also on the virtual, we do that. You know, I mean, just like what's happening at this summit and things connecting with light workers in this way is such a, a powerful and wonderful opportunity. Thank you. Wow, it sounds really good. It's really a soul family reunion and so precious. Thank you for listening to your heart's call and to the light being's call and your tireless dedication to that Congress on Illumination, a world Congress. Okay, a few more questions. There are, we can't get to all the questions, so I'm going to condense a few of them down and let's talk as we go through this process and the elemental vortices, vortices in our bodies coming back online and we're breathing solar light into them. Does this mean we'll be able to heal our bodies? And here's another part of that question. For those light workers who are experiencing significant medical, medical conditions, are our bodies now being energized to transcend these conditions and handle the powerful energies? It's going to be a very individual thing for each person because of the unique moment in time. This is a time of purging and just like with COVID, you know, many of the uh, people that died with COVID were elderly. And what the beings of light have said, they had completed their contract and they agreed to transmute that facet as they left the physical plane. You know, when we go through these things, we are, it doesn't mean that necessarily it's all our own stuff. It often is that we've agreed to help transmute and clear the diseases and the challenges within humanity's earthly bodies by going through that process. So 
there are people absolutely that are going to be healing and transfiguring maladies manifesting in the body because there's going to be a need to be examples of people utilizing this light and this transfiguration absolutely taking place. So they're going to be people transfiguring their bodies into vibrant health and eternal youth and those kind of things. But this is going to be a very individual thing depending on what your life path is. But there is so much healing. I always, I was a marriage and family counselor for 20 years, and I always encourage everybody to work with the light as though your intent is to completely heal and transfigure your body into the highest expression of itself. And the reality is that's what's going to happen. You're either going to transfigure it here or you're going to transfigure it into your light body when, as you leave this physical plane, you know. So one way or another, you're going to be okay and you're going to be healed. But for our peace of mind, often people don't want to think of leaving the physical plane. So imagine that you're healing here and work with it as though every day you're moving into your light body, which you will be, whether you do it here or whether you do it on the other side. Mm. Okay, thank you. Very powerful. And I know that your response there helped with some other questions that came up on our Zoom. So our here's a question. Are new energies coming in associated with only benevolent beings? Uh, yes. The light is from God is coming in in this light that we're talking about. Uh, is coming directly from the heart of God into the core of purity. The interference, and I know that this is sometimes hard to tell when we can look at the outer world and see people doing really awful things, but part of the shifts and the critical masses and anchoring the new planetary causes of divine love that have taken place is that in 1996, we reached a frequency of love on the planet that allowed us to be placed in a force field of light that compelled the forces uh, of imbalance to respond to their heart call in the temples of divine grace. And they were given the opportunity to progress and move forward in the light. And when they agreed to do that, the energies that have been referred to in the Bible and other levels as cosmic evil, which was interference where possessions could take place and all this interference, they were literally removed from the planet in 1996. Even the greys and extraterrestrials that were interfering and wreaking havoc in the outer world are no longer able to pass through this force field of of divine love that the earth is enveloped in. And this is the beings of light said it is a, a gift of grace beyond the comprehension of our finite minds. These souls uh, have been moved into the schools of learning in the inner realms, and they will never again be able to wreak havoc on the sons and daughters of God, and they will remain in these inner schools of learning uh, until they complete 
their awakening and move into the light again. They are sons and daughters of God, just like the rest of us. They are just moved into horrifically uh, negative, nefarious life patterns that they have wanted to reflect. So the the answer is that when we connect with our I am presence, simply by saying I am my I am presence, and I'm one with the I am presence of all humanity, and I'm one with my Father, Mother, God, not one electron of discord, even from the outer world, fear or war consciousness or greed or corruption or prejudice or any of that hate-filled energy. None of that can contaminate, even in the outer world. It it just transcends it, just like it can't exist in our fifth-dimensional light bodies either. Thank you. Okay. Another question. Let's see. You mentioned this decade of 2020 to 2030 and Earth moving into the initial impulses of the fifth dimension. Will we all enter the fifth dimension by 2030? It's going to be, we're already in the process of being in the fifth dimension. We are, these energies, the solar energies could not be anchoring within our bodies unless we were vibrating at the initial impulses of the fifth dimension. So with all of these increments, and I know that it's hard to really get that when we haven't seen, but this is an interesting thing, and this is for food for thought, but the beings of light, because this is such a common question, well, it doesn't look like things are changing. The beings of light said that if our physical bodies that we were in prior to the shift of the ages, which took place in December 21st and 22nd in 2012, just 11 years ago, if those physical bodies were standing next to our physical body now, we would be much more rarefied and could tell the difference in the denseness of that vehicle compared to the frequency that we're vibrating at now. And the reason is, is that everything's ascending into these frequencies. So it doesn't look like in the outer world that things have changed. You know, I mean, that's the reason we don't see the beings of light is because they're just vibrating at higher frequencies beyond what our physical sight can grasp. But that's a temporary situation. You know, we're going to be moving into those higher frequencies. And it's not that they won't still be above us because they're moving forward too and maybe more rarefied or more ethereal than it looks like we are, but we are going to be able to perceive them in ways. And that's already happening. I mean, that's why we're seeing all these colors in the sunsets and in shifts of vibration and experiencing these solar flares in whole new ways, you know, that usually have been, we're down here and they've been vibrating up here. So they've missed us. Now they're, coming through us, through the portals of the sun, through our bodies. So we're phys- physically feeling them. And that's what they talk about ascension symptoms are. You know, our bodies and our I am presence, our I am presence is raising the frequency of our bodies, the maximum that we can withstand in every 24-hour period. And whatever we are doing, and you'll learn a lot about that during this summit, whatever we are doing to raise the vibration eating lighter food, eating organic food, drinking pure water, breathing fresh air, you know, whatever we can do 
to raise our bodies, listening to beautiful music, being in nature, being in water is, is going to assist that divine alchemy that's taking place. The less we're doing, the more we're contaminating our body with recreational drugs and smoking and eating food that we know is processed and contaminated and whatever, the slower it's going to be and the more difficult our physical symptoms are going to be because we're moving forward in the light and there's no turning back. And what the beings of light said, we all have the option. We can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. (laughs) But it's our choices and our individual decisions that are making it easier or more difficult for us. What an incredible journey we are on all together. It really is fascinating and so beautiful. And again, your words are so inspiring for us on this journey. We have time for one more question, and I'm going to encapsulate a couple of questions all into to one here. As we're talking about the ascension I know it's an individual. It's one heart at a time. It's all our process. It's all our, each our own journey. But can you, is there an idea of what you sense that ascension will look like? And when we're talking about the new creations that we're bringing forward in this ascension from the light, what would a government look like? Have you given any um, thought or have you seen a vision of what that might look like in our ascension journey? Absolutely. We've been working for divine government for decades to bring in that consciousness. Divine government will be a government representing the family of humanity, every race, every religion, every nationality, and souls working through the oneness of life for the highest good of all concerned. And, you know, even though when we die in that transition, we leave the physical plane and we're instantly in the heavenly realms. That isn't the way this is happening because this time, instead of one of us doing that through our own individual process, we're taking the earth and all life with it. So it's a, it's a slower process and It isn't going to be, you know, that was what happened on Harmonic Convergence, people. That was the 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th of August in 1987. And people woke up on August 19th and said, what a hoax that was, you know. And yet it was the greatest shift of consciousness we've ever experienced because they expected it all to manifest as a, a new world. Well, God is very practical. And, of course, that's not the way it's happening. It's happening right now. Just like groups like us are working with the oneness of life in harmony for the highest good of all concerned. That's part of the consciousness of divine government and the new world. You know, it's not going to be this us against them or this power or this money orientation or whatever. We're going to be in frequencies what will be drawing and manifesting everything I need. All of the abundance of the world is coming from this light from the heart of God, which is infinite. There's no such thing as lack and limitation, except that that's part of our miscreation from our fall when we started feeling like we're not going to have enough, so we have to hoard and we have to start taking away. And then we started creating through our lack of uh, compassion with the elemental kingdom, 
plagues and floods and droughts and all the inclement weather conditions that did start causing them famines and all of that imbalance. But that was a human miscreation. That wasn't part of what the original plan was for this planet. So it's going to be, we're going to be noticing major changes in the outer world, major shifts of consciousness as people are saying, okay, this is not the way we're going to do. We're going to start experiencing technology where people can say, okay, here's a whole new uh, way of energizing and lighting and uh, without destroying the air we breathe and polluting and gouging Mother Earth through mining and digging up oil and drilling and all of those kind of things. It's going to be new technology and new ways of doing things. And also just working with the elements. You know, that was one of the things about the COVID planetary pause. Within a month, they started showing Los Angeles with no smog. And Delhi was being able to see the Himalayan mountains 40 miles away, which hadn't happened in decades and decades. You know, in that short a time, just because we stopped using the fossil fuels in the way we had been, we started clearing the air and started seeing things improve. And we're going to see technologies that are cleaning the oceans, that are cleaning the waterways, that are bringing balance. You know, we can see the earth is cleansing and purging our imbalances. That's what the extreme fires are. That's what the floods, the hurricanes, you know, and every time there's a, a major shift at this year's World Congress, there was a major alignment with the magnetic solar axis of the earth. And within a matter of a few days, there were, you know, there was a, a meteorologist on TV within three days after that. They said, this isn't something I thought I'd ever be saying, but there's a hurricane in Death Valley, <laughs> you know, and there was this hurricane that came through and floods and all of those kind of things. So we can see that's all created by the purging, by the elemental kingdom. You can see if all of that water, all of that heat, all of that fire, all of that imbalance was balanced and the elemental kingdom was working in cooperation with us because we purged and healed all the atrocities we inflicted on it, how none of that, none of the imbalances would exist. The elemental kingdom could reign everywhere. They can create you know, nutrition's in the soil everywhere. They can do all of the things that the elemental kingdom does. So we, we're going to heal this, but it's going to be a step by step. I'm not saying we won't notice it quickly because we can, but it's not going to be an overnight thing. And what this meant is mostly we're going to see huge shifts of consciousness taking place within humanity, new things coming to the fore. The latent abilities within our DNA have been activated now. So we're going to tap into new sacred knowledge that will guide us and direct us. And we're, by 2030, we're going to see some powerful outer world evidence of the awakening taking place. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Okay. Well, it's what we've been working for, what we've been envisioning. And as we're going to learn in this summit the light body, as we bring that more online, it's just more of our higher self embodiment and the wisdom that comes through. It, it reflects exactly what you're speaking about. 
the information on new technology, the innovation is going to come from who? From us, from our connection with the higher realms, with that quantum field, with the information. And that's the beauty of it. And that's the eye on the prize of this beautiful journey. Wow. Okay. Really inspiring. The shift of consciousness is going to occur too. So that as the, the reason the technology has been held back is because so often, you know, it's been abused. I mean, the incredible power that can be done with nuclear technology, nuclear fusion. And to think that that knowledge was taken and built into a, a bomb that kills millions of people. Do you, does anybody think that was the divine plan for that technology? You know, of course not. And that's much of it has been turned in just like with what we, the, the healing and the health modalities and the other inventions have been, you know, this money, 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 greed, greed, greed kind of thing instead of how can I utilize that to benefit the masses of humanity. But there are powerful, wonderful people doing just like, just that healing the waters and working with being able to feel, feed the world. And that's where a lot of the younger people are going to come to the fore and take over from us and say, okay, you've messed up this planet enough. You go sit down there and we're going to start, <laughs> start changing some of these things. Oh my goodness. Well, you are a huge change maker on our planet, devoted to the light And for those who didn't get their questions answered, I'm going to direct all of you to Patricia's website, eraofpeace.org. Work with the Violet Flame. She's got beautiful artwork there and just wonderful items for you on your journey and incredible books that will absolutely change your life if you have not heard her books or even CDs, MP3s, all of it. It's really wonderful. So check out eraofpeace.org. And Patricia, wow, I just thank you so much again for your tireless efforts on this and the pure wisdom that you bring through. As we say goodbye, I just want to give you a moment for final thoughts. Well, my final thought at this moment is how grateful I am for you, Lorraine, and all of the light that you're adding to the world and all of these people on this summit, all of the practitioners and, and teachers and all of the participants that this is what we've been waiting for. You know, when we have heard that expression, we are the ones we've been waiting for. This is outer world evidence of what an incredible and powerful opportunity. And I just want to mention, I'm so grateful for that you're doing this with really just one presentation a day so that we can really focus and have time you know very often there's so many presenters and you have to pick and choose who you have time to see but this will give all of us an opportunity in most instances and then the replays go on for 10 days right for each presenter yes. so that's that's another really that's a gift that we need to accept that beings of light say cosmic moments come and cosmic moments go so don't let this one pass you by Awesome. And I just want to say that it's all in divine timing. We were meant to do this episode yesterday, but today is 922 of 2023. And those numbers are just so beautiful in the 11s that they present as well. And then again, the magic of the 222. So it's all in divine timing. So today we will have right after this in about 30 minutes, we're going to have Raquel Spencer 
she's on and what she says about the DNA is wonderful. So today's the only day with two presentations, but we're on track and we hope that everyone tunes in and really spends the time to relish in the information. Thank you all for joining us and thank you all for your bright light. Oh my gosh, can you feel the love? Can you feel the shift of the planet? I can. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you, everyone. Namaste. Okay. Bliss is the name of the game right now, everybody. Oh, my. Patty is... She never ceases to improve her work. And that's the way of the spiritual warrior, I would say. And we're all on this path together and everybody has something to contribute and well, this little simple ditty, you've heard me say it many times, but good, better, best, never let them rest till the good is better and the better is best. And then we move higher. And that's the inspiration of our journey here. Okay, so I'm just going to read a little bit from, this is called Seeking Solace. And this is Michaela Sheldon and Ethan Fox. Ethan Fox. And this is two hours and 17 minutes, so we'll get as far as we can before we break. And then we'll finish when we get back. And Rama's going in a place so that we don't have to listen to commercials. So I'll read this. As you don't have YouTube Premium and are seeing ads on the video... You can now watch us ad-free on Rumble. And then it says to search AAE or Awake and Empowered Podcast Mm. or Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Heart Radio, Alexa, and others. We will also soon be launching on many more platforms without ads. In this episode, the Channel Revelations, Michaela Sheldon Channels, the Council of Light, and the Na'akal, Ethan and the guides discuss the Naga and... Reptilian race. Plenty of good reptilians. Their appearance on Earth in ancient times and their role in Earth's and human history as well as modern times. The guides go on to explain that the majority of gods and goddesses of the Buddha and Hindu religions were reptilian. Oh my goodness. And how conversation concludes 
on the topic of how humanity's true potential lies beyond mind-based spiritual teachings and toward emotional practice. Specific topics include the Anunnaki, the Naga, Kul Kul Khan, Quetzalcoatl, Yava, Queen Soma, Machu Picchu, and the Buddha. About Michaela Sheldon. Michaela Sheldon is an intuitive channel, executive director of the Flower of Life Institute, and marketing director of the Awaken Empowered Expo. During a struggle to overcome chronic pain, oh, that's one that would, you know, motivate. Yes, yes, yes. Well, there's other places it says, Rama. I'll give you the other places again. It yeah, says. I'm just going to play it from YouTube. Then you have to ha- hang out because there's going to be a ton of okay. ads. Yeah. But it says you can go to Awake and Empowered. Um, I tried. You yeah. can go to Spotify, Apple, okay. Google, Heart Radio, yeah. Alexa, mm-hmm. it would surely help. Um, so where was I? Um, the guides go on to explain that the majority of gods and goddesses of the Buddhist and Hindu religions were reptilian and how they imparted their higher mind-based teachings to the human race. The mind-based spiritual teachings and toward emotional practice. That's what's what's beyond the mind. Um... Specific topics include Anunnaki, the Naga, Kukulkan, Kasakwaro, Yava, Queen Salma, Machu Picchu, and the Buddha. About Mikhail Sheldon. Okay, we got that. Mm-hmm. Um, are you? Did you get it? I got it. I'm going to do YouTube and see what, what happens. Did it tell you how you can avoid the... There's something you got to do, I thought. Um, I'll try to find it on Rumble at a different time. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to take a risk, but we're going to get started. Tell everybody what this is again. Seeking solace, you just... I just read it again. Read it. Underneath there, just... What does it say under the picture, honey? You don't have to read. Just under the picture. 
Seeking Solace, Michaela Sheldon and Ethan Fox, Channel okay. Revelation. Okay, here we go. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Channel Revelations. I'm Ethan Fox, and I'm here with Michaela Sheldon. We'll be spending the next couple of hours talking to the guides about ancient civilizations and how some of the things that happen in ancient times apply to our modern world that we live in today. As I always say, Mikhail is a trans channel, so we'll be speaking directly to the guides, but I don't discuss these questions with her or the topics beforehand just to make sure our conscious mind doesn't interfere in any way. Uh, and also uh, on YouTube, we, it seems like we don't have a problem with advertisements for the moment, but they have started deleting some of our videos. So if you uh, want to follow us on some of the other platforms like Rumble or Spotify or iTunes or rather Apple Podcasts, uh, that may be a good idea. At some point, we may not be on YouTube, so uh, just to keep that in mind. And, and of course, some of the videos that are deleted will be on Rumble instead of YouTube. So we're ready to get started whenever you are. And last time we left off uh, talking about the Naga and the reptilians and dragons uh, and how that applied to this ancient timeline that we discussed before. Uh, but who are we speaking with this time? Same council as always? There are many who have assembled, including the Council of Light, as well as an ancient council of elders from Atlantis known as the Nicol. I actually do want to talk to Nicole in the future and more in depth as we get into some of the Atlantean timelines uh, more in detail. Uh, I want to pick up this time where we left off in that we, we sort of left off with um, uh, how the Naga were interacting with the Anunnaki and, uh, and the, in the, around the time of the Great Flood and that cataclysm that occurred at that time. And what we established was that there was um, the, well, in previous shows, we established the Anunnaki timeline is the timeline that we're still walking today from ancient times. Uh, and uh, last time we discussed how the reptilians or the Naga uh, also coexisted with the Anunnaki in ancient times as well as since 13,000 years. What I want to understand, though, uh, before we continue is in previous shows when we were discussing the Anunnaki, we discussed how the they came to earth entered the fifth dimension and uh and they uh, all of the ancient stories of Enlil and Enki primarily took place prior to 13,000 years ago in the fifth dimension and then the cataclysm occurred about 13,000 years ago at which point we descended into the third dimension but that Anunnaki timeline is the one that continued into the third dimension and that's why we see a lot of Anunnaki iconography around the world like the use of the eagle or Garuda. Um, now, last time we discussed how the Naga or the reptilians also coexisted with the Anunnaki in the fifth dimension, uh, or the third, or rather they were in the third dimension, uh, and how they were interacting to some degree because the third dimension is close enough to the fifth dimension. Just like today, we have human beings who are third dimensional and also fifth dimensional who interact, but but not in any significant, meaningful way. Now, what I want to establish, though, is 
when we discuss the cataclysm that moved the Anunnaki from the fifth dimension to the third dimension that's existed in this timeline since 13,000 years ago, did the Naga also, that third dimensional Naga collective or uh, race that was coexisting with the Anunnaki, is it fair to assume that they also made that transition from that timeline with the Anunnaki into the new third dimensional timeline? Some of them did. Yes. And, and this is how we can rectify this answer or idea, because when you are all choosing the same planet, even though uh, timelines you create may exist in different dimensions uh, through universal law, there is always going to be an effect of every single timeline simultaneously when a cataclysmic event of this nature takes place. And it's because so many souls on the planet in number were involved in that experience, meaning they were lending some vibrational input. So it, it, it can be uh, described very similarly as what you are walking today. In other words, many of you uh, assume to already exist in the fifth dimension, and for the most part, you do. However, it is the entire collective that it's le- that is lending its energy to the future trajectory of that fifth dimension, even if they are not in it, because you are all somewhat tied together in a collective and unified matrix of energy, regardless of how much you acknowledge it uh, or it is understood. Okay, so some of the Naga did transition then into the third dimension along with the Anunnaki. So, and some did not. Is that what I'm understanding correctly? That, that's an accurate statement. Yes. Okay. And so the, is it fair to say that the world or the civilization in which we live today, uh, in this current third moving into fifth dimension, that this was founded upon uh, we established in previous conversations about the Anunnaki how the civilization today is largely founded upon the beginnings of what they um, uh, inserted into not only our genetics, but also into our society 13,000 years ago and prior to that. Is it fair to say the Naga also uh, instilled some of their nature or intentions into this timeline, reality, and society that we live today as well? Well, of course, many have. And, and what you're experiencing is a blending of those timelines as one. What, what we want to take you back to is, is some of our previous explanations about the spiral of time and how events like this come back around, because to say that you are on the same timeline wouldn't be a completely accurate statement because as timelines continue on, there are many new ones that branch off and they are often influenced by the energy that was before. So you are all here as creators and through your perception and through your consciousness as these events repeat and come back around, you're, you're either transforming them in some very important way, or you're replaying them simply by reassembling the various pieces of the puzzle into a new landscape. And, and ultimately, much of the iconography that we discussed in our previous gathering is evidence that your consciousness and vibration is 
tapping into the ancient history of that timeline again and and somehow reconfiguring it in a modern application. So to sort of restate what you're saying, um, timelines do change. And so we can't say exactly that this is a continuation of that original timeline. Yet there are some influences and inspiration that has uh, that has um, imparted into modern society. And the iconography is just an example of how we can see that in a visual way. And the fact and you're also saying the fact that we're noticing that iconography shows that we're tapping into that um, into that into those timelines, correct? There there will always be some physical demonstration of synchronicity, in other words, as to how history is impacting the creative energy of the beings who have currently incarnated. And, And that is the best and most accurate definition we can offer. There's a lot of iconography also of snakes and different reptilian types of beings. For example, dragons are uh, also appear in China or in uh, England, for example, dragons seem to be very prevalent as iconography, not so much in the U.S., but we do see snake iconography even in ancient Egypt uh, as well in headdresses and other uses, uh, hieroglyphics and things like that. And, of course, we even see snake iconography in the, in the U.S. as well today. And uh, so I'm, I'm, is it fair to assume that the snake iconography is representative of this reptilian lineage from when the the apocalypse occurred 13,000 years ago. Some of it is. Uh, of course, we cannot say for certain that every representation of a dragon or a snake is the same influence or meaning. Because if we look at what many of the more enlightened beings that you call Naga were here to teach, we might say that this is representative of the breath of fire, as we have spoken of, which has been transposed into many spiritual modalities and meditative practices, or the amplification of life force through the rays of Kundalini, which has also been represented in many ancient civilizations through the imagery of the snake. Uh, but ultimately, we could say that all of these things tie back to the Naga that you speak of? A lot of the iconography that I've noticed from even ancient times, and now there are a lot of storylines from ancient times of how the Naga interacted with the Anunnaki. And it seems like some of it might have been uh, positive. And as we discussed before, you did say that it was um, positive and sometimes also negative. It seems like sometimes they were fighting with each other or uh, not necessarily fighting with each other, but fighting to uh, for dominance over human beings or who would get worshipped. Um, and we discussed in the last conversation that Yahweh was a collective of reptilian beings. Am I correct in that understanding so yes, far? Yes, we, we agree with what you're saying. Okay. And, and also, Yahweh is described in the Bible as being surrounded by seraph. And seraph is a word that actually means serpent and uh and also in in the biblical term or in the biblical text it seems to suggest that these seraphs were either breathing fire or or setting things on fire on behalf of Yahweh now maybe Yahweh was the whole group of them and the seraphs were just um the people who were being led by a central figure in that reptilian group is that what the structure was essentially 
Well, let's take you back to some of the explanations that we brought forth in our previous time together and remind you of what the idea of the breath of fire or the fire breathing dragon actually stems from. It is the alchemy of intergalactic beings who had great power and control over their own energy fields and perhaps not in the highest and best intentions always of using those tools for the betterment of the ones who were receiving uh, on the receiving end of them, in other words. So so we agree with what you're saying in terms of the seraph and in terms of the snake and much of what the story tells. But but we want you to remember that there are a lot of generalizations uh, and symbology uh, in the stories that have been left behind. And you as conscious beings are drawing these historic accounts through the translation of your own vibration, meaning that sometimes the readiness of a collective to receive the literal meaning of a story from ancient times comes about when the dimension has been raised enough to bring it into a higher state. Because ultimately, if, ultimately, if we are to say that all of the beings in this collective were negatively focused, um, it would be just as linear as saying every human being has some malevolent force within them. Um, any consolidation of beings in a collective, of course, is based on some similar intent. And sometimes that intention is to rule by fear, uh, such that the beings who are being ruled are subjected to various philosophies and and dogma and ways of being. And and this is certainly um, what we believe is more representative of the story that is being told. All right. When you're using the term collective just now, are you referring to Yahweh, the collective or the larger reptilian collective? Well, we think sometimes they can be seen as one in the same or shifting between one another, in other words. But but yes, we agree. Okay. So Yahweh the Collective was benevolent and also malevolent at different times. So it's a mix of both. Is is that my understanding? Well, let's explain it this way. Um, sometimes the intention of gods or hybrids or collectives who had come to a physical planet seems to them to be in the highest and best intention such that they could direct what they thought were the best actions for a planet in need, when in fact it was not in the collective's best interest at all. So so intent is an interesting word because sometimes even on the physical plane, human beings do not fully connect with or understand their intent for doing the things that come natural to them or have been led astray uh, of their own inner connection to act without pause. So so many of the beings in this collective may have also been led astray by others to believe they were acting in the best interest of the human collective when in fact they were not. So when we hear stories in the Bible, and I know the Bible has been translated and a lot of the original meaning is lost, but, but uh, I want to try to narrow down where there may be some accuracy so we can have a basis for understanding the story. 
So when we hear stories of uh, Yahweh um, and the seraph causing um, destruction in different areas, setting things on fire, burning entire cities to the ground, and uh, and wiping out entire civilizations of human beings, um, was that, uh, and so that was, as we were talking about the breath of fire, they're referred to as breathing fire or setting things on fire. So if I'm understanding correctly, they were using the breath of fire, which is not physical fire, but rather uh, prana to create these results. For example, using prana to set something on fire or to destroy an entire city. Is that correct? Well, well, we don't want the fire analogy to be taken too literally because we'll take you back to some of the explanation that we have offered about the construction of pyramids, for example. Um, in many of the formations of these pyramids in, in ancient times, uh, light ships came in and were directing energetic technologies to alchemize elements and to change landforms and, and to bring things into perfect symmetry. And evidence of this is, is left behind today. Uh, even though this may have been completed through the presence of a plasma ship, uh, many of these beings that you refer to had the plasmic ability to do the very same thing without the presence of a ship at all. So, so some of what may have been considered destruction was actually an attempt to shift the Earth's frequency and to change uh, various land forms and masses to be reconstructed in a, a better suited way to, to their presence, uh, in other words. And, and this destruction, even though we're calling it alchemy, wasn't necessarily well received uh, by those who existed in human form on the planet at that time because they had worked very hard, obviously, to, to settle in communities and to create um, a flow of currency and energy and resource between one another. Uh, what these beings had most in mind was to strip humans away from their autonomy or their ability to use what they had created for their own benefit such that they would rely on the gods and teachers that were not human at all. Okay, so in some instances, this was done for benevolent purposes. But for example, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it is said that Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because he didn't like what was happening there or and the people weren't worshiping him. So in that instance, was it a literal destruction of a civilization? It was a literal destruction of a civilization, yes, for the purpose of rebirthing that civilization. Because remember, there is a DNA influence here as well. Um, even though we could provide a lot of insight as to why an, an act of this nature isn't actually conducive to what a god or a collective like this would have wanted. Because even though um, an entire civilization is wiped off of the planet, uh, everything that they've created, their energetic input into the time grid never truly goes away. So, so yes, we agree with what you're saying. Um, but perhaps what we want to add is that it didn't actually have the effect, um, that these beings or gods desired. Okay. So the being, the, these, this particular collective of beings were referred to as Yahweh, reptilian beings. Their intention was to wipe out the civilization in order to get rid of the 
pattern or the signature genetic um, uh, pattern that existed. Um, but in so doing, the, nothing changed because the pattern still continued to exist and just recreated itself. Exactly. Now, going back to 13,000 years, we emerge into the current timeline uh, with the Anunnaki and the the reptilian or Naga timeline continuing forward. The Atlantean timeline came to an end, or rather the timeline didn't come to an end, but Atlantis came to an end in the ninth dimension. And we also saw some individuals from Atlantis, like Thoth, for example, make this the, the leap into the um the new earth dimension and the third uh and the third dimension, fifth dimension time period, thirteen thousand years ago. So we started about thirteen thousand years ago with Anunnaki, with the Naga reptilians, and also some Atlanteans. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So somehow society at that time became a blend of these three things, these three ideas. Um were there any other influences that were present? There are always other influences that are present, but but the statement we'd like to make is that these three primary influences became more the norm than those who were attempting to push up against them. Now, um, one thing that I see in the iconography uh, that I think is a, because I've been wondering for a long time, the snake iconography, because in, in some uses in different parts of the world and even in the United States, it seems to be uh, used in a negative context. Um, but in other uses, it seems to be in a positive context. But one thing that seems to be unique about it uh, that is different from the Anunnaki, so I want to start differentiate the two. So let me just uh, talk about this for a moment. You can tell me if I'm on the right track. It seems to me that the Anunnaki lineage or what they contributed to modern society is the more um, technological aspects of it, the focus on money and wealth and power, for example, whereas it seems like the Naga reptilian race was not so much on the technology side, but they seem to have been focused more on the uh, the spiritual, for example, even the malevolent reptilians used the breath of fire where uh, I don't see that sort of reference when it comes to the Anunnaki. It seems like they were primarily on a technological basis using portals and different technologies to do what they did. Um, is that is that correct so far? Well, we can simplify this by saying that the technology could be looked at as the primary focus in both, except the definition of technology was completely different in that the Anunnaki were focusing on technologies outside of the self and the reptilians were more focused on the structure and technology of the being that they existed within. Okay. So the, the reptilians and the Naga being more of a mind-based focus, uh, the higher mind, at least when they originally came here, um, their development was more internal technology then. And so when we see things in the world that are more of an internal technology, such as meditation or chronic practice, for example, those are primarily of the Naga reptilian lineage, uh, whether used for positive or negative. And when we refer to the Anunnaki, we're referring to, uh, we're seeing the parts of society that are more of the, the, other kinds of technology that we would be 
we would consider more technology today, external technology, um, even electronics that we use today might be a lineage of the Anunnaki from ancient times. In addition, the Anunnaki seem to have more focused on things like gold and wealth and power and kingship and things like that, where the Nagas uh, and the reptilians seem to have focused on um, religion and spirituality and worship of others. Uh, is that so a lot of the religions, I think the like Christianity come from them. Am I on the right track? We agree. Uh, we also want to add that there are many contributions from the Anunnaki that are not uh, so advanced in their technological presentation as they are today. For example, uh, the frequency of sound or cymatics and the use of that as a technology is something that the Anunnaki initially brought to planet Earth. And I would imagine that a lot of the things that they constructed in ancient times in stone or otherwise were using vibration or frequency cymatics as an example. Yes, with the addition of various elemental properties and crystal, for example. Now, when I look at modern day religions and from 13,000 years ago till now, it seems to me that there were two distinct forks that occurred in religious direction um, from which many different religious modalities sprung from. But it seems like the Anunnaki primarily fueled a lot of the um, religions that are based on Kabbalah or um, uh, different kinds of um, uh, magical practices. So many of the, the Jewish religions, for example, or Islamic religions perhaps seem to have sprung from that and, and actually the Anunnaki supposedly inhabited that part of the world primarily. Uh, and then we have this second uh, aspect of religion, which seems to have come from the reptilian side, which from there I see things like Christianity and Catholicism, although Catholicism is a blend of many things, uh, and also Buddhism and such. Am I on the right track with that? Somewhat, although we cannot generalize um, as specifically as you are and, and want to remind you of that interface between the Anunnaki and the reptilians at certain points in their evolution, because some of these ideas have actually been shared between them. Um, if we look at what the Anunnaki may have created in consideration of the Kabbalah uh, and magic, uh, some of this may overlap with the beliefs and the teachings of the reptilians, but not necessarily in a more negative sense, because the geometric configurations of the universe uh, exist within many of the magical symbology that these beings were using. And much of what the reptilians came to teach was how uh, we were all a part of universal energy. Uh, we were not separate, but one. And to have that understanding is very powerful because it can be used uh, for the good or, or it can be used for the benefit of, of those who see its power. So when you say symbolism, um, are you referring to things like, for example, the cross seems to have originated with the Anunnaki, but yet it's also used in Christianity. Is that, uh, or even the swastika, for example, seems to have originated with 
uh, it's hard to say. The swastika seems to be a blend, possibly, of both Anunnaki and reptilian. Am I understanding correctly? Well, many of the groups that you're speaking of right now uh, would have taken their insights uh, and understandings of these various symbols uh, and added their own influence to them because they understood that any symbol from ancient times that was powerful could be directed through their personal influence and prayers and, and to change it ever so slightly uh, would add their own unique interpretation um, to uh, be utilized as a focal point uh, for, for certain practices uh, of divination. So, so certainly you are going to notice some overlap in these various activities and taking things from one period of ancient history and somehow installing them into another. In a lot of ancient writings, it uh, seems to suggest that the um, Templar cross uh, is something that originated with the Anunnaki, possibly representing the four different regions that they inhabited. Is that is that correct, or is there some sort of spiritual significance to that? But we would say it's a modification of that, not necessarily a direct relationship to the Anunnaki bloodline, uh, because this order, uh, we'll call it, um, did have Anunnaki human hybrid beings as a part of its original elder councils, for example. Uh, and so uh, these ideas were lent uh, to the origins and beginnings of um, the orders, um, we'll say, uh, instruction manuals and and um, symbology that it created. Uh, slightly different, but still carrying the same history, frequency and intentions. When we go back to um, some of the ancient temples in India, now in India, it seems like the Naga were more heavily represented in their iconography and in their spiritual temples and so on, where you don't see Anunnaki in India, in the Indian temples. You see Nagas, you see different um, Indian gods like Krishna or Vishnu and so on, um, where in the Middle East area, you see more Mesopotamian gods or even uh, different um, Anunnaki gods are worshipped in that area. Um, so was that because the, the Naga or the reptilian race um, were more focused in the Indian, Cambodian, that region? Well, if we take this to the highest level, um, what happens in ancient times happens still yet today is that those souls with a similar divine plan, vibration, dimension, and intention will magnetize each other in various regions to have specific experiences. But but also we must keep in mind that the Naga, for example, uh, were seeking out regions of solace, uh, areas where there were not influencers that had gone before them who may have totally corrupted the people because they were bringing new insights, teachings that had never been heard before. And their goal was not that they be shared in the same linear fashion. Uh, these uh, 
geographic regions where the Naga prevail uh, were the uh, birthing sites of many other master teachers and enlightened ones who carried these visions and ideas, uh, philosophies even, uh, into new civilizations and and cultures. So, uh, yes, we agree with what you're saying in terms of the regions that um, these beings chose. Uh, but perhaps what we're saying is they weren't really physically or mindfully chosen at all. Uh, they were a magnet to those who were meant to be there. Now, one thing that I find, we discussed previously about how Thoth actually influenced um, many of the pyramid structures around the world, including in Mexico. Um, even though those pyramids were also constructed with the uh, interaction of a reptilian god, uh, Quetzalcoatl and uh, Kukulkan, for example. Um, but there is a distinct difference I see between the architectural styles of even Mexico, the Mexican pyramids and the Egyptian pyramids versus the architectural styles of the ancient sites in India. The, the difference primarily, or one of the main differences, is the architectural styles in India from ancient sites are very intricate. They're very detailed and um, extremely artistic. Uh, and uh, in terms of the visual design, extremely sophisticated compared to the other ones, which it seems like... Um, uh, have much more of a clean, simpler design with not much of any iconography or design work and other than the the purely functional aspects of, of what it was. Now, was that because Thoth was not involved in the architecture in, for example, the various sites in India that were probably Anunnaki-oriented? Well, if we look at the I'm sorry, sites, I'm sorry, uh, I meant not. not yes. <laughs> we look at the sites that are in India that may have been influenced by the Naga. The differences are um, based on several different uh, foundational ideas. Uh, first, the Naga were very interested in the vibrational impact of everything that they were either constructing or somehow non-physically creating, and we might not think as physical beings on a human planet that the intricate design and beauty of anything would have an impact or an energetic influence on all that intersect with it. But certainly it does. And and these details were not just for the purpose of vibration alone. Within these temples and pyramids, for example, there are entire volumes of history and and stories um, that are carved within stone. So so what you're noticing are, um, we'll say, very meticulously planned architectural designs that not only influence the vibration of the space in which the structure was created, but also tell a story in an astral sense. Um, these Pyramids were designed such that those who entered would receive the download of energy straight from the consciousness of the pyramid itself. And those that constructed them believed it was important 
to include these things as a part of its design. Uh, it is similar today to a, a painter, for example, uh, choosing to paint an elaborate landscape. Uh, it can be done in a very gingerly fashion, simply to show the time of day and the landform itself, or many layers upon layers can be used to show depth and dimension. And this was more the preference of the Naga uh, to do these multidimensional designs uh, than it was perhaps the Anunnaki, because as you have mentioned, the Anunnaki were certainly more interested in the technological aspects of these structures. Not necessarily that they weren't measuring their vibrational impact, but consider that they were not as drawn to the multidimensionality of these pieces of of art or technology that the Naga were, they simply um, uh, have different history and background uh, than the Naga do. Also, uh, we want to discuss the way that the land intersects with these various sites, because we've mentioned previously that a great deal of alchemy uh, was used in the process of creating these very um, symmetrical uh, structures. And all of the residue that fell away from the crystal and the rock and the granite that was infused within the earth became a part of the technology itself. This is why today you can visit the underground caverns and, and waterways and actually feel the intense vibrational power uh, that still remains, even though there has been some degradation of the site itself. What you may notice in the intricate designs of India is that it would have taken more effort to carve them. And the Naga understood um, they had patience in this process because it would give the land form around it, the land mass around it, more opportunity to absorb all that wasn't used in the process. And, and that is why perhaps even um, going well beyond the geographic or physical proximity of these pyramids uh, can actually be felt by an individual uh, miles and miles away even when they are activated, uh, for example, with a specific planetary alignment or influence. It's not to say that other pyramids do not have this quality. We're simply trying to demonstrate the difference in perspective and how uh, certain races of beings would go about a, a similar type of effort with um, a slightly different orientation. Now explain to me, either the mechanics or help me understand what was different about the Naga from the Anunnaki that the Naga sought solace. Now I understand they taught things like meditation, which obviously reaches a state of solace or um, a state of um, stillness. So these are all concepts that come from the Naga or the reptilians, but uh, but what was it in them that made them seek that out versus the Anunnaki who seemed to be much more um, aggressive in energy? Well, there are many considerations for this, of course, but the main premise has to do with their higher minds. Because 
In today's reality, many of you are struggling to control the overactive mind or uh, there has been programming or implanting of ideas uh, into the mind, which actually limits a soul's potential to manifest through the organic and, and true connection that it holds to the divine. Now, the Anunnaki uh, definitely had a different perspective when it came to the workings of mind. As you can see, that projection went outward uh, into various forms of technology, for example. But what the Naga knew and what they practiced was stilling the mind to such a degree that whatever was meant to be manifest through them could come to full fruition. And this was a power that they had used on their own home planet, but needed to be somewhat modified on the planet they now found themselves on. Because remember, Earth is a different atmosphere. It's a more physically dense planet, which is ultimately somewhat um, aligned with how reptilians are, are structured. Yet, those that existed on the earth were working with a very powerful connection of mind to body and mind to emotion. This is not something that the very ancient or advanced Naga were doing. In fact, they had transitioned well out of the use of an emotional body, uh, not to say that they were not kind and compassionate beings, but they were more empathic in a plasmic sense, meaning the ultimate knowing and understanding of who they were and what they were capable of came through the mind. It was a higher mind and more heart-centered uh, in its alignment. So to pursue stillness or some form of solace to them is the ultimate form of magic because there is no consideration of any outside reality. When we go deep within ourselves without any constriction of expectation or, or thought of what we should do, the universe works through us in the best way possible. And this is how they um, uh, taught uh, many others on the earth plane and how they themselves were taught prior to coming to the planet. All right. So is it fair to say, although... There may have been benevolent reptilians and or Naga and, and also malevolent reptilians or Naga that the underlying similarity regardless was that they all operated from mind and higher mind and even the more malevolent ones would have sought out solace as a result of their that nature that makes them different from the Anunnaki. Well, and this is what leads us to the next point that we did not make about your previous question and, and we believe it will answer what you are asking of us. Um, and it is a bit complex, so bear with us, but but we want to take you back to the beginning of time when the reptilians came to the planet at the very uh, beginning of humanity's seeding. Now, now, remember, there was a hybridization process that they had to go through in order to be here. So, so even coming to Earth, they were not in their original state. That being said, throughout history and, and spanning all of these timelines leading up to where we are today in our conversation, there has been some influence to their structure as well, because 
on a human planet with a variety of different beings who are operating in different forms, it's inevitable that the evolutionary process is somehow going to take a being out of its true and organic state. If you are on a planet that is not your own and you are interfacing with beings who are different than you, there's going to be some genetic commonality that that begins to take shape. And for the reptilians, this was a taste of what it might be like to feel. And so to feel in a physical body for a reptilian is something not desirable at all. It's something perhaps that isn't even understood or doesn't go along with their process, yet it happens nonetheless. So many of the reptilians that you're calling malevolent, for example, were in a very dire situation. Uh, their genetic template had been skewed and their home star system and planet destroyed and they were in preservation mode. And any being who is in the focus of self-preservation and beginning to feel as if they are not themselves are going to act out in the most unnatural of ways. So, so this is a consideration that we want to add to the story is that you have to um, remember that many of the more enlightened and ancient ones who are seen as teachers that, that you may be calling Naga, uh, were using the techniques of breath and meditation and, and stillness to overcome uh, much of what they were experiencing on the earth. And it, it, it truly was possible for them because they would effort at it. They, they brought so many of the techniques that they had learned from their past to the present and were capable of reintroducing them to an environment that was different and foreign, yet it modifying and translating them according to what they needed. Uh, many of the other reptilians were not as able to do this as they were. So there were reptilians who were not um, operating in a state of stillness. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. But when you go back to ancient spiritual teachings that have survived today to modern times in the form of, let's say, Buddhism or the Buddhist religion or various um, practices such as meditation and uh, and chanting and uh, Buddhist chants and things like that, did those originate with the Naga? Many of them, yes. Okay. Yes. And and other ones were just created as a result of that lineage, or did they come from the Anunnaki as well? Well, there were many hybrids present on the planet at the time. Not not all of them assuming uh, a reptilian or Anunnaki lineage. So you must consider there were influences from other star systems and planets. And and the Naga were very known for transferring what may be called Samadhi, um, uh, an agent of transition and awakening uh, in which human beings who received it were contacting other planets and, and even parts of themselves from from beyond the earth and beginning to chant and channel themselves. Right. But but we agree with what you're saying in, in, in basic premise is that many of these chants and meditative practices uh, originated <coughs> from the Naga. And this is why we see the snake iconography, for example, used in the Tibetan flag as an example. Yes, it is a representation of that lineage. Another interesting thing that I find with the Naga or reptilians is 
They now in previous in the previous conversation we talked about how they tended to live underground because they didn't like the 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 nature of the surface environment that we have on the planet and sunlight is uh, is averse to them. But uh, but I have found that there are now in the context of them seeking solace, they do seem to have at least based on archaeological sites around the world. Um, located themselves in other distant areas, for example, very high on top of mountaintops and uh, places like that that were very distant from being underground, but nonetheless very solitary. And there are, for example, in India, there are many local stories of Naga living in uh, in tiny um uh, populations in uh in very high up areas in in the regions uh, where they were far away from everybody else and they specifically put themselves there because they wanted to have that distance from other human beings and such is that is that true well it is true and we can uh, explain that no perhaps one of the most motivating factors in this was the preservation of their own genetic template because as we had mentioned previously, uh, any close proximity to or interaction with another race is going to change, uh, hybridize and influence uh, the beings that come to a planet that perhaps were never meant to be there. Now, the Naga who decided to live within the inner earth were seeking solace, but remember also a, a certain level of density, not because the earth is a dense reality in that it is a negatively uh, oriented field, but much of the rock and crystal uh, and various uh, uh, roots of uh, forests create an environment that is very conducive to their structures. It is certainly high vibrational while at the same time containing the dense physical energy of that vibration. A mountaintop is very much the same in that at the top of a mountain at the very peak or the summit, there is often a very, um, we'll say tangible frequency that is the culmination of all that exists below it. Uh, and that is why many of the Naga chose these locations to reside because very much like the inner earth, it's a dense landform and coagulation of vibrational consciousness and energy that is suitable uh, to the way in which they exist. Now, in, in uh, the Christian or Catholic text, for example, they it seems like Yahweh, the collective we discussed earlier, uh, oftentimes seems to be at a mountaintop. For example, Moses went to the mountaintop to collect the tablets and Yahweh was at the top of the mountain. Is is that storyline correlate to that nature? It does. Yes, it's a correlation with the genetic preservation that we were speaking of, but also the, the comfort uh, of a physical connection to a landmass of this nature. Now, are cities like Machu Picchu, for example, which are also at very high elevation, uh, far from anything else, uh, was that also a Naga civilization? It was, and, and the elevation is a consideration beyond what exists beneath it because the um, absence of any, um, we'll say, 
uh, inorganic vibrations uh, is something that these beings would seek out. Um, it is not to say that in ancient times there was the presence of toxins that you are dealing with today. Uh, nonetheless, what you may notice is the elevation of many civilizations today that are uh, existing in these higher mountainous ranges tend to have better health. And it isn't necessarily because of the elevation itself, but what doesn't exist at that elevation. And what doesn't exist is what the interaction of more human beings? The distortion, we might say, of um, beings who are not living in their truest alignment. I see. So mountaintops are better for health because the beings who tend to live there are more in alignment with a higher way of living. Is that correct? It is correct, but but also we could go on because uh, if you keep in mind the breath of fire, um, this being a technique that these beings had practiced for uh, generations of time, uh, the way in which they existed on a physical planet was quite different than a human. In other words, the way that you breathe today is a, a slower and more unnatural configuration uh, than the way the reptilians have been taught to breathe, which isn't necessarily fast in comparison to your breath, but not necessarily in the same, um, we'll say, range or depth uh, of what your breath requires. So is it fair to say, although not obviously on the whole, that reptilians typically built their cities or villages or living areas either at very high elevations on mountains and, and so on, uh, or underground, whereas the Anunnaki tended to build on the general surface of the ground in pyramid cities and other structures. Is that, that difference in their architectural decisions? It, it is, and, and we agree. And and we want to infuse an idea here that that may be stepping ahead of where you're going, but we think it's important and and would be well understood. Uh, if we look at a mountainous range, uh, often. There is a portal that exists beneath or within it. Uh, Many might understand even today in visiting a mountainous range, there is a consciousness and some access to the inner earth, uh, whether it be for the purpose of obtaining valuable crystal or or elements uh, or time traveling. Uh, And this was another purpose for the uh, location of the enlightened Naga. But the Anunnaki at the ground level uh, understood that these beings took possession of these very, um, we'll say, prominent gateways and access points to the inner earth. Either they were stationed there and tapping into the valuable crystal and elements available to work with, uh, or they were somehow becoming guardians um, uh, on the surface of the earth of the access points to areas that the Anunnaki would have preferred to own. And this accounts for some of the um, warlike tendencies uh, between these two collectives, where the Anunnaki were very interested in using precious elements and crystal uh, in their technologies. And many of the Naga had situated themselves in prominent locations where those elements and crystals existed. 
So, and this is prevalent, it seems like, in ancient to modern iconography, where even um, in the U.S., in the U.S. seal or the, the, the dollar, for example, we see the iconography of the eagle, which is Anunnaki. And, of course, for example, the Federal Reserve, uh, same thing. We see the golden eagle, but then we also see in its talons um, a ribbon, which is sort of stylized if we look at other countries we see that that ribbon is actually a snake or uh, a naga of some sort. So that is that suggesting this war between the two of them that was taking place? It is. And, and you will continue to see this on the timeline that you exist on today uh, until this understanding comes to light. Because if we go back to the origins of this story, um, we know that the basis of much of their activity had to do with the enslavement of others. When you see, we're talking about when you were talking about their activity, are we talking about the combination of the two of these uh, reptilians and the Anunnaki, or are we talking about the Anunnaki? We're speaking mainly of the Anunnaki here. Okay. Now we know from in our previous discussions that we have a reptilian nature that uh, also has certain negative qualities or properties as well in our modern society. So if these reptilians were known for um, helping us develop these teachings of higher consciousness and meditation and inner stillness and, and so on, breath of fire, for example, um, so basically inner mechanics, um, then uh, then how is it that they um, that that we also see this negative quality of the reptilians that is also instilled within us that causes many of the problems in the world? Well, there are many factions of reptilians that exist yeah. on planet Earth, and these factions have, have hybridized within themselves. So so when you speak of the Naga, you're only speaking of a very small subset of uh, an entire uh, race of beings that, that came to a planet because uh, of a cataclysm. And many of these beings that took up their residence in the inner Earth have not evolved in the direction of being enlightened teachers or, or respected by human beings on the planet. In fact, their presence may not even be known. Now, um, when we speak of your genetics, uh, we always want to reiterate that the intention of all of those who seeded humanity was pure and love-based, uh, even the reptilians. But any time that the evolutionary process of a race becomes somehow swayed or influenced, things begin to go awry. Uh, and this is where we could simplify because it is, of course, a very complex story by saying that you have been forced into a very mind-driven type of creation. And that has not been through the reptilians alone, but, but also influence of the Anunnaki, for example, for if you are connect, or if you are to connect uh, to your emotion and empathy as deeply as possible, uh, much of what has been created on this planet would never happen again. Uh, but um, uh, we can say with great regret that humans have been taken off their evolutionary timeline and are replaying some of the same stories that we have been taking account of uh, in these transmissions. And it is not just through a reptilian influence that, that this has, has happened. Uh, yet the hybridization process, um, 
perhaps needs to be brought into this conversation because when you have been hybridized away from the pureness of your genetic template, um, meaning there's an imbalance somewhere and your structure is defaulting to a way of being that is not natural for you. Uh, ultimately, things are going to go awry. And that for humanity has been sovereignty, the understanding of individual power, but also how it is tied to collective consciousness and unity. Um, so, so we could say that there is a reptilian consciousness that you have been unfortunately dealing with. And it isn't necessarily reptilian only. (laughs) We use this term widely to represent an inability to see beyond the self and to believe in the autonomy of the creator that you are. When you use the term reptilian influence, we're not referring necessarily to reptilians or the Naga themselves. You're referring to I guess what I'm trying to understand here is where does that nature come from? Is it the reptilian nature to look within that creates that sort of ego sense in society today? Not necessarily, but we understand where you're going with this question, because while the reptilian enlightened teachers would train others to explore their inner worlds, Those who are here that are in the most difficult state of uh, evolution are attempting to change the planet to their liking. So there is a, a there are a great many influences, we would say, that exist on your planet today that are holding you back from realizing the true power of your energetic and physical structure as one. Um, even the close proximity of these reptilian beings to humans throughout time has changed the human DNA genetic dramatically to the point where it's limited you in your access to certain DNA strands. It's made you more physically and materially focused. It's focused you into density and has caused... Um, we'll say, a a focus on physical creation or even energetic creation through the mind. And while certainly the mind is a very powerful part of the reptilian structure and is for humans, humans are not meant to create through the mind alone. Um, The entire suite of extra sensitive abilities must be activated and used in concert. And this is the part of you that has been hidden. So, so what we're distinguishing here is the difference between the Naga or those known perhaps more throughout ancient history as enlightened teachers and other reptilians who have been here in very dire straits who are not faring very well on a physical planet, but using tactics to make it their own. Is it reasonable to say that those reptilians or Naga who originated the spiritual teachings we still follow today, such as meditative practices or pranic breathing or yoga, for example, that those teachings were initiated for benevolent purposes for the advancement of human beings? Or was some of that also done for 
control of the human genetic and also to direct more of human energy to uh, empower these particular reptilian beings. Well, you can easily see how it could have been both and has been both a part of your history. There has been benevolent and malevolent focus uh, in these areas. It is not to say that all meditative practices and, and yogic teachings uh, were offered for the benefit of the humans who received them. Uh, some of these have even been interpreted through humans and changed very dynamically from their original um, presentation. Uh, but if we are taking the focus of the mind, we, we think it is an important consideration to look at how manifestation has been taught in a third dimensional reality. We believe much of this is reptilian in its focus. It does not necessarily mean that manifestation being taught through the mind is malevolent, but it is not the full application of your possibility. And it has been lowered in its vibration to assume that a soul must only satisfy itself with no consideration of the other. It has been brought through the filter of ego. And, and because of this, what we call reptilian consciousness has actually started to thrive, uh, thrive within humans in very unnatural and egoic ways where they are attempting to manipulate the laws of the universe in their favor with no consideration for an entire race or planet at large. And this has a lot to do with energetic siphoning because anytime a soul is very ego, egoically focused or singularly focused, uh, they are not tapping in to a, a wellspring of energy and a matrix of vibration that is here to support the whole it is why hierarchies still exist on your planet today and and a few are sliding the many. It is not because the few know more than you. It is because the many have been trained to break apart a very valuable energetic connection that is meant to sustain all. Now we discussed uh, earlier about how the Naga tended to prefer areas of more solace and they chose mountaintops and also underground. Another interesting archaeological um, uh, phenomena seems to be, in particular in places like India or Ethiopia. Okay, well, I have to, we'll start it a little bit before that. But we took it to as far we could go, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll finish this when we come back. And in between, we're going to have uh, music from the stars. And, uh, we'll also have our brother Richard is going to give us some astrology from the stars. And also Tanya Gabrielle and Kay Pasha. So oh, we will that. take a break right now. On we go. So, to the stars it is. <laughs> okay, so big hugs, everybody. We'll say namaste for now, and we'll see you in about 10 or so, 10 or 15. <coughs> Aloha. Richard? 
All right, all right. Here I am. Oh. Oh. So. I was, we just wanted to make sure you had your, the 12 minutes sound like you had something to say. Yes, I'm here. So, yes. yeah, I guess I have something to say. All right. Welcome to the autumn equinox. It was at 2.50 a.m. Eastern today. So instead of looking at the 9 p.m. chart, I'm looking at the 3 a.m. chart for today. And you can see from at, at 3 a.m., everything's in the overhead sky. And uh, Jupiter and Uranus are still conjunct there in Taurus. And next door to the to the west is Chiron in Aries. And Chiron today is at 19 Aries. And then you got Neptune. Neptune is at 27 Pisces. And good old Saturn. Yeah, Saturn is uh, often underrated with its importance, but Saturn's at uh, two. Two, 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 two Pisces retrograde. And then you got Pluto. Pluto was just below the western horizon at 3 a.m., position is still hanging out there at 28 it's moving Pluto is moving at a half of one minute of arc so that's pretty slow now when you get to the other part of the chart Venus rises first then Mercury then the Sun, and then Mars. So Venus Venus is at 19, Leo. All right. And Mercury is at 13, Virgo. All right. The Sun's at 1, Libra. And Mars is at 18, Libra. So that's the, that's the positional condition. I don't know what else to say about this chart, but for quite some time now, we're going Venus is going to be a morning star, and it'll be square. Venus is square to Jupiter right now. So both of those beneficial energies are with us all throughout the daytime hours. So when you're up and out and about and doing your activities and everything, you can just know, no, you can't see them, just know that they're out there doing their radiation thing. And you can walk your walk with the support of Venus and Jupiter. Now, that's about it for right now. The moon, the moon here is in lovely, lovely Capricorn tonight, and it's the first quarter moon. All right. Well, 
his uh, first quarter yesterday, his first quarter overnight, and most of the day today. And uh, so we're all good. I'm feeling more optimistic this week. Maybe it's because it's a bit cooler and it hasn't been raining over here. But that's that's my report for now. We'll take a look at next week after Kaipacha. So uh, let's go let's go check out what Kaipacha's got in his mind. He's being he's being talkative today. Thirty five minutes of Kaipacha coming up. Back to Rama. Here we go. Kaipacha with the weekly Pele report. I'm out here at Lake Istan outside Marbella. And that is the highest mountain that's around this whole area. And it is beautiful today. I am going to go sit under the Bodhi tree. <laughs> now, it's not a Bodhi tree. It's just the only tree. <laughs> Moon's in Scorpio, folks, going into Sagittarius, and it's going to stay there right on through Friday, uh, squaring uh, Mercury tomorrow, trining Venus and Chiron as it gets in there, and Friday's our big day. Not only is it the equinox, the sun moving into Libra, but it is also a square moon. The moon is up there in Sagittarius at 29 degrees, 32 minutes of Sag. Just on the final cusp going into Capricorn as the sun moves into Libra. So it's really going to be something. And in addition to that, we've got Venus still moving along, okay, in trine to Chiron, around 15, 16 degrees of Leo. She's still picking up speed, coming back up from her underworld journey. She's not going to be totally done, okay, with that journey uh, until October 7th is when she will come out of her shadow. She went all the way up to 28, Leo, retrograded back to 12, took 40 days. This has gone on from July, her journey into the underworld, right? And then uh, stationed is and is coming back in her shadow. So you're going to see movement forward, new energy happening when Venus emerges back out of that shadow and moves into Virgo in the second week of October. Yeah. In addition to that, then we have Mars. Yeah. Mars is moving along through Libra. Been there really for, you know, three weeks and is going to be there a bit longer. And um, in now it's opposing Chiron on Sunday. 
this weekend, all weekend, Mars opposite Chiron. And then after Chiron, it's going to go on and conjunct the south node of the moon, oppose the north node of the moon over there in Aries. We're going to be talking a little bit about that. The sun, in the meantime, is coming into this in conjunct with Saturn. Same day, Sunday. By then, the moon is moving into Aquarius. I'm climbing the freaking rock here. <laughs> Doing a little multitasking. <laughs> but check out, I just, this is like desert, man. This is desert. Love these rocks. Golly. What else is happening? Mercury. Let's talk a little bit about Mercury. Okay. Moving up there and out there and on there. Moving through Virgo still. Thank God the retrograde is over. And comes into a trine with Jupiter. Mercury trine Jupiter on Monday. And of course, you know, it's a couple of days. So by then, uh, Tuesday, moon moves into Pisces. And there is another shift. Endless number of shifts going on here. Let me get one last shot of this lake before I look at the camera and talk to you all about it. There you go. All right, everybody. <clears throat> How are we today? Have you made it through <laughs> these last I don't know, v Venus turned retrograde July 23rd, and, you know, we've been through Mercury retrograde and Venus retrograde and all the planets retrograde, except for Mars, and then Virgo, this whole month of the sun moving through Virgo, the sign of health, the sign of work, the sign of integration with our bodies, and with our body minds into work, integrating into society, issues coming up around, am I in the right job? <laughs> am I, are my habits and my lifestyle supporting <clears throat> my truth? And are my coworkers uh, got my back and supported even aunts and uncles, the fourth, uh, the, the sixth house in Virgo has to do with aunts and uncles. And it is this role of apprenticeship and our daily routine. And are we doing our exercises? Are we eating properly? Are we really? I mean, it is the culmination. And here now we are at the equinox. It's the halfway point from the beginning in Aries. The last six months have been about us personally, subjectively, inwardly contacting our talents, capacities, creativity, our truth, our self. And then we hit Virgo. And out of Leo, Venus still in Leo. But Virgo humbles us and says, you're not the only one. You're not the center of the universe. There's relationships. There's other people. 
there is society and culture and family and you, you have, you have to do service. You've got to integrate yourself and find your truth in a greater container. So now we hit this point, sun going into Libra and it's the culmination in one sense. It's like a full moon. It's like, okay, I have, you know, this is, this is who I am. This is my peak. This is, this is what I've got and what I don't have. And I, you know, I've analyzed it and here's my strengths and my challenges and, and, you know, it's like curtain call. Yeah. You know, and it's like we've been backstage, you know, getting our makeup on and getting our, you know, getting everything ready. <laughs> you know, and now it's time, boom, Libra. Curtains open. Audience is out there. These next six months, sun moving from Libra all the way around through Pisces has to do with, yes, I am. Now I need to integrate some way. With an individual, with a business partner, romantic partner, with a with job in, into society, take a larger role, uh, you know, and grow and evolve through dealing with ah, other people. <laughs> ah! So there is this freak out point, you know, there is this big, you know, this big period here. It's a big transition. And this is building up to the 180 degrees. Should I stay or should I go? Uh, Am I afraid of losing my creativity, my truth, my job, my identity, you know, my money, my, you know, and I'm going to hold back and I'm not going to participate in the greater whole. But it's too much. It's too big. It's too overwhelming. So all the doubts and the fears around losing myself. I mean, just how strong are we in our truth, in ourself, in my, this is who I am, this is my identity. I'm not going to lose it. Or I'm going for it, right? So I am, I'm in my strength. I'm in my truth. And uh, I know that my next step is to work with, express myself in, with, and through these partnerships. And so we are at this, it's the tipping point. And then after that, okay, for the next couple of months, sun moving through Libra, sun moving through Scorpio, Mars is in uh, Libra till October 17th. Then it's going to go into Scorpio for six weeks after that. The south node of the moon is going to be staying, uh, you know, moving slowly through Libra. I'll talk about that. North node of the moon coming up to conjoin with Chiron. I'm going to talk about this Mars in opposition to Chiron. Let's look at that because Mars in Libra, Mars in Libra wants to actively pursue and go forward and, you know, enter the debate, get on that stage Speak the truth and, and maybe, okay, arise or erase, you know, some conflict, some, you know, some feedback, some reactions, but, you know, let's, <laughs> let's deal with it. <laughs> so Mars and Libra is, you know, like, let's, you know, have intimate conflicts or whatever. Yeah. Conversations, intensity. Very beautiful now, actually, with uh, Mercury 
coming into this trine with Jupiter. Yes, because that is very fortunate. This is being able to expand out of my subjective little world, okay, and, you know, put myself in other people's shoes, other people's places, feel other people's feelings, and and be able to listen as well as communicate my own personal truth. So that trying for Mercury, of course, it's coming up a little later on, you know, after the weekend. But in the meantime, I, I really want to point out, we have a period here of a couple months with the north node of the moon coming through Aries, conjuncting Chiron. And now Mars opposite Chiron. Mars is going to travel on probably next week or so. It's going to oppose the north node of the moon. And this is, hello, folks, like, you know, get ready for it. But it is time to heal. And sometimes that is a crisis around how to assert ourselves, how to find the courage to stand, to trust our instinct, to trust ourselves, to assert ourselves without reacting, without overreacting, without, uh, you know, bombasting or aggressive uh, charging or pushing. But, you know, and so this Mars opposite Chiron, Mar, you know, Mars will be opposing that north node of the moon. Yeah, and that's, well, let's look at it. Mars conjunct the south node of the moon. That's the path of least resistance, the path of devolution. And that is to lose myself, to be manipulated, to be exploited, to be used, to be driven, to be, uh, you know, just like, huh? To be a slave or, a, you know, a horse with a master riding you. Yeah, that's a south node of the moon can be, you know, just like overly <clears throat> fearing confrontation, overly fearing being uh, losing the self. And so <sighs> withdrawing and not even going on the stage. <laughs> so this, you know, this opportunity here is to heal this masculine, young, assertive, you know, Chiron is in Aries for eight years, okay? It's its its only halfway through. We've got four more years of this, you know, everyone from like 47 to 53 or 54 has got this Chiron in Aries. And it has been persecuted or it has been shamed or it has been... It has past life memories of when I assert myself, speak what I want, try to take what I want. Bam. Something has stopped me. Could be seventh house partner, could be fourth house family, or could be 10th house uh, government institutions, uh, World Health Organization. <laughs> we won't go there. I've been told not to get too political. <laughs> I'll do a special on politics. But this, so we're at this key point, right, of owning ourselves, not losing ourselves, but not running away and being afraid of the bigger world or other people, okay? And so 
There is this should I stay or should I go? Bom, 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 bom. <laughs> I got so many songs for this week, but first I want to read you uh, what I feel is like very, very powerful because it is the last degree of Virgo. The sun coming into the square with Chiron. I'm going to read to you the 30th degree of Virgo. Totally intent upon completing an immediate task. A man is deaf to all allurement. The keynote is the total concentration required for reaching any spiritual goal. This is the final symbol of the first half of the cycle. In the year cycle, the fall equinox is now at hand and autumn begins. That's in the northern hemisphere. (laughs) Through spring and summer, many ways and byways have been experienced. The last message of this hemicycle of individuation is that on all decisive occasions, what must be done has to be done so intently that no outer voices can penetrate the mind, still less the soul. The neophyte stands at the gates of the sacred pyramid. There is only one step that they can take ahead or they are lost. This is the culminating step, the decision that results from a myriad of small choices. Still a shadow of hesitation can remain. Attention may be distracted from the now by a voice from the past. Glamorizing some old memory. The outer doors of perception and thought must be closed. So the soul can complete its conquest of illusion. Many times I have talked about Virgo as a sign of initiation. The Virgo Pisces axis is the axis of initiation. Every initiation involves a separation, an isolation, a testing period, and there comes a moment of decisive, you know, test, question. And this is it, (laughs) the 29th degree, right? Of Virgo, and it's squared by the moon at the same time. So it's very powerful. It's not just the conscious, it's the subconscious. It's not just the light, it's the shadow. It's not just the, you know, the will, it's, you know, the, the, the feeling. There is just, so there is a tension. That moon wants to break out of this Sagittarius natural law, universal truth into concrete Capricorn action. So this is a big one, not just an equinox, but also a sun square moon. 
So you may find yourself on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> you may find yourself on the precipice of change. And you may hear voices or memories or, you know, feelings from the past or into doubts and into fears. You know, all this coming up because we are right on the edge of Libra. And you might wonder, should I stay or should I go? That was one of the songs that I thought of. Should I stay or should I go? Another one by the animals. I don't know if you know it. It's my life and I'll do what I want. It's my mind and I'll think what I want. It's an old one, but I'll put a link to it. And another one. You're pushing too hard. You're pushing too hard. You're pushing too hard on me. All I want is to just be free and live my life the way I want it to be. <laughs> you know that one. That's a, that's a very, I think that's the animals too. Eric Bergman, man. That was a great band. <laughs> anyway, that's the Leo, right? That's the Cancer. <laughs> that's the Gemini, Taurus, Aries. You know, it's just like, you know, I, just, I work very hard to find myself and to get where I am and to da 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 And, you know, these other people, the boss, the parents, the partner, the spouse, the kids, the, you know, all these other people are like, you know, wanting me to, you know, change or step out of myself or, you know, be, and this is another one. To be empathic and to be sympathetic and to be able to put ourselves in each other's shoes. That's what this mantra is about this week. Yeah. You know, is to stop my selfish ways, my egocentric ways, my, you know, it's like, okay, I've got to hold and I've got to, I, 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 okay, well, guess what? You know, there's an audience out there. The curtains have opened, (laughs) you know, you know, you Became what you are for somebody else, for a bigger purpose, for a bigger role in relationship, for other people, for the world at large. If you're a counselor, healer, influencer, you know, I mean, teacher, I mean, you... We're not just here for ourselves. We are, we are seed people. We are here as bringers of a new paradigm. And you don't do that sitting in a cave. No. Well, you can do that sitting in a cave if you are working on the astral plane and you are so freaking enlightened and, uh, <laughs> you know, that you can function in other dimensional realms and move energy outside of the physical, emotional, mental, you know, social realms. So I, I, let's not, let's not limit it. And there's no hurry. This is the other thing. You can over jump. You can jump too far in and lose yourself. You can jump too far back and not engage. You can hang on the precipice and freak out you can do so you know there this but it is a evolutionary gate yes this is an evolutionary gate we are at the gate you are at the gate do you go forward 
did you forget your phone and have to go back? Or do you just want to stand there at that gate and just think about it for a little bit? <laughs> I, it's interesting because that actually the Sabian symbol says that is. It's, it's like we should, you know, go into silence. Go, you know, enter the void. Go deep down within. Put on the earmuffs. Put on the earplugs. Go sit out here on a rock. Talk to the water and the sky and the clouds. Right? So it is, it's, it's, a, it is a, like I say, it's a tipping point. It's a turning point. It's a very, very powerful week of energy. And I want to come through with what a little bit of what you should do is. Well, what you should do. There's no one size fits all. There's no answer or solution of everybody should do this or everybody should do that. No, let's get out of shoulds and look at your individual birth chart. And to me, the big point that you want to be following right now is 15 to 20 degrees of Aries. Where is 15 to 20 degrees of Aries in your chart? And what aspects is that making? That's where Chiron and the North Node of the Moon are coming together. That moon goes around every 18.6 years. The moon's node, the North Node. Like I said, it just entered Aries in July, July 17th. I think it's going to stay there till January of 2025. That is the leading cutting edge. That house is the leading cutting edge of your evolution for this year and a half. And it's not the same for everybody. And if that north node of the moon for you is going through your first house, It's time for you to stand up, you to take the lead, you to take charge, you to be independent, you to find your voice. And if that Aries is moving through your seventh house or your eighth house, this is a time for you to set your own self aside and your own will and your own independent, your your own rash impulses <laughs> and learn, evolve through relationship, partnership, eighth house intimacy, seventh house, you know, you know, mental and social and, you know, communication skills and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I mean, I could go around through all the 12 houses. But you just get it, you know, that north node of the moon going through the 12th house. Okay. Well, if, you know, if you've got, you know, Aries rising or, you know, maybe Taurus rising and that north node's going through the 12th house. Well, this is to step back. Maybe it's in a spiritual community or an ashram or a silent retreat or something like that or, you know, your, your art studio. But that, you know, that does have to do with relationship, right? Power housing your way towards spirit. Very quickly, if the North Node's moving through your 11th, it's groups and associations and communities and, you know, broadcasting, friends, 
associates, 10th house, career, 9th house, you know, travel, study, university, expanding into the foreign, going on the quest, 8th house, intimacy, and maybe even conflict, but, you know, like transforming yourself, you know, as a, as a result of, you know, alchemical union. So you're, this is, you know, I'm actively supposed to go towards union. <laughs> and, and the seventh house, like I said, is, you know, yeah, relationship and partnership could be a time for, you know, a soulmate, soul union, eighth house, seventh house, new people, uh, new relationships coming your way. Sixth house is about, yeah, work, co-workers. You know, and, and really putting your nose to the grindstone, you know, and really doing that Sabian symbol that I read. Yeah, like, get it together. <laughs> fifth house, Aries in the fifth house, that north node of the moon now is telling you for a year and a half, it's time to create. It's time to risk and gamble and go on the adventure and, you know, be your authentic self and, you know, uh, open up and show yourself. Fourth house, you know, it says, and this is time, you know, for me to work on, you know, my foundation, my family, my sense of security, my emotional realm and inner world. So it's, you know, so much, you know, so what, what other people say, I do need to really feel safe and secure and find relationships that support my emotional reality. See what I'm saying? See how these work. That third house. Yeah, that third house is going to be, let's, you know, write, speak, publish, communicate, get it out there, take classes, take courses, follow the, your curiosity, have debates and discussions and da, 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 you know, like, but really, you know, do a, a tremendous amount of communication with others. And that second house is get a job. No. You know, if you're the tra- if that transiting note is moving through your second house, it's time for you to you know actively cultivate your talents, your capacities, your bank account. It's time for you to really stand in your shoes, be a standing bull or be a sitting bull, but hold to your values and don't be manipulated, exploited, or you know pulled this way or that way, or you know convinced or converted over to something else. No, it's like. No, I need to like find, boom, my truth, right? First house also. Natural place for Aries. Chiron moving through there. North node moving through that first house is, yeah, I need to like really trust that I am, you know, whole, complete. And my body and my instincts and my truth, you know, and I need to... And I would love to have people come and follow me or come with me and... You know, but I need, I, I need to pioneer new pathways, experiment, freaking go for it, right? I wasn't going to go through all 12 houses in the paleo report. I have a school. <laughs> you can join my school. It's very inexpensive and I have a whole library of videos that explains all this stuff. I'm doing the astrology of water in the Bahamas next week. I'm going to be uh, swimming with dolphins, talking about Cancer, 4th house, Scorpio, 8th house, Neptune, Pisces, 12th house. But doing a lot of swimming. 
and sailing. And then Pluto, Scorpio, and the eighth house in Florida. If you really want to dive deep, we've got a small intimate group gathering here where we are going to do the deep dive into the red energy, the root force, the ourselves, our truth, and how that has to die in order to be transformed through relationship and intimacy into something even greater. Pluto is the force of evolution. Got to check it out. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> Love is forever calling me to give up my self-centered ways and not let the fear of losing my truth make me go when I really could stay. There's that stage fright. Yeah, the, you know, the curtain call. <laughs> it's time to get out there and do it. And you've practiced and you know your lines and your makeup is right and your costume and, and everybody's waiting and looking and there's other actors and actresses waiting for you. To, you, you got a role to play and, and you're like, oh, but you got to, yeah, go for it in the house. And I'm, I'm not going into aspects, but <laughs> it's pretty tricky. I got to say, doing the relationships and partnerships, okay, with the North Node in Aries, which is self, and actually the South Node going through Libra is bringing up, okay, all of our past life habits, the ruts that we've gotten ourselves in when it comes to how we relate with other people. And we have to really look at our shadow stuff, look at our automatic habitual reactions or responses or what comes up for us when there's confrontation or what, you know, you know, in order to, you know, really go forward. So it's, it's, uh, it's something love is forever calling me to give up my self-centered ways and not let the fear of losing my truth make me go when I really could stay. May you stay or go or <laughs> go your own way or be free or it's your life <laughs> for this whole week. And like I say, the next couple of months, ah, namaste, aloha, so much love. <laughs>
Good talking stick back to you, Richard. Thank you very much. All right, I've been looking at uh, next Saturday's chart. <coughs> but, however, full moon coming up this week. Mm. Yeah. And it's going to be... About two days before Saturday, the moon's going to get up into Pisces uh, Wednesday, and when it gets into Pisces, the moon is going to be almost full, and then it'll go through Pisces, and it'll get into early Aries, and the Full moon is going to be around four, somewhere in that fourth degree, fourth or fifth degree of the Aries Libra axis. And I just didn't bother to narrow it down any closer than that. Uh, we're at first quarter moon tonight, so... When you back up next Saturday night at 9 p.m., the, the moon is going to be at uh, 22. Uh, the moon is going to be at 30. All right, it'll be at 30 Aries next Saturday night. So back it up two days. That would back it up 28 degrees. Would have put it about two two Aries. Yeah, but two days ago, solar-wise, we put the sun, put the sun at five degrees. So the full moon is going to be around five degrees, four to five degrees. But the effects will show up you know, two days before. Is uh, how we. Uh, usually experience it, you know. Right. So Friday night, next Friday night, if you're inclined to uh, go to a show or a club or go dancing or anything like that, watch out for a full moon in Aries. <laughs> Probably one of the more dangerous full moons to be out and about in an urban area. Mm -hmm. So uh, I just draw your attention to that. Uh, there's nothing else. Well, again, uh, Venus is still going to be square Uranus and Jupiter. Uh, Mars is getting ready to square Pluto in late Capricorn. All right. And the moon will be square Pluto next Saturday night. So all day next Saturday, the moon is going to be square Pluto. There's some trines in there that are helpful. Mercury trine Pluto next Saturday. 
and uh, it'll be at 20, Mercury will be at 23 Virgo. So we'll have a an Earth trine with Mercury and Uranus and Pluto. And uh, then when, uh, when Mars gets closer to Scorpio, we're going to have Mars trine Saturn. And that's, uh, and the other sextiles, you know, Pluto sextile Neptune is still there. Neptune sextile Uranus is still there. All that other stuff's the same. So that's it. That's my report. I'm all done. Oh, yeah. You are, Richard. Thank you. All right. Well, I'm going to stick around and see what Tanya's talking about. Maybe okay. she'll talk about, maybe she'll talk about the full moon. Maybe not. Yeah, here we go. All right. Namaste, everybody. Namaste, Richard. Thank you. Hello there. It's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an astrology, numerology event, the stars and numbers so that we can be prepared and leverage the event for our highest good. And in this case, it's going to be the Aries full moon, always a pivotal event around this time of year. And in this case, the Aries full moon happens on the 29th of September, which reduces to 11. So it's a powerful portal day at 10.57 a.m. Universal Time in London. That's 5.57 a.m. Eastern Time, New York, and 2.57 a.m. Pacific Time, L.A. Now, Mars, the ruler of Aries, makes two connections, and that's really pivotal because... The first one is an opposition we're going to get to shortly because there are three oppositions in this full moon. Aside from the sun and moon, there's two more. Mars is opposite Chiron and Mars is sextile Venus. That's the second Mars event. And also Venus is square to Uranus. And then there's one more opposition we're going to get into later, the third one. But let's start with Mars opposite Chiron because Mars rules this full moon. Chiron is in Aries. That is, of course, the full moon we're looking at, the Aries full moon, and Mars rules Aries. So this is a powerful opposition, and it really activates the sacred warrior energy. And so since Chiron is about health and healing, the key to healing is to be able to express any tension. The opposition is a tense aspect that needs to find Harmony and balance. So anything that you feel, hostility, anger, express it in a healthy way so that it can be released. Because when you want to go after what you want, which is what Mars loves to do, you may come up against opposition, right? And this shows that. And so it basically says to keep yourself in a healthy place, you may recognize that you attract people into your life that 
reflect your unexpressed emotions, which causes tension, and then you have to express them somehow, right? So really it's about learning to assert yourself empowered through the Chiron love energy because Chiron, the healing that happens through Chiron is, of course, through love. Now, fortunately, Mars has a sextile to Venus, and this is beautiful because it's the divine feminine and sacred masculine coming together in a beautiful 60-degree sextile, and so you feel a strong desire for love and affection, and your passions are higher, and you feel social, and it really is a beautiful connection of your inner sacred masculine and divine feminine, and also the external partnership. So it's easy to resolve issues with others, and creatively, you're really going to feel on fire. Now, that third opposition that we have, aside from Sun and Moon and Chiron and Mars, is Mercury is opposite to Neptune. And so oppositions truly bring an awareness through something manifesting in the opposite polarity. As I said, with Mars opposite Chiron, that could be literally a person who shows up who you attract into your life that reflects unexpressed emotions that you need to share in order to get the healing process going. But in general, the oppositional energy between two planets shows you that something needs to be manifested in your life that seems like it is opposing you just so you have that polarity in order to get clarity. So the polarity literally brings the clarity and the healing. And that means that there's a lot to be balanced around this full moon because we have three oppositions. So like I said, the third one is Mercury opposite Neptune. And that means you may not see clearly the difference between reality and illusion, between practicality and totally living in a dream, not being practical at all. So you want to take a time out for sure around this Aries full moon and leave big decisions for one or two days later because this opposition will want you to focus on things that are mystical to immerse yourself in something that is creative and really utilizes your imagination. Engaging your imagination is key to move through the opposition itself. That means putting on calming music, beautiful music, peaceful sounds, having peace and quiet around you, having beautiful scents, taking a bath, right? Holding a sacred space for you, for your loved ones, and make this full moon a time to relax and to rest. Now, Aries rules the head. And when we're talking Mercury, we're talking about our thoughts, And there are still six planets in retrograde. Mercury recently stationed direct, of course, but we have Uranus and Jupiter in Taurus, Chiron in Aries, Neptune in Saturn in Pisces, and Pluto in Capricorn. They're all still retrograde. So this Aries full moon with the sun in Libra, representing the balances, invites you to be consciously aware of the polarities within you. And in choosing to consciously purge what it is 
you don't want anymore and replace it with high vibrational choices. High vibrational choices are really the key. When we look at the numbers code, we get a bigger inkling of how this will be done. So 929-2023 adds up to 27. 27 is what I call the Gandhi number. It is really walking through life, being inspired through wisdom and love. So you're, you're a leader, you're leading your life through the frequencies of love and wisdom, compassion. And so 27 reduces to nine, two plus seven equals nine. And nine is the final single digit. And it is the number of endings, culminations and release. And release is really the key word here. Because as we are able to let go of that, which we seem to be fighting, the oppositional energy, we come to terms with it, harmonize it, heal it. Remember, Mars, the ruler of the Aries full moon, is opposite Chiron, the healer. So it's very, very important to listen to your instincts, Mars, and follow that thread of what that thing or person may be that is needing to be replaced through choices that are high vibrational. So if you want to create that change, then you need to change how you show up, in other words. And the moon in Aries, of course, Aries is a fire sign. This is very passionate energy. It's it's energies of fresh starts and you know, this, this full moon will feel a little bit like a new beginning just by virtue of being in Aries. You feel more confident emotionally. You don't want to give your power away. You feel a sense of setting yourself free and have a natural flowing forward momentum. The sun in Libra brings the balance and harmony. This Libra is the sign that rules the seventh house of partnership and marriage. So we want to see how we are within the context of any relationships because they mirror to us what it is that we need to see within ourselves. Again, that self-awareness. Now, we want to always with Mars energy focus on not the aggression, but the assertion. And this is really a key theme with Mars. So instead of being angry and violent, looking at how you can take your inner confidence and be bold and self-assured, having a direct way of dealing with things as opposed to internalizing it, ignoring it, and then lashing out, right? Circling back to Mars rule of Aries opposite Chiron, we need to balance those frequencies and we need to choose to listen to our heart, right? And choose to be with nature and listen to nature broadcasts herself, the voice of earth, your inner voice, they're all connected, right? They're the truth. They're real. They're an experience. Mars is sextile Venus and Venus is in an unusually long square with Jupiter. And this is important because it literally is going from approximately August 18th till September 20th. And usually this connection between Venus and Jupiter would last about a week. However, since Venus stationed direct on September 3rd and Jupiter stationed retrograde a day later, Venus at 12 degrees Leo, Jupiter at 15 degrees Taurus, this square is a month long instead of a week long. 
And as Venus moves towards 15 degrees and Jupiter moves retrograde towards Venus, this is a really amazing time to take that extra passion and effort to express your creativity in a way that is pleasurable and happy and joy. You want to hone in on what feels joyful and passionate to you. And yes, this is a square. And yes, these are fixed signs, Taurus and Leo. Leo, so will take that extra effort, but the impact will be deep. It'll be powerful. It'll be lasting. And as long as you put that barometer on what stimulates your creative juices and how you express your creativity is through pleasure, then this period is incredibly dynamic and unprecedented and amazing. So we have a lot of Mars and Venus energy, and then we have Jupiter in the mix as well, which is beautiful. And so it's a really great time to discover this connection, this wonderful divine feminine, sacred masculine birth that's happening within all of us right now. And speaking of balancing energies, I've created a free masterclass at venusmarscode.com called Venus and Mars Balancing the Divine Feminine and Sacred Masculine. And it literally goes into the whole transformation that we are experiencing now within us. It looks at the letter V and M for Venus and Mars. It looks at the 13 phases of Venus, the five-pointed star of Venus, the origin of the, the Mayan calendar. There's so much here, and you'll see a visual representation of the heart and the five-pointed star that Venus creates. It's a beautiful free masterclass. I hope you enjoy it at venusmarscode.com. So I wish you a beautiful week and a wonderful Aries full moon. And I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. Sounds like a good time to come alive with, from within. Mm-hmm. All right, everybody. Rama, give us all the all the numbers. Oh, the conference call number is seven two zero seven one six seven three zero one. And the pin code is 353863-POUND. Okay, one more time, honey. 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353863-POUND. All righty, everybody. We'll, we'll see you there. And then we'll be at the top of the next hour right back here at BBS Radio. Best radio in town.
All right. Namaste for now, and we'll see you on that conference call. One and all. Aloha. Welcome back, everybody. That was called night. And there was a deer in the clouds running through the air. And then the deer in the clouds disappeared, and it was just the night. Mm. What a beautiful imagination, you know. Lovely voice. So, Rama, you want to back it up just a little bit, right? Um, okay. Just a wee bit. That's good. All right. So, well, here we go. Didn't quite back it up. Just a wee bit. Okay. All right. Michaela and G e- and a matrix of vibration that is here to support the whole. It is why hierarchies still exist on your planet today and and a few are sliding the many. It is not because the few know more than you. It is because the many have been trained to break apart a very valuable energetic connection that is meant to sustain all. We discussed uh, earlier about how the Naga tended to prefer areas of more solace and they chose mountaintops and also underground. Another interesting archaeological um, uh, phenomena seems to be, in particular in places like India or Ethiopia, um, there are some ancient civilizations who built um, sites or cities um that were carved into the earth, so into rock beds. It, it seems as if they uh, carved the entire site. For example, Kailasa Temple in India uh, is appears to have been carved entirely into the ground from one solid piece of rock, uh, or even some temples in other parts of that you know region or, or uh, regional countries in that area. Was this also the Naga that did that? This is a Naga influence, yes, mainly for the reasons that we have already stated, because any inner earth chamber is going to hold a resonance uh, that is very conducive to their vibrational needs. Uh, it is also very purposeful in, in healing humanity because the inner earth holds very uh, intense and pure vibrations that can be tapped into uh, if a structure has been architected or designed in a specific way. Uh, we want to remind you of how these temples were so ornate and carved with stories, for example, having Akashic relevance. Uh, much of this can also be seen um, in some of these inner earth chambers uh, well beneath the ground uh, where souls would rest for days at a time and receive an infusion of light for for it is not only the pyramid connecting to the uh, universe that is most important in transformation uh, earth herself is one of the most powerful portals and gateways to universal energy so so this was a consideration in the choosing of these various locations 
uh, where, of course, very important ley lines and magnetic grids existed. Well, you mentioned how the difference in technological use with the reptilians or Naga was that they used more of the inner technology, whereas the Anunnaki used external technology. Um, much like today, we may use uh, different kinds of electronic devices as an external technology, right? Now, how did they carve out an entire site or city inside of a in, in a in a very large piece of rock uh, without any external technology? Much of this was done using sound and light and, and very similar to how some of the pyramids were constructed that we have explained previously. But it was not always the occasion of a light ship coming in and using an ornate temple through which light and sound was injected. Sometimes the Naga, for example, had the ability to use their own energy and vibration to visualize what it was they desired to create collectively such that the design would come to full fruition. Meaning alchemy happened through a vehicle of consciousness and that energy was brought in from the cosmos to the earth to actually change entire landforms. This is why um, in these ancient times you would see the, the perfect symmetrical cuts of stone that may not have seemed possible with the various tools of the age because it was not a physical tool at all that created the result. It was using the harmonic and the sound of of multiple souls in unison meditating and chanting to create what had evolved. It is hard to accept we know. Um, humans today could not believe such a thing uh, could actually take place. And it was not a miracle instantaneous manifestation by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, this sometimes would take years of dedication where human souls would even come to observe the process and learn themselves how to contribute uh, with their own vibration. So it wasn't physically carved in the sense that if you were to physically carve a piece of stone, you would have the dust from the stone in the area. So they projected their mind through vibration and, and what, and did that mold the stone then? Or was there, was it, um, was the stone that was there before that had to be removed? Was it, removed into the environment? What happened? How does the process work? Well, let's first use a very simplistic example that we think many would understand. Um, in today's reality, it is an unfortunate occasion that you are subjected to weather modification, uh, for example, or technologies like HARP that are using energy and vibration uh, directed at a specific geographic area to create a very specific result. These beings had the intelligence, the wisdom, and the energetic power uh, to become the technology themselves, more for the benefit of what they were attempting to do. And, and this is why 
And we could say that this also adds to the idea of the Anunnaki using outer technology and the Naga using inner. You cannot create an inner earth temple of this magnitude through your own energy unless you are aligned in the highest intention of all, because the universe is supporting that endeavor. That is why perhaps technologies that are harming humans today exist outside of themselves, because there is no necessary interface with the laws of the universe. Um, It is something operating beyond um, and perhaps in um, contradiction of those laws. But you're asking about the material. Uh, and we want you to remember that these beings were alchemists. They were able to change uh, the the properties of rock uh, and gold and crystal uh, into something completely different simply through the projection through mind. Now, all of the elements that were not needed in the earth formation still became a part of the structure itself. It was um, somewhat like an, an elemental elixir that was undetected in a physical sense. In other words, the alchemy of rock took the shape of what was needed and all that was not needed became an immediate part of the environment around and within it. There was no detectable trace of anything that was left behind because it was all used as a part of the vibrational field in which the structure would remain. That is why simply stepping onto these properties or into these regions, uh, many extra sensitive souls can feel a tremendous shift of vibration even before walking up directly on the site at all because all that had been alchemized in the configuration of the structure still exists as energy surrounding it. You mentioned that um, the Anunnaki and the Naga or reptilians did interact um, in, in this timeline we're in today and and as a result, some of that inner technology or outer technology might have blended together to produce new ideas or new ways of architecture. Would that be true? Uh, it is true. It is yet unknown. And, and, and we want to add that we do not think that outer technology, in other words, has to be something that is always malevolently focused. Um, we can go back in history and provide many examples of of great inventors who um, lent their knowledge and skills to leave behind healing devices, for example. Um, yet um, the intention of the beings that are creating the technology must always come into consideration. And the level of consciousness of those who will receive it is also a part of the equation. Well, I guess what I'm specifically trying to understand is in, in some parts of the world, we see a very different kind of architectural design in ancient sites. For example, they use polygonal stone structures, meaning the stones were all kinds of odd shapes and sizes, and yet they fit together like puzzles. That doesn't appear to be 
for example, Egyptian pyramids were built in a, in a much more even structure. Um, was that polygonal structure a reptilian construct? Not necessarily. We see these structures uh, more representative of technologies that would have been created on the planet outside of self, um, meaning they may have been um, generating a specific tangible sound uh, that was vibrationally cutting through stone. Uh, but in every occasion, um, there was always a template that was used. So, so we want to speak to a moment, uh, for a moment, uh, to what a template is because many would assume that a template is somewhat like architecture. There, there is a vision of the structure that we are going to create and, and every inch is accounted for and perfectly measured. Yet that is not necessarily the case when it comes to the creation of these various structures. What the beings that were creating them were focused upon is the, the end result or the outcome, meaning what this structure would provide those who are apt to use it or to reside within it. And they allow the universe to download the template for them. This means that if you were using a technology like cymatics or sound, you were working with universal energy to make the best cuts and orientation of stone that would fit together in a way that would create an end result. And sometimes this accounts for the very archaic looking uh, structures that you see today that, that nonetheless fit together very perfectly in terms of the various shapes and cuts but look quite different than what you might see in, in Egypt, for example, or in India. Uh, these templates were a bit different. Some of these were generated by light beings who were brought in to uh, manifest the end result of what those on earth desired. And um, a template could be formed as light. And through that light, sound was injected. And that sound changed the reality of the physical earth in which it was injected. So so if we go back and we look at these structures individually, we're going to see many commonalities that that are um, similar throughout these various timelines, but also slight differences as to which technologies were used, uh, how the templates came together, and how the various properties of Earth were manipulated. So these light beings that worked on these specific kinds of architectural projects, were they reptilian or Anunnaki or something else? Many came from Orion, uh, especially in the um, um, in the uh, Egyptian uh, age. Uh, some of them from Lyra, uh, many different locations because. The reptilians who were here, for example, uh, those that had the benefit of the people in mind, had very conducive relationships in the astral. Uh, they sat on councils with many of these different cosmic families. So there were agreements that were made. Those that existed beyond the earth, uh, especially those that had come at the very beginning and and in in the process of seeding humanity had a vested vested interest in creating various 
technologies, we'll say, that would support the rerouting of the Earth's evolutionary process. And this was to raise dimension. It was to raise consciousness, a, a variety of different reasons. You mentioned that the reptilians were shapeshifters. And uh, now on Earth, they've taken very various different forms, some that are reptilian and some reptilian-human hybrid appearance. Were they, when they were on Draco, did they have the same forms or were they more in a reptilian form or something totally different? Uh, well, most of the reptilians that came to Earth from Draco look very similar to what they do on Earth, with the exception that they could shapeshift from material into light at will. And even though this happens uh, on planet Earth today and has an ancient civilizations, there's a slight difference uh, in how this process takes place. Because to shapeshift from physical into light, it, 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 it requires um, a certain dimensional uh, access, uh, meaning uh, beings are operating well beyond uh, or into the fifth dimension, which which we believe is a gateway to to all uh, dimensional uh, energies. But because of the Earth's speed of vibration, it's a bit of a slower process, meaning to go from physical into another form may take a, a bit longer, uh, could be an arduous process, may not um, result in exactly what this being had been hoping for. And there has been hybridization, as we have spoken of, with human beings and reptilians. And much of this has further slowed the process. So, so as we look at modern times and reptilian hybrids that still exist on the earth today, what we see is more of a human presentation than we actually do reptilian. If we go back into ancient times, we're seeing more a reflection of how they appeared in their own star system. Okay, just to make sure I understand correctly, in the original seeding of humanity, um, at that time, the reptilians on Draco were in the 12th dimension. And what you're saying is, um, and I'm going to formulate some ideas, you can tell me if I'm on the wrong track. What you're saying is that at that time, because they were 12th dimensional beings, they were able to go from physical material um, to light. But when they came to Earth in the third dimension, they were not able to do that quite so effectively. That's correct. Yes. Okay. Um, now, in many uh, ancient temples in India in particular, they do show um, a lot of the gods and goddesses having humanoid uh, from the waist up, for example, and uh, like snake tails or reptilian snake uh, bodies below the waist. Was this a literal depiction of how they appeared in ancient times? Well, in many circumstances, it was. And, and, and this is a result of the time-space lag that perhaps we are speaking of. So so if in Draco, uh, a reptilian could shapeshift from a physical form into light and then came to Earth and had to adapt to a different way of shape-shifting, it could be explained as moving from one form to another, where 
all that they had encountered was influencing the form in which they would hybridize too. Uh, and we think many of the depictions that you speak of are representative of this type of experience. So when they were on Earth in ancient times, they preferred to uh, present themselves in this sort of hybrid form, uh, half human, half reptilian? Well, some would prefer and, and others uh, simply hybridized in that direction uh, because it was uh, natural for them uh, on a physical planet to do so. Could they also appear as, as fully human? Some can. It, it is dependent upon their level of evolution on the Earth, meaning uh, every race, regardless of the planet upon which it finds itself, uh, will fall into a evolutionary process adaptive to the planet itself, uh, meaning uh, how the reptilians would have continued to evolve on Draco was completely different to how they are evolving today. And on Earth, in ancient times or in modern times, the reptilians, does it does it require a lot of energy? Is it taxing for them to maintain a human form or a half-human form? Not necessarily, but at times it is dependent upon the situation. And, and this is where the idea of dimension can come into the conversation because uh, dimension is a um, deciding factor in how quickly, easily, or comfortably a soul is able to hybridize. Um, in the third dimension, for example, many of you are not tapping into the fullness of your DNA that allows you to hybridize, not into forms unnatural to human beings, but but into more of your crystalline properties or cosmic family abilities, which you're meant to express and, and also integrate. Um, and this is similar to what has happened to the reptilians. Uh, for example, they are hybridizing and they're certainly shape-shifting, but it isn't always into the forms they desire or expressed in the results that they would want. Uh, it's a longer and more arduous process and is capped somewhat by the dimension that they are in. Would it be reasonable to say that the majority of Indian gods, um, say Vishnu or Krishna and, and others, were reptilian. They are very much hybrid reptilians, yes. Okay. Would that be also true for Buddha? Uh, Buddha does have the influence of reptilian genetics, but also was tapping into a multidimensional expression uh, of his DNA. Okay, but what were his family lineage reptilian? Many were, yes. Okay, so he, because he was perhaps a bit more ascended, he was tapping into multidimensional lineage, but but physical lineage was reptilian then. Uh, we can agree with that, and and to say a lineage is physical only isn't necessarily satisfying the the laws of the universe because. Uh, so even on planet Earth, which is a more materially focused planet, uh, a lineage is is going well beyond uh, the the blood relatives before you. It, it is an infusion of every other cosmic being or family that you've ever been a part of before. And 
the Buddha was so enlightened that he was able to tap into parts of himself in other dimensions at will. Uh, and when you speak of shape shifting, this is one of the highest forms of that where uh, a being is able to tap into the Akashic relevance, wisdom and understanding of other parts of itself and bring it into the here and now to be utilized in a very effective way. So could this be likened to, for example, many of us today are operating more fifth dimensionally, but we may come from family lineages that are still very much third dimensional? Well, it is not necessarily that you are more third dimensional in your physical lineage. It is just what you have been focused upon and only what you are integrating. So so we can speak to the DNA in a bit more detail here because as third dimensional beings, you have been taught and believe that you are only operating in three strands of DNA. And those three strands of DNA are uh, representative mostly of your blood lineage, your ancestry, and all of the physical patterns that you have been imbued with that you are here to somehow resolve. But that is only a very small part of who you are. There are other physical DNA strands which may represent ancient lifetimes on earth, um, parallel timelines that you are still involved in, uh, in or on, and even hybrid aspects of who you are uh, on the physical earth. And there is an entire suite of crystalline DNA that run parallel to the carbon strands, which are pulling, um, drawing from all of your soul's expressions throughout the cosmos. Now, the reason that those in the fifth dimension are hybridizing more than the third is that they have accessed beyond the third DNA strand. And the fifth dimension is a multidimensional gateway to universal energy. And this is why so many are beginning to realize extra sensitive abilities or to speak with uh, cosmic families from beyond the earth. Um, These are ultimately parts of themselves that have become active and are integrating within them to be expressed in a physical sense. You mentioned that as just to sort of review, the reptilian race is more mind focused, some more higher mind focused. And many of these ancient spiritual teachings that many of us in the spiritual community even adopt today and utilize, such as meditation and um, pranic breath and so on, coming are coming from this reptilian lineage through various religions such as Buddhism or Hinduism and so on. Um, but if you're saying that our real power is in the emotional access and we've moved away from that, then our is practicing these these more Buddhist or uh, Hinduist religious spiritual practices that are more focused on inner development, is that taking us away? as human beings, from our most powerful selves? We believe that it is, but not in every occasion. So so what you must always keep in mind is that the level of consciousness of the race that you have incarnated to become a part of is going to dictate how the Akashic records become accessed. What many are practicing in in Buddhist teachings today, for example, is a magnetic draw from ancient times. There is a part of them that 
may have been reptilian or have become interested in that part of themselves. And, and that isn't necessarily wrong to, to explore something from before because we are meant to integrate it into our present moment. Where we get concerned is that if we become too mind focused, meaning we are only trained to visualize what it is we want or need or to satisfy our desires to, to manifest from a state of thinking. We will bypass a, a beautiful part of the human structure that, that we've been calling the emotional body, which, which is actually your extra sensitive connection to universal energy or what we call the divine. Because while in a reptilian being, the divine may run through a higher mind. In humans, it tends to run through the entire body, the entire structure. So if we are only thinking about what we need and what we do not have and focusing on it to manifest, we are missing out on what the universe is providing to us in each present moment, which may simply be a message about how we receive what it is we want or may be a direction we are meant to head that has nothing to do with what we think we believe and we need. So so we think there is some conflict here. In other words, there is a very massive reptilian influence that has become a strong part of your spiritual practices. And, and this may have been appropriate more in the third dimension because you've been operating in the third dimension in a linear and material fashion. So these teachings may have suited you more uh, as the beings that that you were, but you are now stepping into the fifth dimension and you are reclaiming, we'll say, um, all of the inner technology that you have been blessed with from the beginning of time. And this includes uh, deep feeling and processing of emotion to interface with the mind and and the spiritual body as well. All of these things working in concert such that you realize everything has somewhat been taken care of. There is an intelligence to the process that you as universe has put into place for yourself. And we think these teachings, even some coming from the Naga themselves, have yet to fully be explored uh, in the period of time that, that you exist. Um, and they are not just reptilian in nature, obviously. Um, the more you deepen into what you feel, the more you are going to release all of the trauma and all of the blocks that stand in the way of feeling itself. And feeling is a navigation for humanity to understand its path of salvation. For if everything is pre-planned and it is yet a mystery, all we have to go on is is each present moment. And in solace, this is what the Naga were attempting to reclaim themselves because if they were too involved in the busyness and the mechanics of a mundane physical life, they would have been too interrupted in the mind to be clear enough to receive what it was they needed, taking each step in physical forward as it came. All right, let me try to articulate in a very simple, basic way my understanding of what you just said, and you can tell me if I'm on the wrong track. So the reptilians focus primarily in the mind, um, and teachers who uh, who profess the teachings of that were teaching things like yoga, meditation, and um, 
breath of fire, things of that nature, or reaching a state of mind stillness, which also was taught by a lot of Greek philosophers, I assume, in the under the terminology of Stoicism, which essentially is the the stillness of the mind and the um, not getting involved in emotion. Um, so am I correct in assuming that that is, if I were to sort of very simply articulate what the reptilian teachings were, that that would encompass it? We, we agree with what you're saying, yes. Okay. Now, by contrast, if let me try to articulate what you mean by emotion, um, which is different. So emotion might be, for example, if I were to look at a piece of art or or let's say a child and just be amazed and, and feel the love and, um, or joy or inspiration in, in that thing. Or, uh, those are, when you say emotion, are those the kind of things that would fit into that category that reptilians by their true nature would not be able to experience? We agree with what you're saying. Uh, human beings are not here to think things into being. They are here to feel things into being. And, and that is a very prominent difference between reptilian beings and, and human beings. Because if you are to bypass the very ornate and prominent emotional structure that you have been created within, then it is very easy for others to take hold of your creative energy. Uh, the mind is a very pow- powerful part of your structure, yet if it is not used in concert with your ability to sense and feel, then you will always be scrutinizing things from a place that is not organic and true to your nature. So feelings like enthusiasm, excitement, uh, love, passion, those would be emotional qualities that are distinctly human. Well, even sadness and and fear, we do not think that these emotions are necessarily bad or wrong. But what happens when humans have been hijacked through the mind is that they are able to feel but are often directed in the feeling, meaning those that are in control can access the mind to the point where stories become the norm not necessarily what is real. And while everything that you experience is 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 real and and tangible, what we're getting at here is an organic process of manifestation that is your birthright that you have always been oriented to to. Uh we could even call it preference. Um humans are taught to use preference through the mind to think about what it is they want and what it is they don't want. But in each moment, if you are to deepen into your emotion and you are to express that emotion organically, you will be clear enough to always know the way because the emotion is going to be the GPS of your eternal life. And the mind is an accompaniment of that. Think of emotion in terms of vibration. This is what the original cedars had in mind when they architected the human structure. It is no less a template than anything that we have discussed in this transmission having to do with pyramids or or technologies. The intention of the original cedars was to create a race that operated different than any other in the universe. And this is why 
feeling on a physical planet became the premise for many souls coming in to incarnate in physical vehicles that the cedars created because it was never done before. Even though in star systems like Pleiades, for example, and even in Sirius, beings experience emotion, they have evolved to the point where that emotion does not interfere with what it is they are here to experience or create. And unfortunately, on planet Earth, there has been interference in that process. And and that is why we are attempting to show you the difference in how creation takes place within you versus reptilians. You're not meant to think things into being alone. You're meant to feel everything to its deepest and highest degree. And through that experience, become something other than you ever were. Because what a soul truly wants is to not remember who it has been before, but to experience itself in a form that has never been. And that is ultimately the the origin story of humanity. Um, many souls throughout the universe wanting to experience something that had never been before, but this evolutionary path has unfortunately been stolen from you. So, so feeling isn't something that has to get in the way. We see humans suppressing feeling, but, but feeling to the deepest level is going to make a physical and mental connection in a very spiritual way to the world around you. And this is where true purpose and fulfillment uh, actually comes in. Uh, the enlightened Naga teachers, they were not necessarily here to focus humans on the mind, but distill the mind enough to allow those feelings to arise. And that is what you are going for ultimately in meditation, to be present with the world in a way that that no other race throughout the universe is able to accomplish. Now, in uh, we were talking about Buddha a while ago and how he was from a reptilian lineage. Uh, his parentage was parents and family were reptilian in nature. And if we go back to ancient times, in particular, in that you know India, Cambodia, that region, we see a lot of actual historical evidence of the. Uh, kings and queens of ancient times having been from the Naga group or clan. Uh, in particular, in Cambodia about 2,000 years ago, there was a queen, the first queen of Cambodia was said to be a Naga, and her name was Soma. Uh, was that true? It is true, yes. And Soma was said to be a group of, uh, part of a leader of a group of pirates who were attacking human beings at the time. Is that true also? Um, Not necessarily a part of the story that we agree with. Okay. She was said to have married an actual human male in in the end and um, stayed with him for his life. Did that sort of intermarriage occur between Naga and human? This was quite common uh, during this period of time, and and that is why you have seen so much hybridization as, as human beings. Uh, we don't necessarily believe it's it's a negative thing whatsoever. When we talk about hybridization, we know we have been speaking a great deal about the exclusion of emotions and the focus of mind, but 
The reptilian vibration is sometimes very pure and conducive to a human soul's own vibration. So can a can somebody like Soma, for example, and her husband, can they procreate a child, even though they're from two entirely different groups of you know us races? Much of this was done in a tantric fashion, so you must consider that. Those that were hybridizing uh, to this degree uh, were not necessarily capable of a physical intercourse or interaction, but were so uh, adept and trained at a tantric um, uh, infusion or we'll say exchange uh, that pregnancies did occur. And the pregnancies that occurred, were they human or reptilian or sometimes one or the other? Very Of varying degrees. I see. And does our knowledge of what we, at least what's passed on to us as Tantra, come from the reptilians or does it come farther back in more ancient times? So many different star systems throughout the universe and races on planets beyond the earth have practiced Tantra in their own fashion. So what you see coming to earth is, is a blending and we'll say a contribution of, of many different intergalactic um, hybrids who have used these techniques um, not only to procreate, that was not typically the purpose, but to sustain a, a balanced vibration. And Buddha's case also, he came from a royal family, which I assume, you know, a reptilian royal family similar to Soma. And so it seems like a lot of the ancient royalty or even the concept today of kings and queens or royalty it came from Anunnaki too, it appears, but but it seems to also have come from the Naga as well. Very much so, especially on the planet Earth. So why is it that these more enlightened Naga created these hierarchical structures where they were worshipped as royalty? I can understand why the Anunnaki did that, but why would a more enlightened race, although they were, as we discussed, third dimensional when they were on Earth, is that why? That that does uh, account for some of the reason that, that we would offer, because in the third dimension, there is a bit more separation and ego, and it lends itself very well to a more hierarchical manifestation. Yet, you must also consider that some of the Naga, the more enlightened ones, did not set out uh, to become worshipped. They were seen as enlightened teachers with great powers and, and sometimes even feared. So the humans on the earth that received their teachings uh, worshipped them simply because they saw them as more powerful than themselves. And, and this continued to evolve through time. And, and so in the case of someone like Buddha, who uh, the story goes that he left his royal palace because he saw that humans were suffering. And so he went off on his spiritual quest. Now, is that because was he born with this multidimensional aspect that caused him to take this different path? Or was that something that just came as a natural progression of his genetic lineage? Well, very enlightened beings who exist in a lower dimension 
still retain their multidimensional access. So, so imagine that uh, a master like Buddha, for example, uh, would be having an experience of suffering on a physical planet, but not necessarily um, affected in the same way as others were, uh, even though the Buddha had um, a tremendous amount of compassion uh, for the human beings that existed in the timeline he was in, he was still evolving at a very rapid pace beyond them. So what you're speaking of here is something we would define as a timeline shift or even a timeline jump, not even necessarily a decision that was consciously made, but but a being manifesting into a different dimension because the one that he existed in was no longer conducive to his vibration. Now, in in his case, when he left his palace and the um, the his family environment and went off to pursue a spiritual life direction, I assume that considering he was also reptilian, the the practices that he was teaching were also mind-based, such as meditation. Is that correct? They were, but not in the same way as others, because every reptilian-human hybrid or intergalactic being is going to translate the teachings um, a bit differently. Uh, in regards to Buddha, there was certainly a focus on the mind and especially the higher mind, which is a connection of the pineal gland or the third eye. Uh, when the third eye is awakened through the very intricate and subtle connections that uh, go through the mind, there is um, uh, a consciousness expansion. And this was a part of, of his intention and his goals uh, in his teachings were not only to still the mind, for example, or to find solace or quiet within the self, but to activate a sort of chemistry uh, or um, uh, innate process because the pineal gland is not exclusive or separate of the other chakras. It is one of the most powerful chakras that when humans bring online will activate other sensory abilities and gifts. Um, and this was um, immersed, we'll say, within his teachings. Okay. On a, on a side note, does did Hinduism also originate with the Naga or the reptilians? Some of the Naga uh, provided the foundational teachings of Hinduism, but there is also a great deal of influence by other intergalactics, or uh, we might say um, hybrids. Okay. So, for example, we talked about Vishnu being reptilian or many of the Indian gods, but um uh you're saying some of the indian gods might have been other um other collectives yes because during this time and in very much like uh other ancient periods uh, the enlightened ones who were practicing were activating parts of themselves from other dimensions and it was very easy for them uh to to infuse these parts with the whole um, Vishnu, for example, was very adept at um, managing multiple timeline realities through his inner sight and physical perspective, meaning he knew of himself in other dimensions and the activities that were going on there. 
And he understood there was a relationship to those activities and what he was meant to do on the plane of earth. And that is where he drew his great powers. So to say that he was only reptilian uh, is to negate um, this powerful access that came very naturally to him and, and many others of his caliber. So today, are we, uh, is, is it taking us farther away from our fullest potential if we're still practicing these teachings such as of ancient Hinduism and Buddhism that were originated by reptilian beings? Uh, it is a difficult question for us to answer because we do believe there are many souls on planet Earth today that are meant to intersect with these teachings for a great purpose. For some, it may be to expose uh, reptilian influences that no longer have a place uh, on the earth today. And for others, it may be to take what was taught and to modify it, uh, translate it, in other words, into modern day practices that are better suited um, for humanity. In other words, tailoring what was left behind to a brand new collective at the same time, we know that many of you are growing out of the need to focus on mind at all, even though we know it doesn't feel that way in your physical bodies because the mind has been under attack. But sometimes when there are alternate technologies, for example, that are feeding the mind with programs, it isn't the best time to focus on mind-driven spiritual practices because these two things are in such conflict. And that is why we have been stressing all along the need to feel deeply, because the more that a soul feels, it will awaken out of some of the false programs that are being fed into the mind. And the way that humans have been taught to feel is actually putting a cap on their spiritual progression, meaning to feel for the purpose of self or to not feel, to exclude things from reality has been more the norm. What reptilians have taught is to still the mind enough to allow the divine to flow through unencumbered. When we are in the present moment on planet Earth as a human being, and we're feeling in relationship to each present moment, the same thing happens. So, so we believe this is a period of Emotional balance, which is ultimately the divine feminine within you, as well as embodiment, which is the bringing together of mind and emotion as one. Well, how do you distinguish? For example, I'm sure a lot of people would would say that emotion's a bad thing because especially nowadays, there's a lot of violence and aggression and anger and wars on the planet, which are also emotional, I would think. There's a lot of suffering on the planet. So how do we distinguish between what you're describing as emotion and these other behavioral patterns? Well, it is not that emotion is not the driving factor of the acts that you have brought to our attention. It is that the mind has been led to only focus on the negative aspects of human history. And for that purpose, these acts repeat. So, so it is like entering a library. If your mind was a library, but the librarian only directed you to the volumes of history that were sorrowful or fearful or evoked very uncomfortable emotions. You would come out of the library feeling very defeated and might even act out of those emotions because they were the only things that you knew. 
Suffering perpetuates on this planet because humans have been directed through the mind to a very limited human story. And he even have been focused into historic past timelines that reflect these negative emotions that impact a soul's desire to act out in very negative ways. And in fact, some of the Buddhist teachings having to do with awakening of consciousness were more relatable to what is now called emotional intelligence, which which of the day may have been related to solace in itself. Because when a soul is recognizing the emotion that it has, if it is an unnatural emotion that causes discomfort, it should be a warning bell that something is going on, a pattern that is repeating. Uh, it, it needs to be interrupted. But what consciousness allows a soul to do is bypass the librarian uh, to to explore stories that it never knew existed, to even go back in time within its own history and bring in courage um, to understand where true joy comes from and and who it is beneath all of the distortion. These are the things that we think are more important uh, as you go forward in your evolutionary process. So, so no emotion is negative in our mind unless it becomes more the norm than any other. Because if you are here as, as human beings to feel into being, then to create a multidimensional earth uh, of your desire, you must feel to the greatest degree, to the the most diverse spectrum. And that requires that you are very aware of what you are feeling and why. Well, it seems to me that most mainstream modern spirituality is based in Buddhism or Hinduism or some variation of those two which obviously are very more, very much mind based. So what kind of practice would, would we do? Right. Is it, first of all, is it fair to say that we should move away from that practice as a dominant part of our practice? For example, maybe not spend so much time on meditation and yoga and, and those kinds of practices. Well, well, where we think these practices are very beneficial for humans is to develop the ability to become present or mindful. And and that is what stilling the mind in a meditative or yogic practice uh, brings into being. Um, and that leads to a connection to your emotional body because humans are suppressing emotion or activating unnatural or negative emotion because they are either in the past or in the future. And and that is how easily the human collective mind has become hijacked. If the librarian can in, can direct an entire group of human beings into the past or into the future where things exist that are either fearful or perhaps not even meant to be, then a lot of energy is wasted and there is little attention to what's going on within what the Buddha was attempting to achieve was a state of connection to the inner world. 
to still the mind enough to feel what was going on beneath the surface. So even though there is some reptilian influence here, you can see that there was a combination of other influences involved as well. But we also acknowledge that many of these teachings and practices have been taken out of context and in in many respects been been hijacked by reptilian-like beings or consciousness for personal benefit, um, whether it be uh, pride, ego, vanity, or money. And because of that, they are leading humans astray. Uh, the only way to negotiate with this as an individual being is to feel into where the practice is leading you in your personal life, because there should be an obvious connection to what you are practicing and what you are experiencing in your life. It matters not whether you are having challenges that you are presented with, but how those challenges are faced is the deciding factor. So, so emotion can come about, um, but how we express that emotion and the message that it brings to us, we think are the missing points in many of these teachings because it is assumed that we should be still and not feel. But if we miss out on the feeling, we will never know ourselves in the process. Well, it seems obvious that we have many examples of spiritual practice to become more reptilian in the sense of developing the mind. But um, I don't see a lot of evidence of spiritual practice and developing emotions. So what would be some of the mechanics of that? For example, would you surround yourself with things that make you inspired or do things that get you excited or to feel emotion? What what would be a good mechanical or practice of emotional development? Well, well, something that we notice human beings have a hard time doing is being in the body because the body represents discomfort, sometimes pain, or it is an analogy of uh, our self-expression into the world, meaning it is something we have to control or, or present in a light that is acceptable. But to truly be in the body is to feel to the highest degree. So so what we suggest between your various meditative and spiritual practices is to really get grounded into physical reality and the physical body, to to be present with every activity and to take one activity at a time uh, as slowly and deliberately as possible. This is like a moving meditation uh, within itself. But we don't have to have uh, profound astral experiences or cosmic interaction to, to actually gain something. We begin to witness ourselves as that astral and cosmic being that we desire to interface with beyond the veil. And that is where we think emotion can truly blossom in its most real state. Now, those of us who are here um, speaking on behalf, for example, of the Nicole or the Council of Light um, have transitioned to a 12th dimensional reality. And, and in order to do that, we have been taught that emotion is the way, meaning that we have to feel everything that comes into our experience such that we are able to move beyond it. And this is a technique of higher consciousness where we can become so intimately aware 
of what we feel in a physical sense, that the feeling does not define us. It begins to become a message as to how we are defining our reality. And that is where the value truly lies. Because if a soul has carved out a path um, long before it has incarnated in a physical body, that path is something that can be manifested into higher and higher octaves of vibration. And what we are going for is not to evolve beyond the circumstances that we do not desire or that are uncomfortable, but to evolve within and through them. And that takes a certain level of perception where we can feel whatever it is that we feel, but we're so in tune with the feeling that we guide it as opposed to it ruling us. We think this is where some of the more enlightened Naga were leading with these mindfulness practices, but they may not have been fully developed enough for humans today to reap the rewards or the advantages of. And and we think even today, modern teachings of universal law have been somewhat skewed through a more reptilian consciousness where souls are taught to feel something that they do not feel at all. If there is pain, they are asked to feel the opposite. If there is loss, they are asked to feel the opposite, such that they manifest a reality where the pain no longer exists, where the loss is no longer present. But we think this is a a complete deviation from how you were designed, because if you do not go through the emotion to understand who you are, you will never become who you were meant to be. And now is this because the reptilians back then when these teachings were initiated, such as Buddhism and Hinduism, they were incapable of feeling. So they couldn't really teach human beings how to use that as a tool. Well, well, from a, a very wide vantage point, uh, what we might say is even though these enlightened teachers, many of them had well, the highest intentions for the students that they were teaching, uh, they were also inhabiting a planet that they were trying to make their own. Uh, in other words, this was Earth was not meant to be their home and their home had been destroyed. So so these teachings were creating a path of more comfort and peace for them, but perhaps not necessarily the full picture of what humanity was capable of becoming. So there was was there interest in teaching human beings these mindfulness practices, although maybe somewhat benevolent, was it really to make the society of the planet more like them, more reptilian, so that they were more comfortable here? Yes, absolutely. And to this day, that's would that be true? It is still true. Yet what we've seen is, a, a again, a huge deviation from, from many of these these ancient Naga or enlightened teachers where um, human souls today are, are assuming these positions and taking these reptilian ideas to an even higher level. So what would a reptilian being, for example, if we were to, as human beings to experience the emotion of love or joy, how does a reptilian being interpret those kinds of um emotions if they don't feel emotions do they not experience love or joy so let's say in a in a coupling uh, between two reptilian beings what is their definition of what that 
is? Well, those that have evolved through the 12th dimension truly no longer need to distinguish between different emotions. They are typically in a perpetual state of, of bliss or joy simply because they are connected in unity or in oneness. They're there is um, no need to establish individuality um, other than to contribute to the whole. So in a coupling situation, um, you can see how easily um, a human's uh, connection can be made in perfect masculine and feminine balance. It is not that there is no feeling, but, but that feeling is always um, a reflection of the enlightenment of the two that come together as one. But as the reptilians inhabited Earth, remember, they went from a more 12th dimensional reality to a third or sometimes even a fifth. And because of this, their emotional bodies were taken into an even lower state. So so they have somewhat a connection to emotion because they had traveled through time and space and evolved beyond it. They understand what it is, but on planet Earth, we're, we're not used to working with it or having to feel it. But nonetheless, many of them have begun feeling it anyway, because in close proximity to humans, uh, they have hybridized to the point where emotions confuse them today. So so the original humans um, that were seated uh, were given an emotional body for a very specific purpose. As the reptilians came to Earth, they hybridized with that emotional body to understand humans better, but to not necessarily have to feel the emotion within themselves. The more enlightened ones were in a state of bliss or compassion with no need to feel suffering, for example, or or dismay or argument because they didn't see themselves as separate of another. These lower vibrational emotions that you feel that, that we've said are not necessarily bad because they evolve you are not something that reptilians necessarily need to deal with anymore. They, they see themselves as one, but on a physical planet have now become separate and are very confused. So, so emotion does happen within reptilians, um, but to varying degrees. And it is still something that isn't necessarily accepted um, nor um, embraced and can cause them a great deal of confusion. You know, many of our war leaders today appear to have no emotion. Uh, they're, they seem very cold and calculating without thought can declare war and destroy the entire livelihoods of people um and seem to make decisions very comfortably on that level now are they reptilian hybrids that are uh in some way appearing as human beings or are they just simply tapping into the reptilian consciousness more than the rest of us well it is both um it, it's some of the upper levels we'll say of of government agencies um those that are in the highest positions of power uh, you are looking at a true hybrid blood lineage. Um, these are hybrid human reptilians who present themselves more in a human fashion, but also to some degree may have the ability to shapeshift. There are many others who come into government positions and various agencies who are not 
reptilian by nature, but because a consciousness exists in that space, uh, are influenced nonetheless. Um, it is not to say that every human in a government position becomes reptilian, but just like those on earth who began to feel were very confused, those who have good intentions also become somewhat influenced and confused by others in positions of high power, or they're simply unable to do the work that they were set out to do because there is no ability to move it forward. So we think it is somewhat across the board. Um, however, there is a very prominent race or we'll say group of reptilian hybrids that have continued on in government positions who uh, still retain power today. And so you said by proximity to human beings, they are becoming more human or more emotional. Is that Would that be true for even these individuals you're speaking of? To varying degrees. And, and, and many of those in prominent positions of power are having a, a taste of what it might be like to fear because they have become very vulnerable themselves. Although it is assumed they are in powerful positions and somewhat succeeding in their endeavors, keep in mind that this reptilian lineage is not a very strong one that is well surviving. So, there is a time frame, uh, we believe, in which important change has to be made on this planet to retain uh, a level of control. Uh, and we believe that the feeling of that is certainly tangible uh, within many. Well, in previous conversations, we've talked about how there's a blood lineage of the Anunnaki to modern times and world leaders but we're not talking about how there is a reptilian blood lineage too. So which is it or is, is, can you help me understand that concept? Well, what you're seeing in the timeline, we believe is an Anunnaki influence that has fused or somewhat merged with this reptilian lineage. Because remember, there was a crossing of timelines eventually in which these beings both contributed to each other's endeavors and also fought wars. But from an Anunnaki perspective, what, what we want you to keep in mind is that the genetic preclusion to Anunnaki is preservation of the DNA, of the race from which they come. And this is not exclusive only to the Anunnaki because you have a reptilian race that is focused on the very same thing. So often in high positions of power, there is more of a tangible connection to the Anunnaki history, um, the legacies they have left behind, the various techniques, technologies, and teachings that they have used. But the energy of the beings in power are, um, or is, we'll say, more reptilian in nature. It is much like every human being that exists on planet Earth today. You all appear very unique in your presentation. You are all tapping into a predominant cosmic and also earthly lineage. Uh, this is going to be different for every human being. Yet the very few at the top, we might say, have been influenced from both of these legacies or generations, the, the Anunnaki as well as the reptilians. Now, by that, do you mean that they 
interbred between the Anunnaki and the reptilians and those bloodlines because they're intermarrying throughout generations are still pure to those two original groups. We can certainly take you back to a period of time when this was the intent, uh, meaning the Anunnaki and the reptilians set out to create a hybrid being that carried the, the most, um, we'll say the best and most prominent aspects of who they were on a planet in which they were not meant to fare well. Um, and this is certainly seen in the combination of the genetics of those in power. Yet, well, some, yet some associate more with one than another. Okay. But from a purely physical genetic lineage, they originated as a uh, coming together of both of these races of beings who interbred perhaps in ancient times. Perhaps what we can say is that the carbon DNA or the physical DNA is more representative of an Anunnaki race or family where the crystalline or the vibrational aspect of these human souls carry a reptilian connection. Okay, this kind of goes back to our earlier conversation about how the Anunnaki focused on more external technology and the Naga or reptilians were focused on internal technology and the genetics still carry are true to their lineage today. Then, Yes, we agree. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up there for today and we'll continue the conversation next time. Thank you, Michaela. And thank you all for joining us again for another Channel Revelations. We'll see you next week for another Awaken Empowered podcast. Okay. I guess we will move along. Yeah. That kind of got clipped short there. Um, okay. Oh. What? Um, Teresa Bullard. Yes, Teresa Bullard. Thank oh. you. Yes, yes, yes. Let me hear. Oh, let's here. All right. <clears throat> Science of physical manifestation. With Teresa, Dr. Teresa Bullard, part two. Mm. All right. Why does the law of attraction, why does the law of attraction, often not deliver the goods? Is there a Better map for this journey. Continuing from part one. Mm. Dr. Bullard brings forth clarity to the high art and deep science of physical manifestation. Foundations must be built before you add the roof. <laughs> To your temple of the self, introspection and subconscious cleansing 
are a good start. Pop culture encourages self-entertainment and gratification. Learn to discern positive, balanced ego from narcissism and direct your focus into the collective higher good. We each contribute to all that happens through the quantum field. Learn to see how you think. Accept the revelation. Revolutionize the life. You are part of an inherent oneness. God, I'm going to turn the page here. God is written. God is, oh, excuse me. God is within and beyond. We are grounding rods for we are grounding rods for divine activity on earth and sticking with a coherent plan optimizes results. A multidimensional blueprint is here. Step up. Step up, step in and activate this co-created initiative through your life. Create and experience peace, beauty, and an Edenic reality. Books can books can help. Yet wisdom must be lived for life to progress through ascension. Handle powerful teachings responsibly. We are all in this together. We each affect the whole. Teresa Bullard is an author, world-renowned speaker, mystery school teacher, and host of mystery teachings on Gaia TV. Studying Jung, New Thought, and Alchemy synchronistically led Dr. Bullard to life activation. Succession, sessions, which in turn led her to one comprehensive path taught through the new mystery school. Here she found powerful applications for activating the inner plane and catalyzing shifts that brought pieces of her search together into an accelerated journey of empowered living. Okay, you can find Expanding Consciousness on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, on your favorite podcast. That's good. Please be Ooh. sure to rate and review Science Ooh. of Physical Manifestation with Dr. Teresa Bullard. All right. Are you ready, Rama? Yeah. And this is one hour and two minutes. So here we go.
Welcome to part two of my conversation with physicist, author, and teacher of the Western Mystery School, Dr. Teresa Bullard. If you listen to part one of this episode, then you know that Dr. Bullard has not only a profound knowledge of quantum physics, but also is a wealth of information regarding the practical applications of Kabbalah, which makes her such a fascinating person to speak with. We left off our conversation with a bit of a mystery regarding the creation of the universe, tying in both the quantum perspective of how the universe was formed and what the ancient Kabbalists knew about this and creation in general. If you listen to it and return to this conversation, the chances are that you've spent at least a little time thinking about the potential within the vacuum or the void where we left off. In many mystical traditions, That void is a function of consciousness, which has enormous potential. And you will get a sense of how that potential can be applied in your own life in this episode. So stay tuned. You know, I find it so interesting because if these conversations in seasons one, two and three have implied anything about the mystery of consciousness, they would be two primary things from my perspective at least. All of our guests are involved in some sort of consciousness research, as you know. And it's always through this research that two themes seem to emerge, no matter how different their research might be from one another. Those themes are that one, everything is interconnected, and two, that reality is a construct of consciousness. The Kabbalists and other mystical traditions have said as much for aeons. Quantum theory and other consciousness or cognitive sciences now seem to be pointing us in the same direction. And I find that so fascinating. In the season three primer, I briefly spoke about these emerging themes, mostly regarding interconnectedness. The idea of how consciousness on both a personal and impersonal or collective level is co-creating reality is pretty much still a mystery. So I'll leave you to decide whether or not it's true. I personally have found it to be very true, but consider the source. I am a student of Kabbalah and have been for many years, in addition to other consciousness studies and spiritual disciplines. I also love the conversation and I apply wisdom whenever I'm exposed to it. So before we begin part two, I would like to make it absolutely and abundantly clear to you, the listener, that the inclusion of mystical and spiritual perspectives regarding consciousness does not imply endorsement or negation by the sponsor of this program, which is the Monroe Institute. Monroe Institute is a research and educational organization dedicated to the understanding and exploration of consciousness. It's always taken a neutral stance regarding spiritual issues, but is greatly interested and does research around expanded states. Hence the reason we have so many incredible guests. Everybody is welcome to this conversation. As spirituality has always been an important part of human consciousness, the producers and I felt it would be negligent on our part if we did not include the topic of spirituality and stayed only with the cognitive sciences. 
from our perspective, in the realm of consciousness and our understanding of it, we still have a lot of ground to cover. Monroe Institute is quite interested in how consciousness affects reality, but holds no absolute stance on how this is done. We consider it a mystery to be solved. So with all of that said, we know that many of our listeners are interested in the topic of how consciousness and matter are related, so we thought you'd find our guest today fascinating. So without further delay, here's part two of my conversation about Kabbalah and creation with physicist, author, and teacher, Dr. Teresa Bullard. Hope you enjoy it. And that then becomes that singularity point where it's infinitely dense points of light that, you know, this unity of, of all light, all source energy filling this tiny little vacuum. And it becomes so full that that tiny little vacuum space cannot contain it anymore because it's infinite energy is flowing into it. And that is where you have the, the shattering of the vessel, mm-hmm. the explosion, the big bang. And then, you know, all the stuff, the particles, the sparks, the, you know, the, the souls, everything comes out to the light. Everything starts coming out. And then from there, you know, it scatters all around. And, and then the tree of life comes in. Uh, you know, well, the tree was kind of there first as 10 emanations as it expanded out. But then it, even that shattered and then all the parts had to be regathered at some point. And then, you know, the tree of life is kind of the, the way in which it's stabilized. So from, you know, going back to the quantum perspective, that manifestation out of the quantum vacuum, you know, like a lot of people these days, they like to talk about quantum observer effect as a mm-hmm. way to creating, you know, kind of mixing it with law of attraction and right. sort of creating potentials out of the quantum. That's a, hand-waving kind of loose explanation, I would say, because from a physics perspective, to really affect anything at a quantum level, there has to be a very concentrated, intense, coherent source Mm -hmm. of energy uh, that comes in and uh, disturbs the quantum vacuum or, or creates a quantum jump, a quantum leap. So I would say that, uh, and this is one of the things that I really, you know, teach and, and am passionate about in terms of a quantum consciousness is that we have to, it's not just about law of attraction, like affirm it and think it and, you know, meditate upon it, whatnot, then it's going to come to you. From a Kabbalistic perspective and from a quantum perspective, number one, we have to reach stillness. Mm-hmm. The true stillness and emptiness of thought. Mm-hmm. They have to reach that zero point. Then number two, you have to really have coherence mm-hmm. with your total being, right? Brain coherence, heart coherence, gut coherence, mm-hmm. you know, like coherence of purpose, right? All parts of you aligned with that purpose and, and that intent. And that coherently is then observed or sent in. Uh, by will alone, we send that into the, to the quantum field or to those potentials and draw it out, you know, and, and, and let it collapse, like collapse the waveform, um, out of that quantum field. So it's not, you know, the problem with a lot of attraction stuff is a lot of people go about it egoically. Um, they're, they're trying to just manifest things from an egoic perspective. And maybe, maybe the higher consciousness is not actually aligned with that. 
Um, or maybe their consciousness is aligned with it, but then their subconscious doesn't believe they deserve it, you know, and they sabotage. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which people's consciousness is not coherent. Um, so, so that is a huge key to really being able to truly tap in from a consciousness perspective, tapping into being able to manifest out of that, that quantum field. But then Kabbalah would say, well, it didn't just end with the, the, you know, the, the quantum level of it. We had to bring it down through the four worlds mm-hmm. from, you know, from that, that archetypal level into, you know, a creative level, into a formative level, into a manifested level. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about idea, thought, plan, action. Mm-hmm. We might observe and, and draw out the idea from the quantum field or the mind of God, the divine mind um, consciousness, and then brainstorm it and get all this vision and all these ideas and expand it. But then we got to contract it. We got to bring it into a coherent vision. And once you have that coherent vision, you have to plan it, you, you know, you got to put the blueprint together and this is where we can bring in magic, but we can also bring in creativity, but we also have to bring in organization of the mind and how we're going to make things happen. Mm-hmm. Then there's always action. Like we're here in the realm of action. You can't manifest things without taking action. You can't sit on your couch all day, hope it's going to happen to you and wait for it to come. You have to get out there and do something. At least be present, show up in some kind of way. Well, or, or this is where magical practices come into play, where you can do sympathetic magic. You can, you can work it from a magical perspective to draw mm-hmm. it in, but there's still action being taken. Mm-hmm. There's, there's sacred words being chanted. There's something that impresses itself into the field of physicality that then draws it in. Um, so there's a, there's a deep science, uh, I would say to how we, manifest uh in the the Kabbalistic system and the in the Western mystery tradition. Uh there's a deep science that is both um technical in its scientific understanding but also magical in its recognition of the power of, of will and the power of consciousness. Um, and yet we have to harness it. We have to train ourselves uh to get to that point where we can really be very masterful and effective at it. Yes, there's an awful lot to unpack in just what you said there. Okay, so let's talk about the four worlds, time, space, consciousness, and how things manifest in the world of action, the world of Asiya in the Hebrew language, from an egoic versus a unified mind perspective. Mm-hmm. To begin the process, one has to understand that this is a co-creative initiative that's taking place in the world of action. It's not do what thou wilt shalt be the whole of the law, to quote Aleister Crowley. It's my world. You're all just living here. Uh, No, we're all creating this together. And we're creating it in alignment, theoretically, or hopefully, with a higher mind consciousness. If we can align our sense of purpose with that higher mind consciousness, we can create a more peaceful, more blissful, more Edenic kind of reality that is not a product of magical thinking or religious philosophical thinking. It literally can happen because we are creating reality. At least that's what the quantum theorists are now telling us. And it's done through consciousness. 
Same thing that the mystics have been saying for ever. So your message is first learn to observe how it is that you're using your thinking, that ideas can come and that they need to be harnessed and focused with a laser like precision of energy held at the same time with an understanding that these ideas aren't really unique to you. You are somehow being informed by a higher mind intelligence. I'm rephrasing what you just said. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's good. Okay, so Uh, that's stage one. Stage two is to learn how to harness and focus that energy and put some kind of practical application behind it, which we'll say energizes it in the physical world. Is that an accurate assessment of what you just said? Yeah, learn how to how to harness oneself and, and also harness the elements that are around us here uh, so that we can be effective. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there's a lot of people out there with their ears perked up right now. How do you teach people to do all of this? You offer an awful lot of content on your website and through Gaia TV. And you give workshops and seminars. How do you get this wisdom into other people's bones through direct experience? Give us a flavor of that because it's a long-term work, is it not? Yeah, it's it's a path. It's a journey. Uh, it's not like a one-time fix. You know, some people these days want that quick quick uh, route. Right. They want the shortcuts, and you know, I think that there's always consequences and and repercussions that come when you try to take shortcuts. Yes. So. Uh, so in the ancient wisdom, the true ancient wisdom traditions always have required, a, you know, a path and to walk that path and to dedicate oneself. And, you know, we don't expect people to dedicate themselves right away, but to start walking that that path and, and to recognize it as a journey of building it up, because we want to awaken brick by brick, so to speak. We're we're building a temple of the self. Mm-hmm. And we are, you know, it's, you can't start with the roof if you don't even have the foundation. Mm -hmm. So we want to build the foundation Mm -hmm. and that starts uh, for us within, within the mystery school. It starts with people coming and getting a life activation session. That's how it started for me. That life activation session actually is working with the tree of life within your own DNA blueprints, Mm -hmm. waking it up. Mm-hmm. So we're turning that on in, in a very powerful way that used to be, it's a modality, it's not a new modality, it's an ancient modality that used to be um, reserved for the priests and priestesses of the Solomonic tradition as to help them access these higher states of consciousness. And it was part of a, a bigger initiation process that was like a rebirth kind of um, reawakening. And so we, we can bring and start people um, with get, getting that life activation. It's like getting plugged back into the potentials um, that are there. They're just dormant and it's, and it's kind of lighting it up. And then um, that starts it. Then from there, it's, there's, a, you know, initiation is a really important piece of um, it sets the foundation so there's certain foundational teachings and understandings that are all informed by, you know, the lineage and part of it is Kabbalistic. I think Kabbalah is in, in, in the, the kind of core essence of all of these teachings. We don't necessarily teach it from a, always like this is Kabbalah, but it is there. 
and it's the core tools, right? So it's the core key awarenesses, key concepts um, that the mind needs to start working with and then key tools and practices that we work with to start building that foundation. Mm -hmm. And those become a daily practice. And they don't take a long time once you get into the flow of it, but the the shift that happens, I mean, I find that, that people just wake up to whole new possibilities and realities um, and and tools and empowerment that comes from that when they take this this first step of initiation, which we call empower thyself. Um, and then you know it's steps, right, and a path, and and there are multiple steps of initiation, and somewhere along the way you can um, get into the Kabbalah ascension process. And we would go through a 10 month, about 10 months to a year journey of ascending the tree of life, studying. Uh, but, you know, Kabbalah, there's great books about Kabbalah out there. And, and I, I highly recommend people go read. You know, if, if no one's ever read anything about Kabbalah, I would recommend starting with something simple like Ted Andrews, Simplified Kabbalah Magic. It's really easy to digest. Um I love Will Parfit. You know, he, he comes from that kind of union perspective and, and then the tree of life and shows how the psychology of, of the journey kind of unfolds as we go through the tree. Uh, you know, I mean, there's great, there's a lot of great Kabbalah books out there, but the thing about any Kabbalah book is it's static. It's one perspective mm-hmm. and we are multidimensional we are alive and the tree of life is alive and the tree of life is in our dna and so you have to learn kabbalah in how it applies to your life not just how it is in a static book so the books can help us see different perspectives but ultimately we have to live it and and living it is where it really awakens within us and and through this ascension journey that we do over you know the course of a year within the uh, mystery school tradition it, it helps us start waking our our awareness our mind up to the tree mm-hmm. and its correspondences but but really more than just the book study of the correspondences is about our life you know you mentioned before the intellectual keeping kabbalah as an intellectual thing is not kabbalah mm-hmm. it, it it's a, it's just knowledge for the sake of knowledge and that's not actually going to serve you it only serves you when you can apply it into your life and live it and and progress as a result of it mm-hmm. and so it is the living it that gets it into our bones, as you say. It's it's that's the part where we really come to it becomes a part of us. It 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 informs everything in terms of how we perceive ourselves, how we perceive life. It helps us redefine who we think we are um, from from an egoic way of of you know indoctrinated personality based perspective of identity. Um, to no, I am not that. And that was, that was what I was taught maybe, or that's what I misinterpreted maybe, but that's not the true me. And I'm, I'm revealing, you know, Kabbalah said earlier, Kabbalah means to receive and it does, but it also means to reveal. Mm-hmm. It also means to accept. Mm-hmm. What I love about it is that these three go hand in hand. We receive by asking the right questions and by exploring and, and then, you know, the knowledge, uh, as we, as we ask those questions and we seek answers, the knowledge reveals itself, but the knowledge that reveals itself from within about the truth of the self is more important than any knowledge you can gain outside or from a book. That's right. 
And then when, only when we accept the revelation mm-hmm. and it then revolutionize our life. Mm-hmm. And so that acceptance of what is revealed is, is really key. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is where receiving and revealing and accepting all go, you know, hand in hand together. Um, because I've seen people, I've, I've seen people have profound keys delivered to them and they reject them because it doesn't match with what they currently believe or it challenges them to change their life. And it's easier to just say, no, that's wrong. I don't believe that mm-hmm. and reject. It. And then they hold, they hold that revelation and the transformation that could come from it. They hold it out. And they stop their own progression because of that rejecting of the, the revelation. Um, but when we do accept that revelation, it, it completely revolutionizes us. And one of the main revelations that Kabbalah teaches is that you are God. God is within. And yes, there is a God above. There is a greater, always a greater God that we are ultimately, um, you know, subject to. We will answer to at some point, but, but, but we cannot separate ourselves from God. And there is this inherent oneness. Um, and, and, you know, when people reject, no, I'm not God. No, God, no, God's out there. I'm not God. Right. When they, when they reject that concept, they're rejecting responsibility. They're rejecting their power. They're rejecting, you know, the, all the gifts that are going to come when they own their power and, and, and they're, they're denying themselves. Right. There's so much. One of the biggest issues in our world today is a lack of Mm self-worth and the shame. You know, you talk about that guard, you know, eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The very first thing that made us fall out of alignment was shame. We were ashamed that we did the wrong. We made, you know, we made this choice that was against the will of God and we hid and in our shame and hiding, you know, we dropped into a, a lower uh, emotional attachment and that dropped our vibration, which then made it impossible for us to stay in that divine state. And so, you know, we have to clear away the shame and re remind ourselves that I am divine. I am worthy. Um, doesn't mean I'm perfect now how, how I am. I mean, that potential is within me, but I have to grow into, you know, so in Kabbalah, we talk about reclaiming our crown, that we're, we see ourselves as a dethroned sovereign and we are here consenting. We are here by choice, consenting to this existence so that we can recover and reclaim our crown. We need to earn it. We need to, you know, take the responsibility I'm with you. I mean, obviously, it had the same effect on both you and I. And there's a part of the journey that we have not spoken about, which I think is important. Because when people get involved in these self-awareness programs, they're searching for something. They're searching for perhaps a divinity within or a connection to that divinity. Then all of that is good. Anything that serves the better angels of our nature, I'm all for. That said... Those who dive deeply into this and really want to own it or get it into their bones, there is no messianic or enlightened figure in history that's ever been presented, myth or legend or reality, that hasn't gone through the dark night of the soul. Yeah. It's all rainbows and pooties and synchronicities and unicorns right up until we get to that point. 
He's right up until the time we get to that point. <laughs> I know that, and it's important. I could go on for hours about it, but I want to hear you talk about why the dark night of the soul is important. You mentioned revelation. You can start there. <laughs> well, I look at the dark night of the soul as an essential part of the alchemy. Um, but, you know, my experience of the alchemy is it's not always all rainbows and fluffy and lights because from the moment that the alchemy gets catalyzed, you're feeling burned. You know, it, it, the ego in particular is getting burned and it's usually a wake up call. Something is really not working in my life or the rug gets pulled out from under you or there's some kind of trauma that, that shatters your comfort zone mm -hmm. and that catalyzes you onto the journey to search for, for healing and improvement in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and there's, so there's, you're talking there, about that experience as being the motivational principle to get people involved to, to begin with, i.e., you know, I'm in, in the throes of a divorce. My whole life has been blown up. I need some kind of spiritual answer to soothe my aching heart. Or something to help me, yeah, help me kind of regather myself. So yeah, that's an entry. Yeah, it is an entryway. But I'm talking about the. I, I know where you're going. Yeah, I know where you're okay. going. Go saying, I don't think it's all light and rainbows all along the journey. I think there are very challenging points along the way. Now, from a cabalistic perspective, so from an alchemical perspective, that that dark night of the soul, we call it the fermentation stage. Mm -hmm. It's. It's the fifth out of seven stages in the cycle of transformation. Mm -hmm. um, in Kabbalistic terms, we call it the edge of the abyss. We're mm -hmm. uh, staring into this abyss and and and, and trying to, to see beyond it. And you have you have a, the abyss is this place of of separation, this perceived separation between us and and God, right. or us and the divine. Mm -hmm. And you have this faith that there is a divine being that there is grace that there is you know this light and that it somehow is guiding you and yet you cannot see it and all you can see right now at this edge of the abyss is the darkness right and this is where that bible passage yea though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i shall fear no evil right part with me and, and this faith you know kind of factor comes in here but in the meantime you have to in order to really reclaim your godhood for example because that godhood is, as you've indicated before, is, is a oneness. It's all of it. Mm -hmm. You have to face and accept your inner demons, mm -hmm. you know, the darkness that is within you and, and, um, and integrate the shadow into the wholeness of you, um, rather than rejecting. And in that, what I, what I see people experience when they're at this edge of the abyss is it's all, all the fears that have ever stopped them, like the, the, the excuses that they've ever come up with to not take that step beyond, um, the, the, the things that they project, the doubts in the self, the unworthiness. Um, it's the, uh, you know, this dynamic energy that happens between power and mercy, you know, the, the war and the chesed, the, the severity and the mercy, the power. Am I ready to own my power? Am I ready to really be in my godhood? And how am I going to use that? Am I going to use it for the good of whole? Am I going to be merciful? Or am I, you know, and am I really ready to step into that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people, they don't want to do that work. They don't want to take on that responsibility. Mm -hmm. And, and so they, they back away from it. 
But for those who continue forward beyond it, they do have to go through this dark night of the soul. It's that letting go of the, 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 the deeper attachments of the ego that would keep oneself feeling separate or in egoic identity. And, and sometimes those attachments are really subtle. Uh, and, and yet they rule our life. <laughs> and so it's a long, dark night. It's a long process of introspection, you know, and, and, and it can really, you know, you get to this place sometimes where you're feeling like, okay, I'm God. I'm, you know, I got this right. And then you, you face <laughs> and, and you lose, you kind of lose faith in oneself at some point. Right. And, and yet you know better. And so there's this struggle with our own, our own doubts, our own unworthiness, you know, it's this deep struggle within the deep, the depths of the soul, uh, to, to move beyond that place and, and keep moving forward despite the fear, keep moving forward in faith. But at some point when you break through, the light comes in and you have that direct experience of the divine and your faith is transformed into knowing. And from that point forward, you know, your divinity, you know, God is real. You know that, that, that there is, you don't rely on faith as much anymore. You, you move forward in knowing this. And that's, that is a, a major leap in consciousness that has to happen. Uh, but to do that, we have to jump over the, or cross over the abyss, not necessarily jump, but we do this process of, um, building a bridge across the abyss and, and accessing, you know, the, the, the hidden, uh, gate of, of dot hidden knowledge and uh, peering beyond that into, you know, a, a, a direct experience of the divine. Uh, and yeah. Well, you said a whole lot there and I want to go deeper into that line of thinking because there are some pitfalls, but I want to take a quick break before we do that. We'll be back with Dr. Teresa Bullard in just a moment. Expanding on consciousness is brought to you by the Monroe Institute, a nonprofit organization and leader in consciousness education and research, teaching you how to actively explore and use expanded states of consciousness, providing direct experiences that are deeply personal, uniquely meaningful, and life-changing. Monroe has been helping people create more meaningful and joyful lives through the guided exploration of expanded consciousness for 50 years. Gain the knowledge and understanding you seek to create the life you desire. Learn more about where to start your journey to expanded awareness with Monroe. Visit MonroeInstitute.org or check out our Expand Meditation app. Available on the App Store or Google Play. Well, you said a lot there, and a lot of that had to do with claiming ownership of the divinity within. I'm sure you're aware of the deeper shadow having to do with delusional thinking that one is not only God, but the God. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about uh, various folks who are involved in teaching Kabbalah, you know, from the Western esoteric tradition, people like Aleister Crowley, for instance, or Chris Levy, you know. I think the lesson we learn from do what thou wilt shalt be the whole of the law because thou art the divine and in charge of all things. Um, 
it doesn't quite work out well for you. How do you deal with that sort of egoic thinking in your training? Well, I'll tell you what, they wouldn't get very far in the in the modern mystery school <laughs> that I'm a part of if they came with that attitude too much. That because we yes, Alistair Crowley definitely went down that road and he took very high level teachings and distorted them. Mm-hmm. Yes, thy will, you know, your will is very powerful. Um, and that is what directs the magic, but my will under God's will, always, right? Whatever the, your construct of God is. Yeah, of course, but there's always a higher power mm-hmm. and is a, a karmic repercussion for how we use these powers of the universe. Right. And karma, you know, this is where on the tree of life, Gvora is the undeviating justice mm-hmm. and the deviating justice will always meet you. That is, that is cause and effect karma. And there's karma for your thoughts, not just for your deeds. Um, so in thought, word, and deed, we, we will meet our karma. So we have to be recognizing that I have a responsibility to face my karma as well. And, and so we start from day one. Okay. Yes, you are God, but you're not the God, right? You are, you need to clean up your ego because your ego is the thing that's going to trip you up all the time. And, and we do actually distinguish between there, there's positive ego and there's negative ego. You know, their ego is about identity of the self. It, in, and their the negative ego is what most people define as ego usually. It's the, you know, it's unresolved issues. It's the faulty program, the masks, you know, all these kinds of things. The, un, the, the wounding of the past, the, the aggrandizement, the arrogance, like all of, you know, all of that, both sides of the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. But positive ego is, is more like, confidence in oneself, um, a sense of, of, of a desire to fulfill a unique purpose. Like there are positive attributes of, of wanting to express one's gifts that can, you know, be influenced by higher self as we express ourselves into this physical life and world. Mm-hmm. And, and positive ego serves that. So it's this fine line. It is a fine line to walk that middle pillar of mm-hmm. uh, not too much this way, not too much that way. And um, it's like learning to walk a tightrope and you will, you know, but we always say by the fruits, you shall know that, you know, by the results you create in your life, you will know if it was, you were aligned or you were out of alignment. And, um, and so, yeah, we, we, <laughs> we, we always ensure, you know, we have to stay humble. And, and I have had some students along the way. I don't think it was really within the teachings of Kabbalah specifically, but the, the predispositions of the individual that went too far with it. You know, they went unbalanced with um, thinking, well, I am Diga, I am the Messiah, I am, you know, the, the second coming of Christ. And it's like, whoa, hold on there, buddy. <laughs> if you are, we all are, right? Don't get so big. Um, and, and, you know, we have to remain humble because what I see typically is when, when people go there, they actually create their own fall. They, you know, Alistair Crowley is a great example of that. It's the typical archetypal story of Anakin Skywalker becoming Darth Vader because he thought he was doing the right thing, but in his arrogance, he wasn't honoring, you know, the guidance that came from his, his higher teachers. And he instead went and into the temptation that was given to him by, you know, that fed through the ego and the mind. And so, you know, we always have to watch this. And the farther you go along a path of, of progression, 
Um, especially the more knowledge, the more tools, the more power, the more magic you can do, the more responsibility there is to keep your ego in check and to always make sure that I'm doing this in the service of the whole, for the good of the whole, not just for the aggrandizement of myself. And, and, and not from a place of thinking like I'm God's gift to the world. Uh, because, you know, it's like we see, well, yes, I am God, but so are you. We all are like the, no one is better than another. Uh, and and so we're not here at this time on the planet to, you know, be somebody else's guru or messiah or wait for, you know, our guru or messiah to come and, and save us or give us our enlightenment. We're here to all be awakening this within ourselves and recognize that we're a collective and we have to co-create. We have to work together with each other and co-create with the divine to be able to succeed at, at creating a better world. Um, and, you know, we're at a time on the planet where there's so much happening and it's happening very fast mm-hmm. and a lot of possibility, a lot of potential right now. Um, a lot of transformative energies are, are flowing and brewing and some of it's a bit chaotic. I think in some ways humanity is at the edge of the abyss right now. I agree. Waiting, waiting to make this collective leap across. And yet at that edge of the abyss, you can see it right now. If you just look at what's going on in the world, you can see the effects of it bubbling over. And the fears, the projection, the separation, the polarization, the judgment, the, all of this stuff that we are facing in the world collectively, that is our collective abyss. And it's interesting because to me, as I see it, so much of it is being informed to the individual, meaning that it's coming from sources. Mm. Individuals are being led in group mind through information sources, whether they be on social media, alt media, Mainstream media. Mainstream media, exactly. All directing us towards something that is completely not in alignment with the metaphysical teachings and the spiritual teachings of the ancients. Yes. I'm curious about that. Mm -hmm. I'm very curious because it seems to be manifesting itself in what you just um, spoke of. Yeah. Chaos, so confusion. Our shadow, our collective shadow side is manifesting mm-hmm. itself through people. You know, we're all a collective. So some people are going to display the behavior of the shadow to reflect it to us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like the shadows have come out of hiding. Mm-hmm. This collective consciousness is struggling with these concepts, you know, of, of shadow and light. And, and we are in that that dark night of the soul kind of wrestling match with our, our own collective inner demons or the dark side of humanity. And, and there are, there are our forces, our typal forces that also influence and inform that. And then there are, you know, angelic forces that influence and inform and, and all of this is going on and it's being manifested and expressed through humanity. And people are the grounding rods for that. And so some people are the grounding rods for the negative expression of what's spilling out of our abyss. And other people have, you know, learned to, you know, it's like, how much are you, how much do you know yourself? Right. Versus how much are you being influenced by whatever media platform it may be or whatever pop culture or whatever 
religious program, whatever it may be, you know, how much are you influenced by those outside forces versus how much do you know yourself as a divine being and, and, and get your answers from within? Because I think most of the people who go with the herd mentality or that group think are being influenced by the outside sources more than being in tune with their own higher consciousness that is within. And, and so, yeah, our world right now is a massive distraction machine because it's saying, look over here, look over here. This is important. That's important. And none of it is important. And what's important is what, you know, who am I? And, and getting in touch with what's going on inside and, and really learning to, to tune into the, the higher consciousness within so that we can become grounding rods for the light versus for the shadow. I'm a real simple guy. I think Kabbalist. You right? know. <laughs> you don't sound very simple. Um, no, I ask simple questions. So being that I think Kabbalistically and say, um, oh, my mantra is that too is divine. I just don't personally understand how. So I'm going to observe it for a while and see if I can understand its purpose, what it's reflecting to me in my life is how it's a reflection of my personal consciousness, how it's mm-hmm. a reflection of the collective. Maybe mm-hmm. nothing to do with me, possibly, yeah. except to say it's part of my world. I'm paying attention. My question is always very simple. What am I supposed to do with that information? Mm-hmm. Because from a quantum field theory perspective, it's all information and it's all creating reality as we understand it from a mystical perspective same message it's all information it's all filtered through these little packets of consciousness that we call the sphero in kabbalah ways that we look at things lenses it's all consciousness so i look at the collective the larger consciousness system and the personal That disparity is enough for me. I look Mm -hmm. at that and I see it occurring. And the first thing I ask myself is, what is this information trying to tell me about me? Yeah. How am I contributing to this? And the tree of life allows me a diagnostic tool Mm. to see how that is reflecting my personal consciousness. Through the concepts and archetypes embodied in the Sferod, the attributions and the virtues and vices. So that level of study is enough to encompass a lifetime and get it into your bones. And if you do it, you end up not being so narcissistically bent. The metaphor of narcissist is not just about, you know, narcissistic personality disorder. There's everyday narcissism, a sense of self. What the world sees of me and what I see of the world are one thing. If I have the consciousness to bridge that chasm between the two. And if you can handle the reflection. Exactly. Exactly. But of course, it's not my world and y'all aren't just, you know, renting space here. I'm not the divinity of all things. We're all co-creating this. And quantum field theory is showing us how that happens. The same as the Kabbalah has shown us how that happened. The same as the mystical Christian tradition has shown us how that happened. 
There's an interesting word that is in Kabbalah with regards to creation coming from the Sefer Yetzirah, the book of formation, which is perhaps the, I don't know, the root cause of Kabbalah to begin with, or at least the tree of life, which talks about how we create and the products of a distortion of mind. That word is we create golems. The golem is a soulless being, like Gollum in the Lord of the Rings, completely obsessed with this ring of power that will control all other rings of power and is precious. Chasing that is obviously a product of narcissistic personality disorder. If I can just have that, my life will be whole. I'll be in control of everything. But that's not what this work is about. Kabbalah is a psycho-spiritual discipline. Like, I'd have to say every religious tradition is pointing us to this direction. It's just that the mysteries and the esoteric information, the hidden information embedded within the religion has always been kept for a select few. Now this information is out in the open. It's now being taught by you. Once upon a time, women weren't taught Kabbalah. Any male under the age of 40 wasn't taught Kabbalah. Why? Because the assumption was you had to have a foundation in life and a grounding to be able to handle this responsibly. But that's not the case anymore. We're moving into a new age of understanding of humanity. I mean, it's obvious to me that the gender bias was ridiculous to begin with. But the idea of being able to have lived enough life to be able to assimilate this responsibly and use it responsibly and understand that it's in service of something greater than self, which makes it a responsibility, is a real trick. Which is why I ask you the question. You are disseminating this information out there in Broad strokes, and I'm sure it's to whoever wants to learn. How do you help them handle it responsibly without going down the spiral that, say, Aleister Crowley did? It's a great question. I mean, we we talk about the responsibility again from pretty much that first step of initiation. You know that that our mind, that we are one mind. You know, and you, you mentioned okay, the world is our mirror. We could say, you know, I mentioned how different people become the grounding rods, but okay, those people out there taking those actions or, or manifesting those things that are less than desirable, how, what are they reflecting to me? Where am I contributing to that problem? Mm-hmm. You know, so for example, if we look at there being poverty and starvation in the world, okay, where do I have a mentality of lack, right? Where am I lacking or something is not enough within me? Um, where there's war and violence anywhere, where am I at war with myself or, um, you know, having violent thoughts of any kind, where there's any form of abuse, you know, where am I abusing myself? So we have to always take it around pointing the fingers to where am I doing this? Mm -hmm. Because I'm also creating that. I have responsibility for that. So we talk about responsibility from the, from the first step. 
And, and therefore the, res- the main responsibility is to eliminate the negative ego, to clean up the subconscious so that it's not hijacking us as we gain more knowledge and power and support. And so every step along the way, we're working this process. And, um, you know, we, we teach tools. We don't necessarily teach like all the tools to everyone who ever wants it. They have to go through the steps mm-hmm. to earn the right. Mm-hmm get to that next level of knowledge and tools. And and so th- this is why path of initiation and, and walking the path and taking the steps and using the tools at each point along the way builds that foundation to be ready for the next step. And, and it, you know, kind of creates that stairway, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, at Jacob's ladder. And, and we, you know, there are checks and balances all along the way because we always when you're on a path, you also have your teachers mm-hmm. and teachers see beyond your own ego. You know, we're, sometimes we don't see beyond our own ego, but our teachers see it more clearly and they are there to help us see it for ourselves. Um, they're not there to fix our problems or, you know, whatever they don't, they're not there. Like you know, there's a lot of entitlement that's coming into our, our mm-hmm. pop culture today and younger generations. And, and on the mystery path, there's no entitlement. You have to earn it. Right. You have to be ready for it. And if you're not ready, then the answer is no. And go back. We're not, it's not no forever. It's no for now. Here's what you got to do to get ready. And if you go and do those things and come back and show that you're ready, then, then we can talk. So, so there's, there's a process. And even though it's a, even though we're openly teach, teaching the mysteries, there's still a path that we have to follow. And that path in, involves initiation. It involves service. It involves the alchemical process that we go through at every step of the way to clean up uh, what's going on inside of us so that our ego doesn't, doesn't hijack so that it doesn't get too, too big. I mean, in the mystery school path, there's, there's something called the ritual master path, which is where we really learn the higher tools. But on that ritual master path, it's like, it's like, boot camp for negative ego clearing you know? and and those ritual master teachers really reflect and, and push the buttons purposely in order to, to bring the ego to the surface so that you can see it for yourself. And, and it, you know, if there was an Anakin Skywalker on that journey, they would, they wouldn't, they wouldn't pass certain tests to be able to go to the next level. They might get, you know, I mean, Alistair Crowley was very bright and, and and very much you know made a lot of progress, but he also serves as an example of you know what happens when your ego goes too far with it, or when you start mixing in you know magics that shouldn't be mixed, or when you bring drugs and sex into the equate you know and and just it's it's fodder for the ego, and what and what happens when you start to distort you know the the hermetic pure teachings and and distort it towards the the ends of the ego. So we have we have all you know. Path. There are yeah. safeguards in place in the school as you teach is what I'm hearing. Yeah. So let that be a guidepost or a warning to anyone who wants to go jumping into this type of work to understand that there is a part of you that has your bigger picture and evolution in mind and will put you through the fire, even if those teachers that you find along your path do not. That's mm-hmm. just the process of life. Would you agree with that? 
hundred percent that these are archetypal forces that are there, whether you're aware of them or not. Yes. And you will beat them. If you're ever at that point, you know, they, they, they are undeviating. They will meet you and, and buy the fruits. You know, if your life is not working out the way you want, you're not a victim. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, not that you necessarily created the circumstances, but you have choice always in what you do with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kabbalah definitely teaches us that there are no victims mm-hmm. uh, and and that we always have to choose what we're going to do with our circumstances. And sometimes those circumstances are our karma. And sometimes those circumstances were created by other people, but we still have to learn from it and choose what we're going to do with it, mm-hmm. what meaning we're going to give it. And um, so, yes, they, they will always meet us. Uh, and I think it helps, though, when we become aware of these forces. And when we study Kabbalah, I, I think it really helps us have a much more awakened view of life and what's happening, um, which empowers us to actually do something more consciously with it and be co-creators and participants in this leap in consciousness versus just being passengers and victims to, you know, circumstances uh i would go as far to say empowers and at the same time humbles at least in my experience humbles for sure for sure and um you know i i i agree that we are at such an important time and and that this is a time where there is actually a lot more light coming onto the planet even though it seems like there's more chaos i think a part of it is the light is waking people up. It's harder to hide. You know, it's harder to obscure the truth um, than it was before. And in this awakening, it's also you're more transparent. And and as we become more transparent, it's harder to deny, you know, how we're creating certain situations in our life. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have to face this. We have to face the responsibility. The more the light comes in, the more we're going to be, you know, it's in our face. And so, um, it, but it's an exciting time because as soon as people really wake up to their responsibility and, and, and step into that empowerment, then they can really start to take proactive steps, uh, to make better choices and to create a better impact in the world, in their own lives and in the collective. Uh, and, and that's what, you know, what, that's what we're here for. We're here to help guide people in that journey. And I do think you need a guide because it's the people who try to go it their own self-study all the time that are going to hit the dead ends. They're going to hit the pitfalls. They're going to potentially fall into the traps of their ego more likely than not. And you know, Alistair Crowley is one of those people who veered off the path and went it his own way. And, and that was when that, that fall in, you know, to the ego happened. And so, you know, this is where I've, I have found personally, that by staying on a path uh, and committing to it, you know, that I was able to go further and deeper than I would have if I had just done it all on my own. And, 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 and I've been very grateful all the way along the way that I've had my teachers who are further along the path than I am because they keep my, you know, they've helped me stay, keep my ego in check. You know, they, they help reflect to me when, when I, you know, maybe there was a little bit too inflate, too much inflation going on. Or, you know, there was a need for, for humbling again. And, um, and, and, you know, it's, it's all part, it's that learning to walk the middle path, mm-hmm. uh, that, that fine balance. And, um, 
So, so this is why I think a path is really important and, and why I've been very grateful. I mean, we're, we're, we're pretty privileged to have a, this time on the planet where these kinds of deeper mystery traditions are open to us, where we can gain access to a path that has true power and knowledge and, and wisdom and understanding to, to, to train us in. Because, you know, at times in the past, it was by invitation only, or it was secret, you couldn't find it, or you, you did it at risk of your life because it was heretical, or, you know, it, we're, we're at a really privileged time on the planet, but that doesn't mean we're entitled. We're also in a unique time in the planet where so many people are teaching and who probably aren't qualified at all. That, but, yes, the discernment is really needed. And I'm, as I listen to you and your presentations and your understandings of these principles, I can highly endorse what it is that you're teaching. I get the impression that you understand something of the might of compassion also with regards to falling down and getting back up again. Oh, yeah. It's important. You cannot accept this challenge without making mistakes. You're going Mm -hmm. to. We've been making mistakes our whole lives. It's all right to make mistakes. It's all right to fail. You will fail. I guarantee it. As a matter of fact, let me give you a diploma in failure right now from the (laughs) get-go. Let's just get that out of the way. Have compassion for yourself. Have compassion for others as they fail, too. And you don't take their actions personally. You understand that too is divine. You just don't see how yet. But if we talk to one another, we might get into a new relationship of understanding. And that raises the sparks. That's our first challenge as I see it. So I love where you're going with this. I love how you're presenting it. For those who are interested, because I know you're out there, how do they find you, Dr. Teresa Bullard? Well, they can go to my website, TeresaBullard.com, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-B-U-L-L-A-R-D.com. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of stuff to explore on that website. Um, there, you know, it, it talks about the mystery school. There's my links to my mystery teaching series on Gaia, uh, also there on the website. Um, I have my Quantum Minds TV uh, show, which is sort of a podcast video where I've been, you know, having interviews with guests. That's all on their products, courses, like everything um, that they would want to explore in terms of the different things I do are, are all available through that website. Uh, if they have Gaia a subscription, watch Mystery Teachings. There's a lot of deep stuff uh, that I deliver through four seasons of, of Mystery Teachings. And, um, and I've got YouTube, you know, I'm, I'm up on YouTube, I'm on social media, they can follow me on Instagram and Facebook, um, and YouTube. And, you know, we, we have, we're just trying to help share. But ultimately, I would say that the real work happens through the in-person training. Um, so, so there's only so much that could be delivered online or, or through even on, whether it's an online course or Gaia or, you know, even any kind of online format, there's only so much that can be delivered. It's mostly information and knowledge, but not the practical and the practical is where the real work happens. So it, it's through immersion of in-person training that the real tools, the real, practice of how to go through this and the initiations and the activations, the empowerments really come through that direct in-person, not 
not the remote kind of astral thing. It's, it's direct and in-person so that it can have that direct impact on the individual in their physical life. And are you um, traveling for the in-person training? Are you traveling throughout the I travel. The um, I travel. I, I uh, will probably teach in the United States uh, once, maybe twice a year. I'll run something called the Empowerment Week, which is where people can get like the whole – like a one week of all the foundational training that prepares them to go on to next steps. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it includes initiation and, and all of this. Uh, so uh, I'll offer that usually in the U S um, maybe once or twice a year. And then I also offer it once or twice in the UK where I live now. And, uh, and then I travel, you know, I, I'm as part of the modern mystery school, I'm one of the international tr- teachers. So I'll, you know, travel to different countries and, and help uh, either support or teach Kabbalah or some other classes. I'm in Toronto four times a year where we have our major international headquarters, uh, always part of one of the teaching teams there. So it's definitely through the in-person work. But I even if they can't get to me, um, there are also lots of other teachers and guides and practitioners trained by the Mystery School uh, who are we're in 55 different countries. So I can always refer as well to to people who might be more local to them if they want to work with someone locally. It's a fascinating topic. I wish I had found you decades ago when I was first getting involved and perhaps it's time for me to start learning all over again. You know, climbing the tree up and down is a lifelong process. Dr. Teresa Bullard, I want to thank you for your time and for sharing your wisdom with us today. I hope you'll come back and uh, help us unpack some more on this topic. It's really nice for me to finally meet you, and uh, please give your mom a great big hug next time you see her. You'll probably will, run into you, her before I will. I, yeah, I'm sure I will. <laughs> but thank you. This has been a really fascinating conversation and, and uh, very stimulating because you have certainly brought your own very challenging concepts and, and thoughts to the to the plate here. So I've really enjoyed uh, our dialogue and, and as did I, uh, you're brilliant at what you do. I really appreciate the kind words and I'll look forward to a much more extensive conversation at another time. Good to meet you too. And I'll look forward to next time. Be certain to tune in again to expanding on consciousness to become informed on the fascinating field of consciousness studies and its applications. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the guests and the host. They do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Monroe Institute. Expanding on Consciousness is underwritten and produced by the Monroe Institute, copyright 2023, and is broadcast by permission. Reproduction or redistribution without the express written consent of Monroe Institute is prohibited by law. For more information about Expanding on Consciousness, visit our website at monroeinstitute.org or my God, it's the bewitching hour, everybody. We decided to do Regina Meredith. It'll take us right to the end, the very end of the show. So let's just be on, on with it. It's called Dream State and Rescripting Reality. I'll read a little bit. What is our dreams? What as our dreams and expressions of future? What as our dreams are expressions of future memory? Ah, 
Deja. Deja vu. R e v e. Deja vu. I, I didn't know it was spelled like that. <laughs> okay. Translated from French means already dreamed. Wow. Deja, R-E-V-E, Revu, I'm not sure. Um, According to Teresa Chung, C-H-E-U-N-G, an expert decoder of dreams, when we feel like we're done, like when we feel like we've done something before, that's because we have in our dreams. Your dream journal is the most sensational book you'll ever read, says Chung. She discusses with Regina Meredith how writing down our dreams unlocks access to non-linear space and time. Drawing on an unprecedented volume of research on the dream state during lockdown, Chung cites evidence of collective Precognition and retrocausality. She shares that dreams are a neglected manifestation tool treasured for millennia by royalty and military leaders. Chung describes how our dream state offers a safe way to reshape our unconscious by rescripting nightmares and rehearsing threats. As part of shadow work. And we know Regina Meredith is. And she's here with Teresa Chung. So let's get started. This is going to take us a little bit past 1230. So right now, let's get started, Rama. It's 43 minutes. And Dougie, this... Remember to get, remember to get the fact that you dream shows that you are a psychic being. Yeah. Even if the dream is just nonsense or nightmarish, I'm just so happy because I think I haven't given up on me. Keep a dream journal, please, everyone. It really is the most sensational. Yes, I just wanted to make it sure you can hear me, Dougie, because, you know, a little after midnight, uh, Rainbird, time for Rainbird. Hope you can hear me. Okay, here we go. Let's start over. The fact that you dream shows that you are a psychic being. Yeah. Even if the dream is just nonsense or nightmarish, I'm just so happy because I think I haven't given up on me. Keep a dream journal, please, everyone. It really is the most sensational book you will ever read. It's pretty amazing. If you can influence your unconscious, you're influencing what you believe about yourself. We're all so interesting. Every person in dream work reminds them there's so much that lies beneath. It's being shown that time and time again, the dreaming mind just seems to sense what's coming in the future. But it's not necessarily an event. It's an emotion. People who are observed when doing a task perform better. Mm-hmm. And you are being observed all the time by your future memory. 
One of the silver linings of the pandemic is that people were cloistered at home, sleeping longer hours. As a result, dream research exploded. People were having powerful dreams and remembering them because they didn't have to be at work the next morning. One person that became really hot in demand at that time was Teresa Chung, author of countless books on dreams and intuition. We're going to talk about both today. Hello, Regina. Welcome back. And I mentioned the pandemic when I was introducing you. So you say that there was an explosion of a, also a kind of dominant theme to dreams that was happening at this time as researchers were really taking on dream time. Yeah, it was unprecedented uh, for dream research. Makes sense. You don't have an alarm clock. You don't have to hurry. Yep. You have time to loll and remember your dreams. It makes perfect sense. Absolutely. And you're getting more REM, rapid eye movement sleep, which is the stage most dream happens. And you've got slower mornings, so you right. can mull over them. And dreams, of course, during the pandemic, were doing what they do best, which is try to help make sense of a crazy new situation that we were all dealing with. And so what was the nature of those dreams? A lot of them were, were unfinished tasks, feeling threatened. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a, a big, big theme. But we've got to remember also, you know, this was a global event where people were reporting dreaming globally. And this has not happened before. Right. Now, after a big event that shook the world like 9-11, it was reported yes. in America. Mm-hmm. But this was the first time globally. And you have to look at social media playing a part in that mm-hmm. and that people were posting online. And so, you know, COVID dreams, uh, lockdown dream phenomenon started to become like, keywords that people kept on typing in and it just exploded and then you've got harvard harvard university british medical journal publishing studies showing yes people are having these really bizarre vivid dreams and for me forgive the pun i do love saying this it was a dream come true because (laughs) i've devoted my life to writing about dreams and trying to say they are important they matter and all the research right now is showing that Sleep and dream researchers are showing that dreams can really help you evolve, learn about yourself, regulate your mood, be cathartic, and potentially also be your inner psychic, sense the future. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of... Your inner therapist? You yes. save a little money there, perhaps? It's, it's, I think it's the same thing. Inner yeah. therapist, inner yeah. psychic, yeah. they're interchangeable for yeah. me. Um, because they're both your unconscious trying to help you understand yourself better. So what about the notion of non-linear time because sometimes people get tripped up over the timing and sequence of things in dreams and you and I were talking you know a month or so ago about the notion that if we can truly accept that time itself is non-linear then dreams can take a new role in our lives absolutely i mean in the in the dream state you transcend time and space yeah you step outside that and precognitive dreams are, offer evidence of that you can travel anywhere be any time there isn't any real concept of time in a dream at all and yes it's right at the moment in quantum physics there's considerable debate about the nature of time right what is it and you know there is a school of thought that past present and future are happening simultaneously exactly and that our minds just have linear time because it's the only way we can make sense of it in our human form i love this idea i absolutely love this idea and in the dream state you can connect to it a kind of a long self your long body over time that is you in all ages and stages of your life and if you believe in life after death you know if you believe in reincarnation as well um so yeah this is this is absolutely fascinating and i think the dream state, you can tap into that, this understanding of yourself as being bigger than the here and now mm-hmm. and existing all aspects of yourself. I mean, it's in its infancy at the moment, this mm-hmm. research, but it, it is stunning. And I'm, I'm, I'm so excited to be championing it. 
So with precognitive dreaming, you're talking about that being the holy grail for, mm-hmm. you know, for, for millennia. Uh, kings and queens hiring dreamers and seers, bringing them to the court to get a fix on what's coming up, what's going to happen. You know, military leaders looking at precognitive dreams to get an advantage in a strategic war situation. So that's always kind of been the holy grail of dreaming is the precognitive portion of it. So let's focus on that for a little bit because off camera when you're having your makeup, you, you told us a funny story about waking up and you were ready to go on ITV in England, right? And the mor- was it the morning show? It was. The yes, morning show um, and you had a dream. Well, I had a dream that I was being handed some pink daisies. And I always tell people that I do dream work with that you pay attention to your dreams because your dreams want to be taken seriously. So if a color appears in your dream, wear that color the next day to show your dreaming mind that you're taking note um so i decided because i was going to wear green i was going to be a vision in green um but i decided no i've had this dream it was a very strong pink theme there i'm going to wear pink so i went in and did the the call in for the uk that i do where uh, viewers call into itv this morning it's the one of the most loved entertainment and news shows it runs five days a week in the morning and i've been their regular dream expert for a while now so I went in in hot pink, which is not really, really me. And it was amazing because they decided that day to trail the Barbie movie. <laughs> and they had a Barbie box. had a Barbie box. box. And yes. you got to pose in the Barbie box. I mean, this is all perfectly Very. in your pink. This it is made, really cute. It made me so happy because, you know, in my dream as well, I was being given da- pink daisies by a child. You know, and Barbie, it's all about nostalgia, childhood. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of lot of children played with Barbie. Mm-hmm. And I got the experience. I said to the producer, can I just go in the box? So I, I just went in the box because they had it there for, in, in preparation for the movie. And I went inside. And you got to be the Barbie doll. I did. I got a, a dream come true. Now, you could say that's all very trivial and nonsense. And what's the point of that? Right? You know, you could. But what it is, it's just a wake up call that your dreaming mind knows things right and it's a powerpoint beyond time and space yeah yeah and it's a kind of a powerpoint it's just saying Teresa there there's something I know that you need to know and this is an important moment for you it's also a moment of self-care and to do something that's fun you know because sometimes in my work it can get very very serious I work with a lot of people who are not dealing with their nightmares and their shadow side and it was just a moment of laughter and pure joy and the reaction I got because of it, and it was it was because I followed my dream, and I right. tell people follow your dream within reason, because sometimes dreams are right. insane, yeah. and that's where we need to talk about how to interpret your dreams. Which again, I've devoted my life to helping people understand. Yeah. How many houses have you written your dreams? <laughs> I'm a serial. Dozens. You're a serial writer. Goodness, I've got two more coming out oh next year gosh. as well. I feel blessed. Well, I just want to just go ahead and stay on the subject for one moment more about color. Yeah. It's the same thing when people do their vision boards or whatever. Mm-hmm. If you're doing it in the way where you're really tapping into the unconscious, then you'll find oftentimes if you've done a board that it'll pop up in any given year with a color theme. Yeah. Same thing in dreams can happen yeah. because that frequency is usually some a frequency. That color frequency band is something needed by your being for healing on some level. And like you said, you needed to bring out this childlike, playful side of yourself. Yes. You couldn't have been wearing a better color than pink for that to do that show. It was what it was saying. You didn't know it was going to be in that background. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I always say when a color appears strongly in someone's dream, mm-hmm. go research all the spiritual associations with it, the mystical associations, and see what it's got to teach you. 
because every single dream has a message for you. Every single dream. Everything is frequency too. Yes. It's all about that. Yes. Whether it's a feeling or a tone of the way someone said someone something or a color. Yes. It's all important, subtle information. And it was interesting, you know, you were drawing um, the conversation to precognitive dreaming, yeah. which, you know, back in time, that was how dreams were interpreted. We've got Joseph and the dream code. Yeah. And, and, and then dream interpretation went through various stages. It became more psychological and self-help, which is where I'm still at. A lot of my work is with that. But what's happened now is it's kind of swung back. And there is a growing body of research into precognitive dreamings, research done by scientists. And they're beginning to show that they, this is the, the norm, not the exception. That more, that a lot of people are having dreams that two or three days later they have a deja vu, or it should be deja reve, mm-hmm. which is a dream remembered. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a stunning moment when that happens. Often it is very trivial, like my pink daisy dream. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, what is the point? Why won't my dreaming mind do something much more dramatic for me and, and helpful? But what it is, it's just a, a moment for you to stop and reflect and understand that there's more to you than meets the eye, that you are more than your body and your mind. You, you know, you are not your thoughts. You are not your emotions. There's a part of you that exists independent of that and sees the bigger mm-hmm. picture. And it's, it's just really a, a beautiful goosebumpy moment. I love that term goosebumps. So you deja vu know, is yes. simply Something you have already dreamt and experienced in dream time. Yeah, it's deja reve. Yes, deja yeah, reve. Yeah, yeah. So you're just remembering it as it's now playing out timeline-wise in what appears to be the present. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just a wow moment. Mm-hmm. And we all need those wow moments. Mm-hmm. Sometimes life is tough. And I know when I'm going through rough times or things aren't working out and um, and I wake up in the morning and I've got a dream on my mind. It, I just feel so happy. Even if the dream is just nonsense or, or nightmarish, I'm just so happy because I think I haven't given up on me. Yeah. There's something there. My unconscious is trying to talk to me. So I write it down and it gives me great um, uh, sustenance during the day and in the days that come. Because I can go and refer back and say, what was my unconscious trying to tell me? I have got my own back. There's something I need to know. And I will carry on decoding and decoding it until I get that aha mm-hmm. moment of illumination. Mm-hmm. But also, you've got to do your dreams in a series, not just one dream. Because sometimes one dream is just, I don't understand this. Tune in the following yeah, night. Right. Yeah, tune in the following night for the next thrilling installment of you. <laughs> um, and, and just keep on, keep on, ha- keep, keep a dream journal, please, everyone listening to this interview. It really is the most sensational book you will ever read. It's pretty amazing when you go back, especially years later and look at things and think, Oh my God, because sometimes what it's showing you takes a long time to play out in real life it too. It does. And then you see what that was all about. And, you know, not that you could have changed it in the moment, but it's very interesting. You see, it was already in the works in that moment and may take, to take time to manifest yeah, if in you our go dimension. Back, I've got, yeah. I've got, I mean, I kept a dream journal since I was, you know, very young because I grew up in a family of mm-hmm. traveling spiritualists and dream decoding and astrology was, was our life mm-hmm. and, and psychic abilities or whatever. So it's something that was just in me, you know, keep a dream journal because we talk right. about our dreams. They matter. Yeah. That's so wonderful to to do it as a family practice. Yes. How fun would that be and how revealing as a family 
to each other. I think that's a great thing as soon as little kids can write to have them start talking about it and write a few little notes for them. Well, I found when my kids were teenagers as well, I mean, the teenagers, they, they do distance themselves. And, but I could get very intimate with them and, and have a wonderful connection when I, they would come to me to talk about their dreams because mm-hmm. that was a kind of like a safe way for mm-hmm. them and we could talk. I loved it. That, you know, their own life, they needed to find out who they were, that, you know, they, mm-hmm. you know, they want a distance from mum. Of course, that's growing up. But it was wonderful because I, I would go for the dream talk. I am on a mission to get everybody dream journaling. Yes. Fall in love with themselves through their dreaming mind. And it, it does happen. I've seen people's lives transform. It's interesting what you're talking about, skill practicing in the dream mm-hmm. state. And also it's threat rehearsal as well. Sometimes, you know, people say, well, why do I have so many anxious dreams and nightmares? It's because your dreaming mind takes you to the worst case scenario so that you've been there before. You survived. Helping you prepare you. Yeah. It's threat rehearsal. But see, a lot of people don't want to write their dreams down because they don't want to bring back into view nightmares and uncomfortable things. It's like, no, leave that alone. I think a lot of people avoid it for that reason. Yeah, but you have to face your fears and your, this is shadow work we're talking about right, here, which right. is very important because if you repress and deny what is disturbing and troubling with you, it's going to erupt in some unhealthy way. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a good idea. And dream work is a very safe way to explore your shadow side mm-hmm. um, because it's a dream. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, you know, you can't harm yourself in the dream state. You're not going to hit the bottom and be dead. No, in the dream. you can write down your nightmare and then you can do this wonderful technique called rescripting nightmares. And it's studies have been done to show this works. If mm-hmm. you're having recurring nightmares, for example, in the day, close your eyes, re-enter that nightmare, visualize it, see it, and then rescript it, turn monsters into butterflies. And that's what you're doing there is you're telling your unconscious, look, hey, I'm in charge here. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not a helpless victim. And when you can start letting your unconscious know that you can shape it, that's when the magic starts to happen. You start understanding that you are the power of choice in your life. Things don't happen to you. Nightmares don't happen to you. Right. Life doesn't happen to you. You do have a certain amount ability to manage it. And it's exactly the same with your dreams. Um, so I, I, if you can influence your unconscious you're influencing what you believe about yourself. Now, again, this isn't repressing or denying what's ugly and toxic, because we all have that. There's day and night. It's all in us. It is understanding it's there. I'm going to understand it, but I'm going to choose not to to indulge it in waking life. But if you can influence your unconscious, you can influence your beliefs about yourself. And as we all know, what you believe about yourself is who you are, and who you are is what you attract and dream work is one of the most neglected manifesting tools out there. Totally. It really is. Because if you can start understanding your dreams, looking at what your unconscious is reflecting to you every night, you will get a real understanding of why perhaps you are not manifesting what you want mm-hmm. in your life. And you're doing all your affirmations and you're meditating for hours. But your dreams don't lie. They take you right to the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do it in this this. Very surreal, uh, symbolic way. And that's where people fall down because they think, I just don't understand. Well, that's the thing, too. With symbolism, so much of it is so individual. And how do they learn the keys to their own symbolism versus going to a dream book where a goose always means something? You know, the same thing for everybody. It doesn't. I mean, 
I, I've written a, a dream dictionary, which, you know, I'm blessed it's been in print. Is that the A to Z book? Yes. Oh, yes. yes. It, it's been reissued again yeah. and again and again. And I do there the universal interpretation. Right. For example, a cross for most people is a symbol of religion. Mm-hmm. I do the colors. I do the numbers. I do as many animals all as I can. Clothes, nudity, cheating, all these really common dream things, teeth falling out, hair falling out, flying, falling, monsters, etc. apocalypse. I give the common interpretation, but I always tell people the very first interpretation you go for is your own gut instinct. You yes, will know. Because that symbol may be something positive for one person and Absolutely. very fearful negative for another. Yeah. yeah. Go for your own personal interpretation first. If nothing comes through, go for the first word. That's free association. Mm-hmm. If nothing comes through, then move to all the symbolic and universal and common things and see what triggers something in you. See your emotional response yes. to it. Something yeah. will resonate. Mm-hmm. It will be your, it will be your emotional response because the language of dreams is emotion. Yeah. So it will be your emotional response and then just work with that. And don't be in a rush to have everybody wants instant solutions. Part of the joy of life is the puzzle. Mm-hmm. We all want to solve ourselves, find out who we are. That's not why we're here. We're here to experience all facets of ourselves in all these beautifully complicated ways. We're all so interesting. Every person is a story with so many facets to themselves. And dream work reminds them that they are infinite. They're fascinating. There's so much that lies beneath. Don't try and solve yourself. Just enjoy being an enemy. Enjoy the mystery. Enjoy not knowing. A lot of people want to know. No. They they want certainty. And in fact, there is really nothing that's certain. It's the adventure. I agree. And I was doing it actually on the plane because I had a lot of plane time. Yeah. For you, anything. By the way, thank you for having me. I'm I'm so overjoyed to be going through all that. But I was closing my eyes and all these beautiful shapes were forming behind my eyes, as they tend to do when it's dark and you close your eyes. And I was thinking... This looks like a starry night. When you close your eyes, behind your eyes, it does with little bits of light. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all try to go to outer space for adventure. You know, people go to the moon. But it's that inner space. That is that what we're composed yes. of. Those tiny yes. sparks in the vast kind of sea of openness. Yeah. The, the void. Those tiny, tiny sparks are our atomic reality. Exactly. That's all we are. And every time you close your eyes, behind your eyes is, is, is where, where you should be seeking. Mm-hmm. And if you do feel lost and life's difficult, please remember you have to be lost before you can start finding your way. There's nothing wrong with being lost. In fact, it's often when you're lost out of your comfort zone, going through pain and trauma, that's when the learning and the wisdom happens and you start valuing what really matters in your life. And it is so sad that these days so many people have externalized everything, that their happiness comes from their career, how they look, how popular they are, the mark they make on the world. Now, that's important. We're here on this earth to learn through human experience. But what's missing is the balance. You need both. You need the material lessons, but you also need the intuitive and the creative and the dreamy. And that's where dream work is such an instantly accessible way to bring that balance. Back I agree, in your life. but it's been totally invalidated by academia and the rest of the yes. world now for what two, three hundred years. Yeah. So people have to start reclaiming it and and just saying, look, I don't have to cave to what is considered societally acceptable anymore. And fortunately, we're in an era now where it's getting better and better. But 
a lot of people, if you even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if you went to your family in the morning, oh, I just had this amazing dream. It's like, Ugh, there she goes again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not, not your family. No, not <laughs> happening anymore. So you say that all psychic phenomena is a form of precognition. I, I mean, there is a school of thought that's heading in that direction. And actually, it's the term that scientists use when they are researching mm-hmm. psychic ability. It's tend to be sort of an umbrella term. Um, yes, I mean, precognition is where the future of scientific research into psychic abilities is going. It's where the, it's the most easy to prove as well. Somebody can keep a dream journal or have a waking hunch, mm-hmm. because that's the same as kind of the daydream state, and it plays out. So you've got instant proof, right? Yeah. Um, so it's the easiest to test scientifically. Yes. And there is, yeah. it's what's exciting with when, when it is being tested, it's being shown that time and time again, dreaming mind just seems to sense what's coming in the future. But it's not necessarily an event that the dreaming mind sense. It's an emotion, as you were saying. It's, it's a mindset. Right. And it's offering you potential futures. So what your dreaming mind will do is it will showcase in my humble opinion, potential futures. And this is wonderful because if you wake up and you don't like the future it's showcased, you have, a, your dreaming mind is, again, your best friend is saying, look, right now, in the here and now, you this can change it. lining up for, so change, change it. Change it, course yeah. correct. Right, right. Again, you're not a victim. Your dreaming mind will showcase and say, well, if you continue acting and thinking and feeling the way you are right now, this may be where you're heading mm-hmm. emotionally. Right. I mean, again, though, you know, the dreaming mind is so mysterious. Occasionally, dreams can be literal, too. Yeah, they can. So the whole notion that you can go in, you can be awake, kind of awake, go into a meditation where you're not asleep. Yeah. But you also have these similar experiences of precognition of events that are going to form. First of all, do you have to help? I mean, for your average person, it's relatively intuitive. Just dropping into an alpha or delta state is sufficient to have the equivalent of dream time function? Yeah, daydreaming is just another day to dream. And people who are struggling with dream recall. Yeah. And there is a lot of, there are a lot of people, sometimes for medical reasons or, or because their life is incredibly stressful, dream recall takes a back seat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I always say daydream is just another way to dream. It's exactly the same. You're just, you know, more conscious. <laughs> and some of it is almost, then it slips over the line almost into, I guess you could say a type of remote viewing or a type of yes. future viewing. And the way to start triggering that is to simply start taking your dreams seriously. Write them down. Right. It's going to be a running theme Okay, for you me. said that. Yeah, <laughs> you mentioned that. <laughs> Read lots, get curious, spend time in nature, listen to music. It's, that inspires dream so much because when you're listening to music the part, there's one part of your brain that's making sense of the notes that's the mm-hmm. ego the consciousness and the other part of your brain is free to daydream right it you occupies get, it you get the two mm-hmm. walking in harmony yeah and that actually is 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 what research is starting to show because there is there is our studies to show that anxiety and stress are the biggest enemy mm-hmm. of any kind of psychic ability absolutely um and so what you need to do is first of all be calm mm-hmm. and also believe in yourself and get that balance again between the material and the intuitive. That's what I was that going to say. That belief optimal. alone yeah. is huge. Understanding you're perfectly capable of this. Yeah, of course, everybody, everybody, everybody is capable. Cause I, I used to be surprised where I'd go into those states when I was out in the field here and there, how accurate it was like boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Every night I was yeah. seeing what was going to happen. 
And I thought, well, it's just because they gave myself permission. Yeah. I normally wouldn't sit around at night out in the yard and do such a thing, but we can. Yes. The point is we can. And then you can recall because you're not asleep. Well, studies again show, you know, what are the traits for people who are psychic, precognitive? And, and the number one trait is belief that they are psychic and precognitive. Yeah. Acceptance you know, um, of that. It's acceptance of that. You have to believe in it first. And basically believing you are psychic is exactly the same as believing in yourself. Mm-hmm. Because That's it true. means you have, you have the ability to sense the right decisions, to be empathetic, to be intuitive and creative. We all have that to various degrees. There are some people who were born, you know, with highly sensitive potential and they are tend to find, you know, intuition and empathy much easier. And then there are people lower down the scale who, you know, you know, more logical, more mm-hmm. rational. What I found fascinating is that research shows that when people who are lower down the scale just do a simple course of meditation, it unlocks the part of their brain. Absolutely. And they actually get better psychic hits. I call them psychic hits because when the psychic information comes through, it's, it's clearer. The problem with people, maybe you're like this, Regina, I don't know if you're very highly intuitive, you get so much information coming in. You don't know what's worth running with and what isn't. What is too much. I and tend to block it. I mean, yeah. I tend to, if I want to know something, I will actually clear my clear the slate yeah. and ask and say, show me if it's for me to see. I will not watch the rest of it. That's just yes. like soup all around all the time. It's just, it's distracting. So I don't just randomly see things I choose to see. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly. So you've got that logic going yeah. as well. You've got yeah. that ability. And then it's there. But but some people find it quite overwhelming and that they get so many messages and they don't know, is this, is this, really psychic ability or is it wishful thinking or is it negative thinking i don't know right or you just open and seeing fields bleed through yeah yeah Yeah. but what i'm trying to say is wherever you are on the scale of psychic sensitivity you've got it oh yeah everybody can do it in fact uh, to validate your point at stanford research institute the famous five programs under russell targ and such their top viewers had seemingly not necessarily any psychic ability to begin with and they trained them and they were able to, they ended up a couple of them being some of the top seers ever. Um, and, and I know that they do this. They train people who have, um, no background in psychic ability and other fields of remote viewing as well. So yeah. you're, you're right. It seems that, um, it's within everybody. Of if you care to do it. Anyone who, we're all, anyone yeah. who dreams is psychic. Yeah. That's what I'm going to say. If you yeah. have had a dream, you will have at some point of your life, even if your recall's not good now, you will have, as a child, you, if you, the fact that you dream shows that you are a psychic being. Yeah. Having a human experience because we, what on earth is going on in this surreal right. world? And you can't make a lot of that stuff up. No. <laughs> You're out somewhere. You're bringing back something. Okay. Let's go. Let's talk about the past. Yeah. Is it possible since time and space is nonlinear? Is it possible that one can go into a dream of the past and effect healing that flows through into the present or even the future? I mean, there is studies, you know, it's retrocausality we're talking mm-hmm. about here, exactly. isn't it? Where the future can influence the past. And of course, it can happen in the dream state. And I would encourage anyone, I mean, a lot of us, you know, grown up with traumas and problems and going back to heal your past self, your child self. I would encourage that both in the dream state and in the waking state. that You go back and be the parent, the carer, the nurturer to yourself when you needed it most. It's a very powerful exercise to do that, to reconnect to the 
the trauma of your past. And it can happen in the dream state too. Sometimes that's why we're pulled back to childhood in our dreams. It's our dreaming mind trying to heal these bits of ourselves that are broken and doing it in the only way it can. But I would encourage people to do that. If it's well, not if you too have an painful. intention, right? You yeah. have to set your intention. Yeah. This part of me I've dreamt of before. I would like to go back and find reconciliation yes. in that period of time. Yeah. Right? But actually, to just to, to make this more, even more expansive, just as you can go back in time and be there for yourself in the past, you've created a living memory there. You can also go in the future. And That's where have, I'm going next. We're going to have our future selves hovering around. Let's talk about that. And I'd like to know for you personally, if you've had some future self dreams. Future, collectively, yes, either collectively or individually. Well, I have, I tend to have ones that are fairly trivial, as I say, like the, the pink Barbie, Barbie one. And I, I've had it when I, you know, I've been on, done big interviews. I mean, I had one recently where, um, for the BBC, actually, um, I had a dream of, of a lead uh, presenter there, Nicky Campbell. And I, I don't know why, um, I dreamt about him. And then the following morning, my radio on my car wasn't working and I switched channel and it was BBC Five Live and he was talking and he was saying to his listeners, it was when Rings of Power came out, right? I don't understand why are we all obsessed with elves and fairies and fantasy? I can't watch these things like Game of Thrones. I don't understand it. Is there anyone listening who could just text, call in and explain to me what is this obsession with Rings of Power and Lord of the Rings, etc.? And of course, I am a Lord of the Rings geek. My podcast <laughs> is called White Shores, you know, in honor. Right. And <laughs> which and and so I, I just suddenly said to me, I'm following the dream. I texted, texted in, in. And, and it was basically ended up being the call of the week because I was instructing him. Oh, about, I'm sure. And then a few months later, he invited me onto his podcast for BBC Five oh, Live, nice. and um, all about creativity and intuition. And it's all set up. You set it up in advance. But I, 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 don't, I mean, he's not someone that I it factors in my awareness. Right. Right. I mean, I know who he is. Yeah. But why that presenter and why that, so that that's again kind of leading me forward to a yes. path I needed to go. And he found it very helpful. He was very open-minded. I mean, this is the BBC as well. Right, right. With dream work, they tend to tie it in with sleep. Um, but they're, you know, they're getting much more interested in dream decoding. I've done quite a lot for BBC Radio. Yeah, you now. do a lot on the media to the mainstream. Yes. So it shows the times, yeah. times are changing. Well, Absolutely. people call in with a dream yeah. and I just try and help them, you know, in a very gentle, non-woo-woo way. Right. How is this going to help this person? I'm always very aware when someone calls in, how, what am I going to say is going to help them? And also the people listening at home, how's it going to help them? interpret their dreams can i give some basic tools here Mm -hmm. again to get them to fall in love with their dreams aka themselves Mm -hmm. because that's what they don't realize they're dreaming themselves right but i've also had more difficult dreams where i had a dream of a childhood friend um i hadn't seen for years and in the dream she had butterfly wings it's very weird you know but dreams are weird i mean the crazier and i think i think it was about a week later I found um, through a Facebook feed, um, this friend was mentioned, she had passed away in a motorbike accident. And it coincided about the time of my dream. Now, that was very difficult because a part of me thought, well, should I have reached out to this person and say, look, I've dreamt of you? Yeah. Or or the family. I I left it because this is too, too sensitive. But things like that happen. 
And I am actually starting to get braver now. When I dream of someone out of the blue, I make a conscious effort to connect with them, kind of live the dream. Um, you know, I say it in a very fun way, you know, and if a yeah. person doesn't want to reply, so I had a dream about you. Are you okay? You know, what, what what's going on? Yeah, you don't have to say, and you died. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But also, what, first of all, though, I will look at what, why am I dreaming about this person? What is, what is it about them? What trait do I need to integrate? Mm-hmm. Good point. Right, as well. So, but, but if someone persistently appears in my dreams and I can't work it out, I do, do now start living the dream. And call, reaching out to them. Reaching out. That's, a, be- that's a good message for all of us. It's a beautiful thing to do, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, You've been on my mind. I keep dreaming about you. How are you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. a beautiful thing to do. And often you will find, when I have done this in the past, that something is going on. Mm-hmm. You've picked up on something unconsciously. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as I said, I would encourage people to start... Not, but it's not the insane ones where you're a serial killer or the yeah, blood no, and gore. No. <laughs> that is just your dreaming mind using shock. Yeah. Again, because you've ignored it. Yeah, it wants your attention and it knows that blood and gore, yeah, you're going to you're you're think about it. You're going to talk to your friends about it. You're going to go online. You're going to search about it. You're going to mull it over. That's all your dreaming mind wants. It wants you to reflect. Your attention. Mm. What about, you talk about sometimes some methods yes. for meeting with your future self in dream time. Oh, yes. Well, one thing I'd like people to do is to think about themselves watching the next episode, the next guest, right? Whoever that may be. And to say hello to that person right now. Also go back in time and think the episode previous to this one. Where were you? Stand by yourself. Give yourself a hug. And, and say, what is the purpose of that? The purpose of that is to give you a sense that you are more mm-hmm. than just the here and now. You are expansive across time. And it is a wonderful thing to know because a lot of us sometimes feel very alone. Mm-hmm. And knowing that your future self is there already. I mean, I believe my future self. I mean, I will. I know when I go fly back in a couple of days time to the UK, I will be reflecting on this moment. I will be back here. So I'm already here. So hello, Teresa. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's a lovely mm-hmm. thing to do. You never feel alone because you know that when you go into the future, you create a memory. You know, what is it? Lewis Carroll once said, it's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards. Mm-hmm. Your memory can work forwards Talk as well. About future memory. Future memory. And we're going to get into that right now yes. about what that does to the brain. Because you were telling me. Yes, I found this research. The brain. Yeah, tell us about it where the brain fires up in a totally different way. Yes. If you create a future memory. Well, actually, it's called episodic future thinking in scientific terms when they study it. Mm -hmm. Um, And what happens is when someone's thinking about the present or the past, they study what parts of the brain are lighting up. Mm -hmm. Then when somebody is asked to take themselves into the future, say, I want you to now, two days from now, where will you be? What will you be doing? The brain just goes wild. Because it's in creative mode. Yes, it's highly creative Mm -hmm. and it's creating a living memory. And it's been shown this is great for brain health. It's great for mood regulation. It's great for positive thinking and, and helping you believe in yourself. And actually creating this future self. At the moment, that you, the, the person you want to be, the person you aspire to be, your higher self, for want of a better word, is a really powerful exercise. 
you know, I have visualized this conversation and I hope it's playing out, <laughs> you know, and to, to make sure that, you know, that to, to yes. and sort of fit in. So when I come, mm-hmm. I'm kind of filling in the blanks. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, it, and, and as I say, research shows it's very good news for the brain. So that the antithesis would have to be sitting around and constantly thinking about the past. Yes. Yes. The brain doesn't light up in the same way. No, it doesn't. There's nothing creative about mowing over the past. Unless your future self goes back into the past and gives your past a like hug. Like what we talked about earlier. We get earlier. the whole brain activity. This is it's reimagining what yeah. happened in the past to a higher outcome. Then you have it lighting up again, right? That's yes. what you just said, because all the creativity is there. It's a future simulation. And now every day I greet my future self. I say, hello, my old friend. <laughs> You're here already because I know... Because I'm a very reflective person. I'm going to go back and reflect. I know I'm going to do that. Similarly, when I write in my dream journal, I know my future self later in the day or tomorrow is going to read it. So I'm conscious that I'm already present there across mm-hmm. time. But it's it's not, it's a bit, you could say. It's different than habitual dwelling in the past. Yes. Yeah, very, very different. different. Very. I just wanted you to make the distinction. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, the distinction between the you two. You go back in the past to understand it and to be caring and compassionate towards yourself and mm-hmm. to be whatever you needed to be to yourself at the time mm-hmm. because you were too young. Mm-hmm. When you're young, you haven't got the knowledge. Mm-hmm. But when you get older, you start getting the wisdom and you can go back and give that young child your wisdom. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah. You say, in fact, it's a good exercise to spin out in your mind where you will be in three months' time, for example. Yes. Okay, yes. so some people would say, why waste your time? It's just fantasy and imagination. It's not, because I'd also, I would urge people, first of all, to do it for tomorrow morning. Because right. that's more predictable. Yes. You kind of know what you're going to well, do. Well, no, do, do things fulfill. like, what time am I going to wake up? Okay, so guess what time you might be waking up. Yeah, will it be light or dark outside? Mm -hmm. A series of questions. Will it be light or dark outside? Will I be woken by alarm or naturally? Mm -hmm. You make these, you try these things and you write down your answer and see how accurate you are over time. But then do it like three months in advance. Because now you're going to have to, your mind's a bit like a simulator. You've got to create a future. Mm -hmm. Predict where it's going to be, right? What you want to see for yourself. You know, be realistic. We live in the material world and, you know, you know, you're not going to be a, a, a rocket scientist in three months. Be realistic. You know, a, a scenario that's, that's doable. How will you build? Write it down. And then when that time comes, just see how on point you are. Mm-hmm. It's and then very go, powerful. Go further out. Yeah. Go, keep going further out. And mm-hmm. every time you do it, your, your, your brain is loving you for mm-hmm. it. Your, your brain loves episodic future thinking. It's also a very exciting way to live. Yeah. To know that your future self is, is watching you. And also, you know, knowing your future self is watching you. I want to impress my future self right now. Yes. I want my future to say, well done, Teresa. You know, you got the points across. You know, I want to do that. Because studies again show that people who are observed when doing a task perform better. Mm-hmm. And you are being observed all the time by your future memory. Mm-hmm. Right? Interesting. That will raise your game. Well, that that's very interesting. And I really thank you for bringing that in, that um, the brain itself has now been witnessed in action in response to these future pacing events, these yes. future memories. Yes. So the, it's starting to really be upheld even in the scientific realms Episodic now. future thinking. And that's what we want. We want term. our brain to be lit up because it also keeps the brain alive. It keeps your life moving in unexpected, wonderful directions. Yes. There's every reason to do it. 
Yes. Where are you going to be in three months? What do you see? <laughs> Back here or where? <laughs> well, I see myself in England next month and we'll have tea together. We will have tea. I loved having tea. We have cream tea and we have, you know, we put the, you put the cream on first and then the jam. And you put the jam on of first. Of course, that's, that's the logical way to do it, Regina, really. But see, in the US, it usually doesn't start with cream, it starts with butter and then jam. <laughs> okay, on that, I want to thank you so much. Any final thought besides Keep a dream journal, absolutely. Final thoughts is um, most people who are into dream work write down their dreams and then start interpreting them. Mm-hmm. But what they miss out on is that third and vital step is going back and looking back several weeks behind to see if there's any theme or pattern. Now after this interview, you know that your dreams are potentially precognitive. They have that ability to showcase potential futures. All you need is to go back in your dream journal and see one precognitive hit to know it's possible. And when you know something's possible, you can do it. What you need to do is you need to gather data. You need to prove to yourself, be like a citizen scientist, that you are a precognitive being having a human experience. And when you do that, I guarantee your life will never be the same. I agree. Validation, self-validation is everything to opening up your psychic powers. I know years ago, I think, oh, but did, did I really see that? As the years went on with each hit that was validated, got to where just relax and then it just flows in so yeah. much easier. It's that letting go. Because when yeah. you let go of things, you open up yeah. for something better, new yeah. to come in. Too many of us hold on to things that we want to try and force things. And by doing that, you're blocking what yeah. is right for you to come in. Have to let it go. Yeah. Beautiful message. I think you've encouraged a lot of people to write down their dreams. And okay. remember your dreams don't and lie. Remember your <laughs> dreams don't lie and validate yourself because you're the exercise. Loving yourself is the exercise. It is. Thank you so much, Teresa. It's wonderful to see you. Teresa is a prolific author on these topics, and you can find her newest book, Empower Your Inner Psychic, through major booksellers. One of my favorites, particularly as a gift to someone wanting to engage with dreams who's new to it, is her beautifully illustrated book, Night Vision. I give that book to people. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Okay, I'm going to talk to you right now, Mary Rainbird. Let's hear what you have to say about dreaming the impossible dream. Pass the dog <laughs> stick to you. Okay. Oh, oh the, yeah, for sure. Dreaming that impossible, impossible dream. And, um, yeah, I was doing that when I woke up and Teresa Ballard was signing off, and I go, oh, no, I miss Teresa. <laughs> oh, God. Aww. And then this other Teresa said, well, what were you dreaming about? And I'm going, I was dreaming I was at John Austin's house. <laughs> and I was... Oh, my goodness. All the way up there in the Philippines, huh? I know. <laughs> that's, a, that's quite a journey, yes. Yeah. So that was nice she did that because I couldn't remember what I was dreaming. And then I, I thought about it, you know, while she was talking. Oh, yeah, I was at John Austin's house. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's really hilarious. interesting. He, he's, he's, uh, he's got a good good energy. I, I like John Austin. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I had commented about his energy today, answering actually something Micah said, and and that was it was kind of fun. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Say something Anyways. Micah said. Yeah, I was because he was supporting John. He was being torn apart by people who were being stupid. Oh um, yes, yeah. <laughs> so I was typing in to support John and and Micah. And then Chin chimed in and said, nice, Carolyn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Carolyn, huh? Rainbird, Carolyn. Carolyn Rainbird. That's right. And so what was t- this Teresa dream person? What was her last name? What was her last name, Rama? I'm not sure. I don't remember, but she was lovely. She was absolutely lovely. You think she was. Robert, that was fun. You think you can jump back there? Oh, never mind, Mama. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just couldn't hear. I, I heard it twice, and I couldn't figure it out either time what, what it was. Oh, she's got that British accent. Yeah. So, but anyway, thank you for today and tonight and tomorrow. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That's future dream about tomorrow. Today. Yeah. Tomorrow. Yeah. Today. Oh my goodness. Look at that time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, look at the time. So thank you and and I pass the talking stick back to Doug. <laughs> <laughs> to Doug. <laughs> Until we all meet again. I'll just read this little thing from um, from Aurora Gray. She says, your world is like a giant puzzle, and each of us is a piece in this cosmic puzzle. The energy shift that's coming to Earth is like the missing piece that fits perfectly into its place. This shift is like a wave of transformation, a powerful breeze of change that will sweep through every corner of the world. Let's dream about that tonight. All right, everybody. Do you have anything you want to play, Rama? Mm, no, too. We just want to go dream. Yeah. Okay, let's go dream, everybody. Thank you for this day. I've really enjoyed this and I get this sense that every time we come together there's just wonderful response and what's available for us to share so with great love and joy and looking forward <laughs> to a dreaming the dream awake satnam satnam ki Aho, me takuyas and 13 thank yous, honey in the heart, and no need, no evil. Time to dream. Namaste, everyone. Namaste. Namaste.